Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff. Wittellis is being recorded live and broadcasted live on June 5th, a little bit after 8.30 p.m. I'm not exactly keeping track of the time right now. But we have a very special interview tonight at around 9 p.m. Dutch Boyd is going to be on this show, I believe, for the first time ever. We had him on some other radio shows I was part of, but I believe on Poker Fraud Alert Radio, which has gone for over eight years now. I don't think we've had him on before. And we're going to have an extensive interview with him tonight about everything in his life, past and present, because he has a very interesting story. A lot of people will have on here that are from the poker or gambling community. Their stories only become interesting once they got into poker. Before that, it was kind of mundane. I don't even ask them much for that reason. But uh, with Dutch, it was interesting pretty much from day one. And there's a number of things you may not know about him. 
So we're going to have him on here, and I, I realize that Dutch is a controversial figure. I realize that he's been involved in some matters which uh, you know, some people didn't agree with or some people had criticism for, and we're not going to shy away from that. This is going to be a respectful interview, but it's also not going to be a softball interview. We're going to ask him the tough questions and uh, give him a chance to tell us about everything past and present, but as I did with Houston Curtis, as I do with everybody who comes on this show for an interview, I treat them respectfully. This is not going to be adversarial, but it's going to be just honest and straightforward while respectful. So I look forward to that. We're going to have Vintage One and Trey Ruski on here for that interview as well. Vintage One, it turns out, is friendly with him. I didn't even know that until recently. In fact, it was Vintage One who suggested I have Dutch on the show. And I thought, yeah, that's funny because I was actually considering asking Dutch to come on the show like a few days before he mentioned it. So uh, this was arranged, and then uh, it got delayed by two weeks, and here he is tonight. You may wonder why we are broadcasting on a Friday instead of on a Saturday. We've been doing Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. That became our regular day for some time now, and now we're doing Friday. Now, Friday is not going to be permanent. The reason we're doing Friday is simply because I cannot make it tomorrow. So uh, we're doing this on Friday. I wish I was going on vacation, but I'm not. <laughs> that won't be a thing for a while. But I cannot make it tomorrow, so we are doing it tonight on Friday, and next week we will be back on Saturday, which means it was six days since the last show, and it'll be eight days until the next show. As usual, you can reach the show at 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. I'm not going to take calls during the Dutch interview, but afterwards, if you wish to call in and comment on the interview itself, you are welcome to call in. And uh, also, you can call at any time during the show, other than the interview. I, I just don't take calls because we get a lot of troll phone calls and stuff like that. I don't want to subject our interviewees to that weirdness. But I'll take the troll calls. You can call after the interview is over, 775 You can also write in the chat room where it's active when the show is active. When the show is not on, there's nobody in the chat room. But if you have a flash-enabled device, you can go into the chat room, meaning no iPhones or iPads. You do need a Poker Fraud Alert account in good standing, so if you're someone who is listening now because you follow Dutch Boyd and you want to go in the chat room, if you don't have an existing validated Poker Fraud Alert account, you just can't get in there, that's the way it goes. But uh, you can make comments in the chat room, and I'll see if uh, I can ask him questions you put in there. Also, you can text me, 775-372-8355, the main show's phone number. And uh, if I see the text in time, I will ask those questions if I think they are appropriate. So uh, it will be at least a little bit interactive. And I've already had uh, some, suggested, some suggested questions from listeners beforehand, which I plan to ask, as well as uh, many of my own questions. So I hope you enjoy the interview that's going to be coming up as our first segment tonight. What about a free roll? Do we have a free roll? Yes, we do. It is at 9 p.m. Pacific time. It is a $71 free roll this week. 35 for first, 22 for second, 14 for third, 35, 22, and 14. Thank you to the following three people who gave donations for this free roll. Reno gave $25. Disposition gave $16. And Yup donated today for $30. So thank you to the three of you. 
It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find that near the top of the screen. You need a separate account there, separate login, separate password from your Poker Fraud Alert Forum account. It also needs to be separately validated beforehand. So if you're just signing up now, then you're not going to get in this week. So uh, the instructions and the rules need to be understood at PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll, all lowercase. And you can learn all about the free roll and the free money we give away every week. And I can pay you by a variety of ways. I can pay you via Bitcoin, via Cash App, via Zelle, and some other ways you might be able to think of where people can transfer money online. So you can... Let me know if you win the free roll. Either PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff, which is preferred, or you can text me 775-372-8355, or email me dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. To call the show, 775-372-8355, 775-FRAUD55 is our number. We also have the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone, which is located on top of Mount Charleston, which is about 45 minutes away from Las Vegas by car. It's about 30 degrees cooler there. Very nice time of year to go there right now. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. We have the call to listen line, which cannot be used to reach the show as far as talking to me, but you can listen to me. It's a sh- it's a line used to listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require the internet or a computer. No, all it requires is a phone that can dial. That phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. You can call the alternate number if that one doesn't work. Be aware, if you have T-Mobile, it may warn you it's going to cost you one cent a minute, so you'll have to decide if that's worth it to you. Everyone else can call it for free. This is not my decision. T-Mobile decided to do this to high-volume numbers, and since we get a lot of calls on the call-to-listen line, since uh, more than a million minutes have been listened to on the call-to-listen line, that's why we have been hit with that, and I'm still working on ways around that. There may be some ways that I can get around that or come up with a separate call-to-listen line, which uh, T-Mobile doesn't know about yet. We can sneak it by them. So, if you are forgetting the numbers... Don't worry, just go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com and they're all listed there. The radio tab can also be used to listen to the live show if you have a flash-enabled device. And if you don't, just click on one of the links on the radio tab uh, according to the device you have and you can listen live that way. You can also listen live using the TuneIn app. We have two entries on the TuneIn app, one for the live show and one for the archives. And you can also... Uh, listen to the archives. We have a lot of different ways to listen to the archives. And by the way, for the you new listeners, I'm saying that wrong on purpose. You can listen to the archives in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, the TuneIn app, the Bullhorn app, or just play or download the MP3 directly from the Radio Archives forum on PokerFraudAlert.com. So many ways to listen, and if you want more, then please suggest them to me. It just has to be something easy and cheap. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. So, like, SoundCloud is not easy. I'd have to manually upload it. I'm not going to do that. YouTube, same thing. So I need something that's automated so when I post the show, it automatically shows up on these uh, listening platforms. I'm not going to do one for each one. It's just too burdensome for, for me because, especially, I don't make any money doing the show. In fact, I lose money on this show and on the site 
every month because I don't attempt to monetize it. And uh, some of that's out of laziness. Some of it's out of a refusal to let others control the content I have on this show. I want to have a full say in that. I don't want advertisers to tell me what I can and cannot say. So uh, I'm going to go over the agenda tonight, and then we are going to get going with the show. We will connect on Trader Ruski and Vintage One before we actually get going with the interview at some point. But uh, here is the agenda tonight. After the interview, we're going to make another phone call to Eric Benzamokin, who has agreed to come on. His schedule is very busy this week. He has a lot going on. Uh, both uh, personally and professionally, and I'm glad he made time for us tonight. He's going to talk to us about the Mike Possel case. What about the Mike Possel case? Well, if you haven't heard, the civil case against accused cheater Mike Possel has been dismissed. Just happened this week. Very bad news. We're going to talk about that and get Eric Benzamokin's take, because he's an attorney and he knows about these things. Vegas has reopened. You can go to casinos now in Vegas. In fact, all throughout Nevada, you can go to casinos. This is as of June 4th, so it's been less than 48 hours since casinos were allowed to open in the state of Nevada. This was a state decision, and then whichever casinos wanted to reopen had the choice to do so, and if they did not want to reopen, of course, they did not have to. Some opened at 12.01 a.m., the very first minute that they were allowed to do so, and some waited until uh, 8 a.m. or some other time later that day. I think it was downtown that opened up at midnight, and the Strip tended to open up around 8 a.m. or later. But uh, for the moment, all of those that plan to open up in the Vegas area have opened, and some are on hold, and the companies are watching what's happening with the market there and whether it's worth it to open. So I will tell you what was seen there, what was experienced. I had some pictures sent to me by a poker fraud alert listener who went there to be there for the 12.01 a.m. opening downtown and went to various casinos. I thank this listener for sending that to me. I'm going to tell you what I saw. I'm going to tell you some other things I saw and other videos that were shared on social media. I'll give you my impression of the opening and whether it was safe to even be there. Speaking of the reopening, Casino Royale, which is center strip, kind of a dump, but a small casino center strip, kind of uh, near Harrah's, they have permanently taken out their table games. That's what they say, according to Vegas reporter John Mahaffey, who puts out a lot of great information on his Twitter. If you're, if you're interested in Las Vegas news from a very knowledgeable gambler, Go look at John Mahaffey's Twitter. That's John, M-E-H-A-F-F-E-Y, John Mahaffey. Very good at all this. He lives in Vegas. He goes around. He, he takes the interesting videos. He reports the interesting stuff. Uh, it's especially good for those who are knowledgeable about gambling. But even just for general fans of Las Vegas, it's an interesting follow. Uh, I was actually going to meet him in person this year. I have not met him in person, but we've both express the desire to meet each other in person. We were going to do it this year, probably in April when I was going to go to Vegas next, which didn't happen, or the World Series of Poker where I should be right now, but am not because it's not going. So I don't know when that's going to happen. Anyway, uh, take a look at John Mahaffey's Twitter if you want to see uh, some more information about the reopening, and I'll tell you some things I noticed on there. But he said that Casino Royale has permanently removed its table games, not just because of the virus. Maybe it got started by the virus, but that when the virus is over, they're not coming back. They're just gone. And Binion's, 
put away their poker tables, and I'll tell you if you can ever play poker in Binion's ever again. Of course, that was the original home of the World Series, so that's a pretty big thing that their poker tables are just gone. Not closed, but gone. Speaking of gone, Ryan Feldman. If you heard that name before? You probably have if you have watched Live at the Bike. Live at the Bike was uh, really uh, controlled behind the scenes by Ryan Feldman. He did a lot for them. He, he's a producer of Live at the Bike. He did so much for Live at the Bike. And he has been laid off. But he's very angry because he was laid off not in a respectful manner, but by the U.S. mail. They sent him a letter saying, you're laid off, which for a longtime employee who did so much for them to send him a letter saying, oh, yeah, you're laid off is really, really cold. It's, it's not like he was like a dealer there, just, just one cog in the machine. He did so much for the bike and live at the bike, and he just abruptly got laid off. And also, he revealed that there were many b- broken promises made to him over time, which I will read to you. Now, of course, uh, the bike must and life at the bike, which are two different entities, but they're associated. Uh, they must have their own side of the story. I'm not saying what he is tweeting out is the truth, but if I had to take a guess, I would say he's probably pretty close to accurate with everything he wrote. So I'm going to read all of that. And I asked him if he wanted to come on the show. He said for certain reasons, which I understand he can't, but uh, I will speak for him. I'm not going to represent him in any way, but I will speak for what I feel he probably wants to say. But I'm, I'm not going to be putting out things he told me to say. I just want to be clear about that. That uh, I'm going to give the opinion that maybe he wishes he could give but can't. Or maybe maybe he doesn't, but I have a feeling he does. Coronavirus news will be discussed, as always, including a big story, which is still being drowned out by all of the civil unrest, which is unfortunate. I hate when important coronavirus stories are getting drowned out because of everything else going on. But uh, a big coronavirus story that two major coronavirus-related studies that were seen as credible have been retracted because it turned out that the data they were using was unreliable. And one of those two studies actually was used to attack President Trump pretty viciously. And I'm not just doing the segment uh, so I can shame the left or anything. I'm just I'm reporting what's being reported by every news agency, including uh, left-leaning ones like CNN, about this retraction. It's a big story. The other retraction has to do with medication that I take. So that's a big one to me. That's a bigger one to me than the other story, the, the other part of it that uh, had to do with Trump. Then I'm going to have various other coronavirus topics, as I always do. So that's going to be our show this week. Trey Daruski, I see, is online right now. Let's connect him first. We're going to get him. We're going to get Vintage One. And then we will get Dutch. He's ready. He messaged me. He's all ready. And I have a surprise for you guys regarding Dutch. He's in the free roll, by the way. If you're playing the free roll, which What's you have, happening, Jeff? You have uh, three minutes left to get into the free roll. You can play with Dutch Boyd. He is there as Dutch. And I didn't expect that either. He's just, he told me he's there. And I said, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. So, uh, Trader Ruski, hello. Welcome to the show. And let's get on our other co-host, uh, Vintage One, who in fact suggested this interview in the first place. I know he really wants to be here. So hopefully we can reach him. We, we have occasional issues reaching him on the show. And I know he'll be disappointed this week if for some reason we can't find him. Now, uh, yes, is unavailable. Well, I, I hope he appears. 
what happened here is uh, Vintage One thought the show was going to be on Saturday because it's been on Saturday like every week. So he actually went out to dinner tonight and they said, oh, crap. The show is tonight. Uh-oh. So he's trying to rush home. We'll connect him on if uh, you know, when he gets home. So I'll be, I'll be watching for that. Well, whatever. He can come on when he's ready. We will connect on Dutch Boyd. Then we will get going with our interview. Before we get going with the interview, I have a little surprise. A little surprise. Not a huge surprise. Don't get too excited. It's not a major event. It's a minor event. But nonetheless, it's an event. Also an event to have Dutch Boyd on the show. Welcome to the show, What's Dutch. up, boys? Dutch, uh, gl- very glad to have you here. I actually, I, ever since you sent me your phone number, uh, I don't know, maybe last year or something, I thought, you know, we should have him on this show. I think he would be perfect to have on here. I think he has a lot of stories to tell. I think that uh, our listener base would be very interested. And then I I kind of was meant – I was meaning to ask you. I just kind of didn't. And then uh, Vintage One, he uh, tells me, hey, you know, you, sh- you should have Dutch Boyd on the show. I talked to him. I go, yeah, <laughs> I was just about to ask him. So uh, we arranged that. Uh, how long have you known Vintage One? Oh, shoot. Let me think. I guess uh, probably three, four years. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. Well – I'm very glad to have you on here, and uh, before we get going, I want to give everybody the little surprise, and that is Dutch Boyd has generously offered to donate $25 additional to this free roll. So it's not a $71 free roll, it is a $96 free roll, and I don't feel like figuring out how I'm going to distribute that right now, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll put it afterwards, but uh, thank you very much, Dutch, for uh, adding money to the free roll. Uh, this, this free roll is actually user-sponsored. I, I don't put my own... Jew gold into this because the site loses money in the first place. I say, I, I take enough of a hit here. I'm going to put the burden on the users and, in this case, the interviewees. So thank you. So uh, I appreciate that a lot, and I'm sure the users will appreciate that. And I think they'll like uh, playing with you instead of uh, playing with each other every week, which gets boring eventually. Finally, they have a, a bracelet winner in the field, a double bracelet winner. So Triple. Uh, a triple? Actually, you, you won three? I thought but you won who's two. counting? Oh, I didn't know this. I'm, I'm especially jealous now. I thought I thought only had one more to win to catch up. I Winning two more is going to be tough. Okay, well, uh, Dutch, I want to start this interview from the very beginning. And uh, there are certain people who come on this show that really all I'm interested in is what's going on right now or maybe their beginnings in poker. But reading your story, it's, it's very fascinating from the very start. So some people don't realize that Dutch Boyd was like a child genius and he finished law school. Not college, not high school, law school at the age of 18, which means that that comes after high school and college. At the end of, at the age of 18, he wasn't just in law school, he finished it. So obviously he was very, very accelerated and very, very advanced. And uh, he, he was kind of like the, the Doogie Hauser of law school, I guess. Uh, so, <laughs> so Dutch, uh, I, I want to know about this because uh, that's kind of hard for me to even picture. I've never actually talked about this before, but when I was in uh, second grade, my parents discussed with the school skipping me a grade because I was, uh, I pretty much knew everything they were teaching already in second grade. And so I wasn't learning much and they said, maybe we should move him up a grade. And my parents ultimately decided against it because they thought it would be difficult socially to move up one year, which probably was the correct decision. But you moved up a lot more than one year. So, uh, how did this come to be, and and can you tell us? Uh, so, what what year? How old were you when you finished high school? Uh, so let's see. I I um, I was accepted into uh, community college when I was eleven, and I I completely skipped high school. I went straight from 
So I, I skipped two grades from fourth grade to seventh grade, and then I skipped from seventh all the way up. And I think, you know what, I think I also skipped a, an earlier grade. I agree with your parents, by the way, for what it's worth. I think that uh, I, I think skipping one grade or two grades would have been a disaster. Uh, I mean, I think it would have been a lot harder for me than skipping seven. You know, when you're when you're 12 years old and 13 years old in a college course, um, you, you don't you're not trying to pretend to be uh, to be the same age as everybody and fit in. You, you pretty much take that whole fit in uh, mentality and throw it out the window. I, I can tell you that like the the, the skip from fourth to seventh was a was a much harder skip than seventh to community college. It's kind of interesting. I think a lot of people, you know, for, right from seventh grade could go right in, take the GED, and then start community college. Why not? You know, it's not uh, – you, you learn most of the things that you learn in high school in your first couple of years of college anyway. So 12 years old, seven years of college uh, later, and I'm graduating uh, law school. I went through college the same uh, the same as everybody else. Four years from my undergrad, got a uh, an associate's from the community college, transferred to a state school for a bachelor's in sociology, and then um, took the LSAT, got accepted to Missouri University, and three years of law school later, I'm 18 years old with way too much student debt and a degree that I don't know if I'm ever going to use. And right during my second year, that's when Rounders came out, and that movie just completely changed my life. You know, Brian Koppelman writing about Mikey McDee and uh, you know borrowing ten grand from a from a law professor and you know just you know, playing poker with a bunch of uh, you know cops and frat boys and getting beat up by cops. It, it, it seemed appealing to me for some reason. I, I don't know what the draw was, but you know I, I'm kind of that that rounders generation as far as uh, where I came into the game and. Um, then I was kind of at the right place at the right time when ESPN started you know, blowing up with the uh, the money maker. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll get to that. Don't worry, we we've got we've got a lot to cover here. But uh, that's that's an interesting backstory there. Uh, and by the way, Rounders I still think is the only good poker movie ever made. Every other poker movie I've seen ranges from terrible to mediocre. So, <laughs> so that's that's somehow the best poker movie of all by far was made before the poker boom, which might be the reason it was the best. So anyway, uh, so what was the reason for skipping all of those years and being in uh, college at age 12? By the way, I, I am proud of one thing, that I, I actually outdid you in finishing college quickly. I finished college in three years instead of four years, I, though uh, that, that was my only skip. Was though I, though I kind of regret that, too. I actually wish I took the whole four years. I, I kind of like – I was in a hurry to be an adult. I don't know if that was your case, but uh, I was in a hurry to be an adult. And, and now that I'm getting near 50, I look back and say, why was I? But uh, yeah, <laughs> but but anyway, it could have been a really good year, you know, if you just it took really easy classes and just spent the last, uh, you know, yeah, it was year, it was stupid. Twenty two in a bar trying to pick up the uh, the juniors and the and the sophomores. I mean, shoot, I don't know why I did it, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, what uh, what was the motivation on your end to get into all that so early? I, I can't really take credit for that decision. You know, when I uh, when I got accepted to uh, college, I was eleven. I don't really think that 11-year-olds are really making a lot of their own decisions. I mean, yeah, that's true. I, was, I was presented with a choice, and the choice was kind of uh, presented to me in a way of, uh, what do you think about, instead of spending 40 hours a week sitting in a desk learning things that you, you already know, what do you think about maybe taking 12 hours a week and uh, learning things that 
you're going to have to you know sit through anyway if you want to get a degree. And it seemed it seemed appealing at the time. I also kind of feel like, you know, like like a lot of kids, I think that you know, I was it was kind of. I mean, but I hate to. Uh, I, I don't want to 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 criticize my mother, so I'll I'll try to say this, you know, in a really positive spin. She's always been my biggest fan. She's always thought the. I, I can't tell you how many times she's she's looked at me and she said, you know what. I think you're the smartest person alive. And I realize now that I'm older that a, a lot of people heard that from their parents, right? I mean, like yeah, a yeah. lot of, uh, to a lot of parents out there, their kids are the, just the, the smartest, prettiest, funniest, you know, most athletic people in the world. And, you know, when, when you're a 10 and 11 year old kid, you know, sometimes your, your, your parents will, will tell you things like you know, you can be president if you want to, and you you end up believing it. So I think I kind of bought it when I look back on it, you know, and and just realize that you know I, I'm probably you know smarter than the average bear. But uh, you know, you sit me down at a at a at a five ten no limit game at Bellagio, and I'm probably right in the middle as far as you know the uh, actual uh, capabilities of of the pros. You know, and it, it, I think looking back, I was always just really swimming in a small pond. You know, I was, uh, I grew up in a real small town um, in, you know, the rural Missouri where, you know, the average ACT score when seniors were coming out was like 16. So it, it really wasn't hard to kind of shine. And I felt like, yeah, looking back, would I, made the, would I have made the same decision? I don't know. Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have. Like if, if I could just go back in time and say, Hey, look, kid. What's the hurry? You know, but at the same time, I don't know that I would have gone uh, gone through. I think I probably would have would have been one of the casualties of poker if I hadn't actually finished school when I did. I think I would have probably watched Rounders or you know watched the Travel Channel or ESPN and got sucked in and been a you know been a, a school dropout. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I've thought about that too because I'm, I'm older than you are, so uh, I I actually got. A job, you know, I, I went all the way through school. Nobody was playing poker back then except for a, a small number of people. It was not glamorized at all in the early 90s. And then, then I got a job and, and I worked, worked two different jobs over, uh, over eight years. And so by the time I started playing poker in early 2001, uh, I was already uh, near 29 years old. So, uh, so I had a different entry point to it than a lot of the people your age who came right out of college and some of them ran a bankroll of zero up high. Uh, but but I had an existing bankroll and I had worked for that money, so I was treating the money differently than people who uh, who just wanted really quickly. So it was it was a different path in for me than than some people who are your age. And and it's a, uh, but I did wonder like what if I was younger and I found poker uh, the same way that these kids did in college and started winning a lot of money, I, I, could I would I have finished school? Would I have ever gotten a job? Like I, there was a lot of things that could have been different if I were a little bit younger. So I can I can see your point from a different way that uh, if, if you had been going through that at that time, uh, you know, same, same thing may have happened. Okay, so I want to talk about the uh, the poker spot situation, and I, I know this was uh, controversial at the time. Now that 20 years have passed, people are uh, much less passionate about it. I was not part of it. I probably would have played on that site, but I had uh, I got into poker just as that was wrapping up, and, and we can discuss the timeline here, but it's something a lot of people don't know about because it's 20 years ago and a lot of people got into poker in 03 or later and they just don't know about it. So uh, you did something that is, is a very difficult undertaking for anybody 
let alone a 20-year-old or a 19-year-old, whatever you were at the time in, in 2000. But uh, you started a poker site called Poker Spot, and, and there, was, there were hardly any poker sites around then. I know there was Planet Poker. Was there anything else in 2000 that was there? Uh, when we when we first started it, um, when we first began the project, it was just Planet Poker and uh, two other two other skins of the same software called uh, Delta Poker, and I think Highlands Club might have been out at that point, or my, Highlands Club might have come out after, but they were all you know using the same really really crappy software. Did you play on Planet Poker? I Were did. you able that, to that, get into that? That was the very first online poker site I played on. In February of '01, I, I signed up to Planet Poker. I'd been playing poker for only a month, and I'm like, hmm, this is kind of slow. I, I really enjoy it, but it'd be so cool if I could just play this online and get you know, more hands dealt to me. So I, I sat down at uh, Planet Poker a month later, and I, I was kind of a fish, but uh, so was everybody else, so I, I didn't do that badly. But I, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't winning, but I wasn't really losing very much. But anyway... Uh, what uh, so so Planet Poker? Yeah, it was that. I guess some skins. And uh, so, what what was your plan with Poker Spot? Well, you know, the the plan was I I was in law school when I started playing on Planet Poker. Um, I think I was you know maybe sixteen, turning seventeen, and uh, was just it, it might have you know what actually now that I think about it, I think I was seventeen. So Rounders came out uh, in '98, I think. As soon as, as as soon as Rounders came out, I tried to convince all my friends to play poker with me, and none of them were interested. No one cared. Back then, it was hard to get a game. Yeah, you know, you actually had to like look around and try to actually you know get people in. And there was very little information about uh, the game back then. You know, they had the uh, Skolansky uh, had his uh, you know Texas Hold'em uh, book. There was Super System. But most of the books that people were reading um, were by authors that no one would really recognize now. Uh, there just wasn't a lot of information out there. I remember one book, though, uh, was by, I think, a guy named, uh, I want to say Richard Fox, and it was something like um, Quit Your Job, play, or play Poker, Quit Your Job, Sleep Till Noon. And it was just all about how to like thrive in, in, uh, in cash games. Did you ever read that book? <laughs> no, was, I, I didn't read that book. In fact, I'm not sure if I heard about it, but uh, I mean, it sounds well, like a good title, but I, I don't know much about it. There were so few poker books out there. So I, I, as soon as I saw Rounders, I got bit by the, the poker bug. I went out and read everything I could. And I looked around to find somebody who you know would want to play. No one wanted to play. So I looked online to see what they had. And at the time, there was uh, there was uh, I think Yahoo had a poker product, Yahoo Poker. It was free. They had uh, 2AM, which was this site that was a free roll site that you could actually win real money from. It was, it was really cool. 2AM Poker. I've oh, never heard of that. And then there was Planet Poker. And at the time, I, I, didn't, I was a student. I didn't really have any money. I didn't really want to lose money either. So I, I started at these free roll sites, Yahoo Poker and 2AM Poker. 2AM Poker would let you actually win money. And so how it would work is you'd start with a little bankroll on this site, a thousand chips. And you if you could build that thousand chips up to a million chips, they'd send you a hundred dollar check. And I got pretty good at that over the course of a couple months where they they changed their rules because there there was it was just basically two of a you know, me and one other poker player who were just cashing out every week. 
they changed the rules so you could only cash out once. So once I, I stopped being able to actually just win free money on this uh, this free roll site, um, I switched over to Planet Poker. And you know, it was tough, but I was winning. Um, it, the, the games went up to 10-20 limit, but I didn't have a bankroll to play that. So I was playing, I think they had 1-2 limit and 2-4 limit. I don't think that they had uh, fractional uh, limits at that point. Uh, so they, they they couldn't actually break it down below that, and then um, started started playing and winning a little bit of there. I cashed out a couple thousand, but the software sucked. You know, it was horrible. I got out of uh, I got out of law school, and uh, at this point, my brother and I were always kind of into uh, you know, into computers and coding. Uh, we had kind of gotten into some of the uh, you know the underground scenes. Had a little bulletin board in Kansas City, kind of pre-internet. And uh, so Bobby, my little brother, he uh, he had gone out to uh, San Jose and accepted a job with one of the networking companies. Uh, it's called Frontier Global Center. It's gone now. I think it was uh, purchased by Global Frontiers. I don't know. Everyone was getting purchased back then. It was a dot-com bubble. You know, It was right before the yeah. dot-com bubble. So it was so crazy out there that they were willing to look at this 15-year-old kid and give him a job. And so he had already gone out there to do some networking and coding. And, uh, shoot, hold on. I'm going to have to be all in here. Uh, oh, he's, nah, he's I can't pausing, do it. I can't do it. He's pausing okay. the interview for our free roll. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Go, go on. I'm looking at this free roll. I, I, like, I, I, I couldn't pull the trigger. I couldn't pull the trigger. I had to fold. Okay. So where were we? Bobby was already out there in the, in the, uh, in and the they, valley doing some coding for some yeah. dot com. And so, I spent the summer with him after law school and was playing online and he looked over and we were both kind of looking at how janky this software was. I mean, it was horrible. It kept on disconnecting right in the middle of hands. And, you know, it was just it's so slow and so painful to play on. And it only had no limit hold'em or not no, no limit. It, it only had limit hold'em. It didn't have no limit hold'em. It didn't have any of the other games like stud Omaha. Um, and it didn't have tournaments and, you know, after rounders, you know, I was I was taught that no limit hold'em is the Cadillac of poker. Yeah, you know, and, and they they weren't playing the Cadillac of poker. And well, then there was you know, there was very little of, right. There was very little of that played. Some of you may not remember because you weren't around back then. But uh, the game at the time, the big game at the in the year 2000, 2001, 2002, that was that was limit hold'em. That was the main game everywhere. Stud was the game kind of before that that was slowly dying out and no limit hold'em was hard to find sometimes you'd find a pot limit hold'em game which nobody plays anymore uh once in a while you'll find a no limit hold'em but, but it really didn't exist very much that's another way rounders was ahead of its time so well, i don't think that rounders was ahead of its time i think that this is one of the biggest lies that brian koppelman told in rounders you know no limit hold'em was not the cadillac of poker no limit hold'em wasn't the common game yeah and honestly i think that po- poker would be better today if no limit hold'em wasn't actually introduced as the the end all be all highest skill game out there. Um, it would be better for a lot of people. It'd be better for the. It'd be far better for the casinos. You know, it, it, one of the biggest uh, problems with with poker, you know, no limit hold'em poker, is that it breaks the fish too quickly. Whereas you know, you sit down, you sit somebody down at a stud high low game, and it's just gonna you know it'll take them forever to lose you know their their life savings, <laughs> you know. Well, it depends on and the limits, then, but I, I understand your point. 
Yeah. Well, I'm not a no. I don't like no limit hold'em cash. I, I I'm not going to defend no limit cash because I I never could really get into that. Uh, but uh, so so you started Poker Spot uh, to kind of uh, present options and things that on uh, that, that weren't available on Planet Poker and also to make better software as well. I mean, sure. I I mean, really, we we started Poker Spot to to make money. Well, I know, you but know, I'm I mean, sitting I mean, here looking right. back and seeing how much this site is making on the rake, and we you know we started doing a little napkin math. I mean, here we are playing one two and two four limit hold'em. And it's slow. You know, we're getting maybe 35 hands in an hour. But I'm still doing the math. And they, they base that rake on, you know, a, a normal California drop or a Vegas drop. So even though they weren't paying dealers and they weren't paying security guys or, for, you know, floor space, they would charge the players the same amount. And they were getting, they were getting more hands in per hour. So when we started doing the napkin math and just seeing how much money they were making and realizing that they were really doing a crappy job with it, you know how hard would it be to make a an online poker site uh, that was better? It w- it wasn't that hard to make it better. But so so who wrote the software? Was it your brother? Was it you? Was it both of you? Um, Bobby did most of the heavy lifting. Uh, I I did do some of the code though. Uh, you know, did some uh, especially when it came to uh, reporting and back end stuff. What features did it have? Did it have no limit hold'em cash games? Did it have tournaments? I, I had thought tournaments didn't come to online poker software till Poker Stars in '03 or, or later no, too. It did. Wow! It did. We were the very first site to have no limit hold'em tournaments. Mm, I never we knew that. Were the, we were the first site to have Stud High Low and Omaha High Low. And you know when we started uh, when we started announcing our tournaments at this so about. Four or five months into development, Paradise came out, and Paradise Poker came out with a with a, a software product that was so much better than Planet, so much better. And you know we were we were really deflated because now there's you know they just raised the bar quite a bit, but we thought we'd be able to do a better job anyway. And I think the so- I think our software was better uh, from a front end perspective. Um. So when we started, when we when we launched, I think we launched in two thousand. We uh, we started with, you know, it, it, we started with. Uh, I think I think we did a soft launch without tournaments, and then a couple weeks in, we launched the tournament product, and it was the very first time anybody had seen it. But then, right when we started launching it, Paradise Poker started announcing, and we started advertising it too, and Card Player, and I think there was a, a Poker Digest was the other magazine back then. Started advertising, you know, finally poker tournaments are here. Come to the uh, only site with No Limit Hold'em poker tournaments. And Paradise then started claiming that they had poker tournaments too. But what they actually released was uh, single-table satellites. So that's all they had was they had the sit-and-goes. And they called their sit-and-goes tournaments. But they could they didn't actually design for tournaments. So when they were trying to actually figure out how to do you know the the, the collapsing tables and and actually have a a hundred person tournament go to one winner. They they couldn't do that. All they could do is, you know, you're going to sit down at, at a table and we're going to increase the blinds. As, and, and you know that was a that was a good trick, but they couldn't do the the you know the collapsing tables. And so we had the we had the monopoly on tournaments, but you know the, the marketing guys didn't agree. <laughs> you know so. 
So Paradise Poker was claiming tournaments. It wasn't long uh, before other sites had sit and goes that they were claiming tournaments, but it was a while before another site was able yeah, to I actually think, have. I, a I think it was Poker Stars. That was the first one I saw. I think it was maybe in late '02, maybe yeah, a little bit before I got on there in early '03. Yeah, I was hearing people. I, I was hearing people in card rooms and live card rooms say, "Hey, did you hear uh, Poker Stars has a live tournament? Has online tournaments now?" And the so real tournaments, yeah. yeah. A lot of people think that. A lot of people think that Poker Stars was the very first, you know, real poker tournament, but it wasn't. The real, the, the the real first. Actually, I guess if you go to the real first, it was probably you know an IRC uh, poker back in the day. But um, for real money, it was it was it was our site. Wow, it was poker so, spot. So, so we had that, right? And, you know, it taught me some real important business lessons. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I want to get to. So, so there was uh, an unfortunate end to poker spot. For those of you wondering, well, why didn't I hear of that, or why can't I play on that today, or what happened to it? Well. It had an unfortunate end, and it had to do with payment processing. So uh, can you tell us what happened with the payment processor there that uh, eventually led to the destruction of PokerSpot? Well, it's this, this is the painful part of the story, uh, Druff, because when I think about the, the early guys in there and where we were positioned, it's, it's just it, it, it breaks my heart. You know, here we are. We, start, we started when we were 18 and 17, Launched it when you know we were nineteen and eighteen, and we were just positioned. You know, and you look at the, the those early guys like uh, you know the Isa Scheinberg and you know uh, Ruth Parasol. You know, like there's four billionaires, four billionaires from uh, from the success stories. And then even if you look at the failures, you know, you look at like the the, the you know full tilt poker just blew up in everybody's face, but those those guys still walked away with you know tens of millions of dollars, and uh, we we ended up not walking away with anything. Yeah, so we we launched in two thousand, and it, and at that time it was very very much gray. You know, our, we had plenty of theories on why we weren't breaking any American laws, and you know it had to do with poker as a skill game, and it had to do with. Uh, you know, where we were actually dealing the game. We figured, okay, well, if we deal the game in Costa Rica, then the game is happening in Costa Rica. These aren't good arguments. You know, fa- you know, when we fast forward now, you know, these are, when you have a, when you have sites that are, that are U.S. facing, you know, as, as an attorney, I, I realize now that the, the the argument you know it's the arguments have been pretty much decided at this point. Well, right, but but to to be fair though, in two thousand six, that was when everything really changed and they really defined whether it was legal or illegal, and it went to the illegal side. So uh, so I, before two thousand six, before the end of two thousand six, this was very gray, as you said, and uh, I, was, I had considered, oh, maybe I should start one. I go, no, it, I can't really tell if it's legal or illegal. It seems just it seems I, I could see where it could be determined either way and i didn't want to go to jail so i decided not to risk it but uh, but i can understand how this could have been interpreted either way at the time because it wasn't very explicit well today it's very explicit today anyone who, who thinks that uh somehow they can declare it legal is lying to themselves but in, in 2000 2001 you know that anytime around then that's uh I, I could easily see that interpretation so that that's different but but okay. Anyway, yeah. go on. So I, I so assume you're, you look you're, at you yeah. know one of the big problems with uh, you know with everything back then was how do you actually move money online? And this wasn't just a problem with poker and casinos and everything. It was a it was a problem with everything. You know, carding was a huge thing back then. 
where people would just generate fake credit cards and buy stuff online. And you, you, the, the sites wouldn't actually even know that they they were fake for for days. And you'd find these merchant account, you know, you'd find these merchant accounts that would process your credit cards, and they would you know kind of give you the thumbs up or the thumbs down on whether the transaction went through, but they wouldn't really know uh, for quite some time. And so we you know looked around for some some solutions for how we could get money into the system. And we found some, uh, you know, payment processors who were willing to to process payments for us. The first one, it's like, it's it's been it's been a long time now. You know, we're talking twenty two years, but it, the way the way I remember it, it was a site called E Payment Solutions. It was run by this guy that we uh, we found named Tony Brown out of Florida, and he was like, "Yeah, we can we can process these. It looked very legit. He had a lot of." Uh, a lot of uh, you know similar sites. He was really focused on online casinos and online sports books, and there weren't online poker sites out there. So we, we kind of had to find somebody who would actually take uh, the account. This might be it, you guys. Ace Jacket Diamonds. I'm making the call. This might be it. Everyone's all in, so I get to just see what happens. So far, so good. We're still in the tournament. We're still in the tournament. You, just tripled you, you, up. You, you, wow, you more than survived. You tripled up. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so ePayment Solutions, they start, they, they start taking uh, credit processing, and um, the way it would have to work is uh, they would keep this big float, like 25 30% of everything we deposited that was on deposit, and they would settle up with us every month. And so we were taking deposits, and we were we were crediting players' accounts while they were still in our merchant account, where the funds were still in the merchant account. So what, what do you mean by, for the listeners to understand, what do you mean by the funds were still in a merchant account? What I mean is ePayment Solutions, which was the merchant account that was processing the credit card, would, you know, we would, you know, on the cashier, someone would type in their credit card details, deposit $100, and would send a little code to, to ePayment Solutions that would, basically spit back a thumbs up or a thumbs down, right? And if they said that the credit card was good, then we would credit that player $100 right then and there. But we wouldn't actually see the $100 until ePayment Solutions sent it over to us. And that would take 30 days. So there was this huge lag between the time where we got the money into the system and the time when we were crediting it, this is a huge mistake, you know. And, and when and looking back on it, this was one of the dumbest things like someone can do is just trust a merchant account to make good on 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 these credit card payments. But you know, at the time, that's how everyone was doing. Things like you know, everybody was doing it that way. And with with poker, you know, it was it was rough because. With the paramutual game, with poker being the the, uh, the paramutual game where people are putting money in and they're not really gambling with the casino or you know against the casino individually, they're gambling with other players. What what a lot of people were ended up you know were doing not only on our site but a lot of other sites was trying to use these these merchant accounts to you know get fraudulent credit cards through and. On our site, 
You know, there was a lot of money being dumped to other accounts that turned out to be fraudulent. Anyway, ePayment Solutions went, you know, gave us a call and told us that we were out of luck because, well, they didn't tell like that, but they said that they were out, they were going out of business. They had so much credit card fraud, not only in, in poker, but all of their other customers, that uh, they they didn't have the money that they were owing to us. And it hit a lot of casinos, a lot of sports books, really hard, that first wave. And so that ended up really hitting us for pretty much all the money that we had started the, the, the company with. Well, let me stop you for a second here. Uh, how much money did they not pay you that they owed when that At happened? At that point, it was eighty grand. Okay, and that, that sounds small to you guys who you think of huge sites like PokerStars, but I assume for a site the size of PokerSpot that was a killer. The eighty grand. I mean, it, it wasn't quite the killer. It was. It was. There goes all of your profit and all of your, uh, you know, all of your cushion. Um. But we we were still we were still afloat. We still had um, you know we 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 were still operating. We still but no one could deposit money at that point, and so we rushed around looking for another merchant account. And keep in mind at this point, we still thought that ePayment Solutions was going to be paying out. You know the same kind of the same kind of the same kind of lip service that you get when when a business is going out of business but isn't quite willing to accept defeat uh you know we'd be on the phone with uh, their president and you know their 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 account managers pretty much every day saying when are you going to be paying us you know the player deposits and they'd be like oh it's it's coming don't worry it's coming well when are you going to be you know processing transactions and they're like oh it, it's don't worry about it it's going to happen and so we scrambled around looking for other payment processors, and back then, back back then, it was actually kind of interesting because PayPal was actually doing a lot of payment processing for the gaming industry, and they were really new. You know, no one. Oh really yeah, knew I remember they're... that. In fact, they they screwed me a little bit, and I charged back on them. But uh, but uh, anyway, <laughs> go go on with your story. So you know, we had some options. Um, there was. Uh, I think there was a site. I think there was a processing company called FirePay back then. That that came a little bit later, I believe. But it may, actually, maybe it was there then. I, I used I it, but later. I, I used it, but later just on. Started. Okay. There were about four different options, and we went with another one. And this, the, the you know, this looked bigger. It looked like we weren't going to have the same problems. We were waiting for the first, uh, you know, what would end up being just a complete, you know. Uh, bankrupt failure of a of, of a processing company. To, we were still waiting for them to pay, um, and we switched over to this other processing company, NetPro. Net. I can't remember no, it what it was matter. called. It's, it's been twenty years. It doesn't matter. I, I, I write about this in my book. If anybody's interested in in you know actually getting the names and everything right, I, I spent some time actually, you know. Going down memory lane, it's 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 hard to re, it, it's hard to revisit, you know, because Poker Spot really was the the biggest failure of my life, hmm. you know, when I think about it, and it was also probably the closest that I'll ever be to being on any sort of Forbes list, you know. It's also the closest I'll ever be to, 
you know, being, uh, you know, being an expat <laughs> and, and not feeling comfortable coming back to the States. So in a lot of ways, it, it's kind of good that it, that it failed when it did and how relatively small it did. Um, anyway, the, the point is second, second processor failed in the exact same way. And this time it failed much bigger. This time they, they, I think the number was something like 250, 260,000. Oh, wow. And yeah, it so happened right after. Yeah. You know, so the e-payment solutions failed, I think, August, September. We're scrambling around. We have very little money. And it's like we don't learn our lesson. We didn't think that e-payment solutions was going down for, you know, and, and, it really did seem like everything was going to just work out. And then also in the back of our mind, we also knew that we had this, you know, this killer app in the middle of the dot-com bubble. So if we really needed to, we could go out, you know, sell it or raise more money or whatever we needed to do. So we weren't, we weren't uh, taking things slow. We felt like you know, if, if I could go back and, and give myself some business advice, it would be don't feel, like, don't feel the need to grow quickly. You don't need to even take credit cards in that situation. Make people wait two, three weeks to get their money and make them send a check and have it clear or a wire transfer and have it clear. You know, now we have you know, lots of other ways that you can move money and credit cards aren't in the, in the business anymore of, you know, allowing these massive chargebacks. Yeah. Uh, well, so, so I've got a question here. As, as this is all happening, and, and I, by the way, I understand all of this. Like this is, uh, uh, people were not as, uh, used to this type of thing where credit card where these processors these poker payment processors have issues some of them fail some of them are, are unreliable some of them are shady this was all new territory so i i understand uh, that uh, this could blindside you not once but twice and and how this could destroy an early poker site that doesn't have a huge budget behind it that started by two kids um as, as this was happening um obviously the users were unhappy and i read so i actually went back when this was over well, like way back then when I heard about Poker Spot after it was already gone, I went back and read some of the threads about it. And, uh, of course, the p- members of the site were very unhappy and were asking when they're going to get paid and everything. So what did, what did you do when that happened, when people started to say, hey, where's my money? How how, how did you handle that? What did you tell them? Um, I didn't handle it well because at the time I you know, really felt like we were going to be – we were going to be huge. It was going to be a huge site. Everything was going to be okay. Uh, so uh, I was always really, you know, kind of in the public. I kind of let my ego get in the way, you know, where there's a lot of sites out there where where you don't really know who's behind it. I was always very, you know, vocal trying to, you know, trying to be part of the poker community because really in my heart, I, I didn't want to be a, a poker businessman. I wanted to be a poker player. Yeah, and so hold on, I got to make this call. <laughs> you got pocket aces against king queen. The queen's on the flop. Dodge the top. Oh, Jesus Christ! You got you got Let's bad say. beat. You're out. Yeah, I got a little five outer on the river for uh, a pretty big one. Turdzilla. I will never forget this Turdzilla. Turds, you I'll better watch forget. out. You better watch out if you come to Vegas. Don't uh, don't show your face there after what you've done here. Oh my God, he messed me up pretty good. Okay. So, <laughs> good, good game, sir. I'm going to go ahead and close this and give you my full attention now, Drop. So, so okay. So, so you were going on what happened with the 
poker spot thing how you were telling what you're telling yeah, the so players how, how did i handle it not well you know i went out the first thing was i told everybody that you don't need to worry we're going to be getting you know we're going to be getting everybody paid you, so you don't have to worry there's you know, the money's coming and you know we were being told by both companies that we were going to be getting the money but at this point I didn't really think that that was happening. By this point, I was like, I don't think that money is coming. I think we're going to have to figure something else out. So we started looking for buyers for this uh, software, and it was good software. You know, we had we had the the tournament uh, the tournament stuff. We had the the split pot games. We could go fractional, so we could play twenty five cent, fifty cent, no limit hold'em. And uh, there were lots of people who were looking at it, and. We found a uh, we found a couple of people who were looking at buying it, Poker.com and Golden Palace. And so we made the decision to go with Golden Palace, and we made this uh, we made this big deal with them where they were going to be buying the software, absorbing all the players' losses, and we were all going to be able to walk away with a couple hundred thousand each. There were four people who had uh, you know a piece of that. And so, yeah, it was it was going to be it was going to be awesome. We went up to Montreal and started you know working with their team. And after about three four months, they they called us in and and just pulled the deal right out. Uh, I, looking back, I mean, they were such a, a massive company. You know, they, I don't I don't know how much they were making, but I mean, they were making so much that they they pretty much produced and sponsored a you know. A, they were they were producing movies and tattooing you know boxers and things. I mean, yeah, I remember that they were doing all this crazy marketing. Uh, what uh, what was the reason they didn't end up buying the software? Why, why did the whole thing fall through? They didn't give us a reason. Oh. They just had us escorted out. Weird. And I I think the you know looking back on it, I think that the whole thing was just uh, just a play to you know really get in under the uh, under the code. And, oh, they got to look. They got to look at the code. Yeah, Uh-oh. you know, part of it was doing the due diligence <laughs> with them, and you know, integrating it uh, with their software, and you know, we went up there for several months working, you know, because part of the deal was that we were going to be, you know, on board and make sure everything went smoothly for, you know, I think, I think a year, and so we were we were there living in Montreal trying to make it, you know, trying to make the best of a bad situation, and then one day we went there and escorted out. It was uh, it was pretty heartbreaking, and you know, at that point, we were we were just I, I didn't know what to do. Bobby was pretty much tired of of not taking money, and so he went back and started working in the Silicon Valley on another job, I think, for Juniper. And you know, the the other two guys that had a piece of it, they were like, okay, well, we're not. We're not sticking around anymore. This is this is going nowhere. And I try to find someone to buy it for probably another six months. Uh, that happens to be also the time, the first time when I had a mental breakdown. Well, yeah, and we're, we're going to talk. We're, yeah, we're going to talk about the 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 mental issues as well as as part of this interview. But yeah, go ahead. That was the first time you uh, you actually had some kind of breakdown. Yeah, so they pulled out of the deal. I think around uh, late. It must have been November because I remember uh, I remember spending the Halloween there for their their corporate Halloween party. So it must have been a, maybe a week before uh, uh, before 
Thanksgiving when they pulled out and we had nothing at that point, you know, no money stuck in Montreal. No, you know, I couldn't even afford to take it back. So, uh, and I called my mom and she sent my stepdad with a van to come pick up Bobby and me. And when I got back to, uh, you know, back to my mom's house, I went to the garage and found some magic cards and sold them. Got like 1500 bucks and, you know, started playing on, uh, Paradise Poker. And, and so, did, <laughs> so did you run your bankroll off from there? Because I know for some, between then, when was that? Like 01 when that happened? Yeah, it, it, so the the site really went down in 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 01. We sold to Golden Palace and then when 9/11 happened, I remember I was in uh in Montreal when that happened. Okay. Everybody in the in the Golden Palace office, you know, we came in and everyone was kind of looking at us like, "Are you doing okay?" You know, it's like Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you guys are actually closer to New York than I've ever been, so yeah, so so it, was, so it was about a year and a half then before you were in the uh, the World Series in '03 when you had your next uh, big thing happen. So did you in between that time did you did you run up the bankroll somewhat? Obviously, you got uh, ten thousand dollars to play with for the main event by then. But uh, where do you have some decent success in poker during that time, or was it a struggle? I, I was paying my bills, but I, I wouldn't say the, the bankroll ever got over five grand between uh, between that point. And when I uh, had the big breakout in 2003, and in 2003 when I when I played the main event, I had won a satellite, one of the very last super satellites. Okay, it was one of the $200 satellites. So, you know, at at that point, 10k was way more than I should have been playing. I I didn't know what I was doing back then. So, if you have a $2,000 bankroll or a $3,000 bankroll, and you win a $10,000 seed, a lot of people are like, oh, now I get to play it. It's not really how it works, you know. You got thirteen thousand now. You just you just won you you just won ten thousand. You don't you you don't have to. You know, yeah, you can sell. Let it, it ride. Okay, so so it was actually it turned out in hindsight a good decision. Uh, what some people don't know is that Dutch Boyd could have been Chris Moneymaker because Dutch Boyd actually finished twelfth that year and had a very big hand against Chris Moneymaker. That uh, they really could may have altered uh, poker history. So uh, Chris Moneymaker, of course, being an amateur who had satellited his way in through Poker Stars, and uh, Dutch was there, obviously more experienced. And there was a hand that came down that had. Uh, uh, why don't you go ahead and describe that hand with the. Uh, the, the big hand that, oh, uh, that, that, uh, this is real torture so far drove i gotta say this has been a real torturous interview <laughs> you are taking me down to the worst moments of my life and making me replay them i love it because yeah i'll be i'll be sitting at a poker uh a, a poker table and people will look at me it's been it's been what 17 years since that hand and they'll be like hey you remember that one hand with chris moneymaker <laughs> like yes i remember that hand well, i know you, you know, remember like, it i i think our, our listeners some of them are not aware of it so uh so I, is, I, I can describe it if one you of like. the classic hands that everybody saw because this particular world series of poker was played everywhere in the world over and over and over and over it's still one of the most played you, like if you if you go on espn history or whatever chances are you're going to see moneymaker at the final table putting a bad beat on phil ivy and three players before that here we are, you know, 13, 14, 14 players left, and we're down to the final two tables. And I, I believe I was the chip leader at that point. 
and uh, Chris Moneymaker was just this 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 nobody. You know, I'm looking around the table, and who do we have? We had uh, Jason Lester, uh, Amir Vahidi, uh, Phil Ivey, Min Win, not Min the Master, the other Min with the H. And uh, you know, there were some there's some real crushers, Sammy Farah. Yeah. You know, and there were some real crushers, and then there were just some people that no one knew. And I was kind of the the young new kid, but people knew that I you know that I could play because I, I was aggressive and I had good card sense and I was there. But no one really had a lot of faith in in Chris Moneymaker's game. I gotta, I gotta tell you, I think I, I think even Moneymaker was pretty surprised that he won. Honestly, I, and looking back on it, I mean, it was it was just crazy how how he uh, how he did it. You know. It, the, the the hand against me he he really he really just let it all ride and he he showed a lot of heart so he has pocket threes uh, in the cutoff I am in the hijack with uh, uh, king queen offsuit we don't call it that by the way we we didn't have hijack and cutoff back then so everyone folds to me I make it three x and uh, he makes the call everyone else folds its heads up the flop comes out nine four two rainbow. I've got king queen. He's got pocket threes, and I look over, and he's got. Uh, you know, I, I've got him covered. I think I started the hand with about one point two million. I think he had maybe nine hundred thousand. Uh, and he just he didn't seem like he hit. I really thought that he probably had over cards. If he had over cards, it was probably something like an ace jack, ace ten, uh, or a pocket pair. And if he had a pocket pair, it was going to be something like sevens. Maybe uh, sixes or fives, and so I thought about what I was going to do, and I was like, "Well, I think that if I fire out here, he's not going to uh, give up. I think he's going to decide that he's ahead, even though he missed. But if I go for a check raise, I think that he's going to think that I'm trying to uh, suck him in." And so uh, I checked. He fired out. I was sure he was going to fold. I just go right over the top of him. And I go all in because he'd kind of overbet the pot, and he just wanted the hand to end. But it wasn't and, a bad move because it, when when you check to someone like that, they assume you have over cards, so then they're going to fire some kind of pocket pair, and then you check raise them and go, "Oh, I can't believe I fell for this." Okay, he must have something big. I'm going to I'm going to lay down my threes. That's that's what most people would do there. I mean, that's that's kind of what I thought he was going to do. I I put him on what he had, and I thought I thought that here's this. You know, working accountant from the middle of Tennessee, the you know who's who's looking at you know the the next the next pay jump is like twenty grand. You get to the final table, you're looking at I, I think two three hundred thousand dollars. You get into the top four, we're talking about life changing money. You know, if he get if he gets fifth or sixth place, he can probably pay off his mortgage. If he gets out right now, he's going to be going home. Explaining to everybody for the rest of his life why he went home with pocket threes again when, when Dutch had ace nine. What made him think his threes were going to be good? And I just thought, yeah, there's no way he's going to call. He's not going to find the call here. He's going to fold. He's going to save it for another day. He's going to do what everybody else did back then in poker: survive. Everybody else back then, that was the thing. You know, you just need to survive. Poker tournaments is all about survival. You can't win it till you, your head's up. You get back there. And, and now we know that that's just like the worst poker tournament advice you can possibly come up with. Back then I knew it. 
you know, I had, I, I, you know, I had enough poker experience at that point that I knew that poker tournaments is not about survival. It's about accumulation. It's about chip, chip accumulation, period. And so, he, you know, no one else was playing that way. Everybody else was just playing to, to money up and money up and money up. And I assumed he would, too, especially given where he was coming from and what he was going back to. The stakes just felt so high. And I was also kind of in this feeling that nothing could go wrong. You know, there was a, uh, there was, it felt like I was living a dream. It felt like, it, it, it felt, you know, it, it felt very solipsistic. Like everything was lining up and it was like I was willing it, you know. And I, part of me just really felt like there was no way that I was not going to win. I thought that, yeah, my favorite movie poker movie is Mississippi Grind. And without giving too much away, there's a scene in there where two players look at each other and say, we can't lose. We can't lose. And that feeling, you know, just gave me so much confidence. I I was like, even if even if he calls, I'm going to win the hand. You know, I make, I, shove, I, I've got this. He does call. He turns over his pocket threes, and I turn over my king-queen. And I'm like, okay, well... Here comes the king, and it didn't. And I was like, here comes the queen, and it didn't. I just went out of your free roll with uh, with pocket aces against a five-card outer, you know. Um, if that would have happened then, in 2003, Chris Moneymaker goes back into ten- you know, to Tennessee, coming in 14th place in the World Series of Poker main event. I go to the final table. David Singer goes to the final table you know, Jason Lester's there, and Sammy Farr is there, and Phil Ivey wins the main event. And how does poker change? What happens when Sammy Farrow wins the main event, or when Dutch Boyd wins the main event? Your life is different, Druff. Yeah, I know. You know a lot every, of change, everybody you know. who's listening, their life is different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? that's what I was saying. It could have, it, it altered poker history uh, very possibly. So, yeah, that's that's why I brought it up, and I thought that was a pretty. Uh, Big moment, not just for you personally, but for, for everybody, in, everybody in poker, because uh, Chris Moneymaker, uh, he uh, he made a, a pretty big call there. And even if he folds, even if you do successfully get him to fold, even though he's not out of the tournament, he doesn't uh, he doesn't double up off of you there. So he has a lot fewer chips and thing. It's not impossible he would have won, but his chance of winning at that point is a lot smaller than it ended up being after after he won that hand by calling uh, but- and winning. Yeah, I'm going to stop you right there. If he would have folded, he would never have won. The reason he won was because because he was going for it all. You know, at that point, he decided he looked into you know his his gut and he said, "This is it, Chris. This this is your time. If you don't take this opportunity, you're never you're always going to just be an accountant in Tennessee. But if you take this shot and it plays out, you're going to be a champion. You're going to be famous." He took it. And that win, he was right. He made the right read, and he made the right call. And that gave him the confidence to bluff Sammy Farah out. You know, it, it gave him the confidence to make a bonehead move against Ivy and then somehow suck out. And it's just like he soared to first place. And then I think it was years before he <laughs> won another tournament. You know, I think he spent the next ten years trying to to get any sort of you know street cred, but it didn't matter because when when it came to you know the average Joe, 
they believe what they see on TV. And Chris Moneymaker was the best poker player in the world. Yeah, it was like funny. I, I heard people talking about that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Like people who didn't know, they say, "Do you know Chris Moneymaker? Is he really good?" Like I had people ask me that when they heard I was playing poker, yeah. and then I had to like sometimes I just go, oh, "Yeah, I know him," or so, or or I just. Sometimes I try to explain, but then I, I got tired of explaining the story to everybody who didn't know. So anyway, uh, I want to quickly say that we have another person on here now. He's back from uh, a good meal. Uh, vintage one, you're here, correct? Oh, he might be. What's going on, oh, guys? Here we are. I, thought, I was afraid we may have muted him, but he's here. Okay. Hey, what's good up, Josh? Long time, my man. It's good to hear from you, Vintage. You too, buddy. Hey, man, this interview was great. I knew you needed to get on the show. Well, I it mean, was. We're still doing everyone it. Everyone out there listening, Dutch's book is amazing. <laughs> Go out, buy it. I, I and and there, I, I have no skin in this race, but the book is a fast, easy, amazing read, and and, and it touches on everything he's talking about right now, Dutch. Good to talk to you, buddy. And now that you, now Thanks you for having me on the show, Vintage. And, and guys, I just want to let you know, the book is not a downer. So far, I feel like this whole interview has just been a downer. <laughs> it is kind of a downer. Beat after beat I, after I, didn't, I didn't mean to do that, but it, it, <laughs> no, it kind no, of no, is so far. It's really an amazing book. It's a page turner. You'll sit down, you'll fire through it in one, two sittings, and it's amazing. And if and as we all love poker the way we do, it is Unbelievable. Well, it's, we're, we're going to ask him shortly about something that was mentioned in the book. So, uh, and by the way, the, the book, I was, when he announced he was going to do the book and then he took some Kickstarter donations, I, I never thought Dutch was trying to scam anyone. I knew he, when he put out the Kickstarter donation thing that I knew he was, he was really intending to make the book. But when it started dragging on for a long time, I thought, oh, this is just like, I, I didn't think he meant bad but i thought that he just was procrastinating it was just never going to happen and people were eventually going to be really pissed especially be, especially because like i gave updates on the show about it I'm like oh look here, here's some uh, here's some comments on dutch's kickstarter page and we play the laugh soundtrack uh i, I really i didn't think it, i didn't think it was going to come out and then bang it comes out and then i'm like okay well it's come out but i wonder if he just rushed it into a piece of crap but then to my surprise all these people including some who previously didn't like dutch very much said well, I really enjoyed that. Well, wow, it was a very good book. Well, wow, I didn't expect how well, good see, that would be. that's the whole thing because, I mean, I was with the show here while that was all going on, and I had a relationship with Dutch at the time too, and I knew that it was just all misinformation and, and people talking about things that they didn't know, and, and rightfully so. I mean, you can keep talking about a certain thing. People start to believe it, and it was just a perfect time for people to really listen to the real story. You know, and, and, and don't fault someone for really trying to fire up, uh, tr try to get up on life and, and start a poker site and maybe be a little not understand how it all works. And, you know, you can't fault someone for doing that. And it was an honest effort. And okay, so I mean, I really respect what Dutch did. So, so let's vintage. I appreciate you saying that. I, I do want to scale it back just a little bit, and I, I I don't want to escape or shirk responsibility for Poker Spot, because when you look back, a lot of people got hurt off that site. There were a lot of people who had made money on the site that couldn't cash it out. There were people who had deposited money and lost it with, and they would never have had the opportunity to cash it out if they had won. And if it weren't for my own, you know, inexperience and you know, hubris and ego and just in, in basic incompetence, you know, people would have been better off. It would have been better off if I hadn't done it. And, and when I look back, why did I try to, you know, make this site? It really was just greed. I, I thought, you know, we're going to be billionaires if this works out. 
Um, but I do. But that, I but do that say, was the web back then too, Dutch. Sorry yeah, to interrupt. Yeah, it, it was timing, worst possible timing. Right? I mean, and everybody going in, putting money on the web for a poker site then, how, you know, they were taking a risk. And if they weren't, then they were, you know. Yeah, but I, I will say so. this. You know, I, 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 will, I will say that it was honest mistakes and that I didn't benefit from it. And in, in fact, I, I took not only, you know, not only reputation hits that would follow me forever and continue to follow me to this day. Uh, you know, I basically lost all the money that we started with, which came from family money. You know, it was, you know, my mom and my stepdad's money started that site. And, you know, I, I spent years trying to pay that back. Um, and, and so I, I will say that like, it, they were honest mistakes and, you know, it, it was very much an experience and I'll take my teenage, fuck ups and put them against anybody else's teenage uh you know uh mistakes any day oh well you you might have to run for your money over here dutch (laughs) (laughs) okay so i want i want to talk about the the crew which then started after this so the the crew was uh a group that uh that dutch started with uh with other young uh poker pros that that were having some success at the time Uh, one more thing i want to say though before i move on is for anybody who was affected by Poker Spot, and there were there were probably about a thousand people that were actually affected by that. I, you know, I, I've I've made my apologies. I'll you know I, I'll, I'll never stop making apologies for it, and I would apologize to them personally. I apologize, but I also feel the pain, not from Poker Spot, but I was also the victim of many many similar shutdowns. Uh, for way, you know, for way more money. When full tilt poker went down, uh, I had a lot of money at stake that I never got back because I was a full tilt affiliate. I had built a, a whole affiliate deal with them that um, pretty much, you know, was going to pay for my retirement. And overnight, it collapsed and was sold to Poker Stars. They never made good on those affiliate deals. They just took the players. Um, so I feel. I, you know, I feel the pain of being on the other end of of a site just crumbling and leaving the players holding the bag. I mean, I, I feel like karma bit me there. And then fast forward, I, I was also one of the people who got ripped off by Epic Poker League. So when Epic Poker League right, had the million-dollar right. free roll, I was one of the players who you know qualified for that free roll. There's 27 of us who are all, you know, waiting for our shot at a million dollars. This was not going to be something that I was just going to let ride because by that point I realized a forty thousand dollars seat, you can sell, you know, you can piece that out. So, sure. you know, there was, you know, there was forty thousand dollars out of my pocket going to, you know, Pollock and Annie Duke, and uh, <laughs> it, and I'll tell you, you know, having been the victim of full tilt and having been the victim of um, you know, Epic and a couple of other sites that just shut down and, you know, kept the money. Uh, I, I could feel the pain. And I also know, though, that more often than not, there, more often than not, <laughs> they started with good intentions. And somehow things just blew up. I don't think that, I don't think that Chris Ferguson, you know, would if he could go back and and not do full tilt? I, I guarantee you he would. 
Well, you know, yeah, I, I want to. If Andy yes, Duke I, could go back and and not do, you know, Epic or not, you know, not promote Ultimate Bet. Oh my gosh, Ultimate Bet. <laughs> well, yeah. look, I, I've oh, said well, I'm I said not before, sure she wouldn't do it. Yeah, Andy. Who knows with Andy? But I, <laughs> I, I've said before that most of these don't begin as scams. Most of these begin. Uh, trying to be a serious business that's not going to cheat anybody. The problem is once things start to not go as expected, what they do, and 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 you do have to judge them from that point. There's there's you, you do have to judge the original intent, of course. If someone's originally starting off, I'm just going to rip everybody off. That's that's the worst of the bunch. But then there's also what do you do once things uh, go wrong, and that has to be judged as well. So anyway, let's let's get though to the uh, the, right. the crew. Uh, so so explain your your thinking when you started the crew. I mean, the thing we're going to have to speed this part up because uh, we're never going to be able to get to the last, you know, the last week. <laughs> but <laughs> no, we crew, if, you know, going back to the, uh, you know, the, the beginning of, of televised poker, the crew was basically just going to be these, uh, you know, a, a, the boy band of poker. And when I when I cashed twelfth place, I had eighty grand. I had a couple of friends uh, that I had met there in Vegas that I knew had real raw talent, and we. We moved to L.A. and started trying to take over the poker world. We kind of did, too. You know, looking back on it, uh, the crew consisted of myself, and I've won three bracelets now, uh, Scott Fishman, who the very next year went out and won two bracelets, Brett Youngblood, which won, uh, he won an Omaha High Low bracelet, Joe Bartholdi, who won the WPT Championship event, which he was. He still kind of is. And uh, my brother, uh, David Smythe, and uh, Tony Lazar. Tony Lazar is uh, pretty successful out in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, the idea was, look, you're going to be able to capture a lot more attention if you do it as a group than if you try to go it out, you know, if you try to do it yourself. We kind of looked at poker as this is going to be a spectator sport. There's going to be endorsements coming. It's going to be, you know, Nike's going to want to put a, a oh, yeah. swoosh on people, and you've got all the online poker sites that are just throwing money at the, uh, you know, at, at anybody who could, you know, who had any sort of name recognition. You know, Mike Carroll was the was the, <laughs> you know, the the, the big, the, the, you know, was getting a big big dollar sponsorship deals. Mike Sexton, how much money did he get? You know, and so I, I kind of looked at this and thought, this is this is kind of our time. We can parlay this, you know, th- this bit of 2003 World Series of Poker exposure that I got, and we can kind of make something big. Uh, we can develop together. We're going to be better if we, you know, kind of come together and try to figure this game out together. And we're going to be able to take over the poker world and make sure that all of us have a lot of exposure and get uh, get the marketing money, which I always kind of felt was going to outweigh the actual money uh, being won. You know, you look at any any sport, and that's just the way it is. You 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 you're supposed to make more money uh, with the title of sponsorship than you do with the golf purse, right? Oh, and, and they bought into it, Dutch, that first year after your your deep run in the main. They really bought into it. They started covering the crew. They did, and it 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 helped too that we won three bracelets the very next year. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we all had final tables, and we were all just crushing because no one knew what they were doing. You know, nobody knew that you know you could three bet. Yeah, you know, that, that uh, three bet meant aces or kings, period. And if you four bet, you better fold those queens. Oh yeah, and that's just the, that's just how the game was, and no one knew anything about bet sizing. No one knew any of this stuff. And we, you know, for a full year, we we just started practicing and practicing and practicing on stars. So we got really good. 
you know, and then uh, and comparatively, you know, it, it, when we com, you know you compare the crew to you know a group like Shibit Halabala's, uh, you know, or Fedor Holtz's guys, the right, Germans, right. Or whatever, you know, we don't really compare. You know, and it, oh, really... I don't know. I mean, against ship and hollow ballers, I think you guys compare. Well, if you look at how much money has been well, won money, yeah, you know, between stuff, tournaments and cash sure. games, we don't even know the candle to Robo and Druff money. Okay, but yeah, they, so... they they never popped like you guys did. At least. Uh... Uh, on ESPN and hey, stuff. Marketing wise, we won. Yeah, it was it was it was, it was a very good marketing. We were in, idea, I'll give we that. were in Rolling Stone, man. Can oh you yeah, name, you guys. Can were you name it. another <laughs> another For poker sure. player who got into the you know got it got four or five pages in Rolling Stone oh, yeah. right next to Dave Matthews. It was cool, sure, so cool. Exactly. <laughs> so so I you know, know that I know the the crew. Uh, some of them had ended up uh, like many poker players who were especially young poker players at the time. Uh, some of them ended up uh, going bust and. Uh, um, of that crew, how many of them are you even still in contact with? I know it's been a lot of years; it's been like sixteen years since you founded it. But uh, how many of them are you still friends with today? <laughs> I, you know what, Druff? It's it's, it's kind of like uh, you know you 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 build an identity and history with somebody, and friendship kind of takes a back seat. You know, I I, I I I'm sure anybody our age can relate to this. That you know, you, you you have friends that you enjoy being with and then you have people that you can't stand but they just happen to be part of who you are and people will always ask you hey how is that person doing and you're like i haven't talked to him in five years but you also know that like he's getting the same question well i get that i get you know who i get that i get it with brian mycon who i haven't been friends with in nine years and we had a big falling out but uh people still ask me oh how's mycon doing i go mycon is the perfect example of this because are, if someone was, is going to say to you, Druff, are you friends with MyCon? I think the right answer is, well, I'm not friends right now. <laughs> well, no, my my answer is no, not anymore, is what I say. And then I say I don't, I don't really know what he's up to now, and we don't talk, and we Let's haven't see. talked in nine You'll years. See. But the fact is, when people talk about MyCon, they talk about Druff and Donkdown, and when people talk about Druff, they talk about MyCon and Donkdown, and that's just how it's always going to be. And who knows what the future is going to going to hold? Right now, I can say that I haven't talked to Scott since 2013, and he's you know we had a falling out, and he's blocked, and I'm blocked, and for a long time I didn't talk to Youngblood, but we got over our uh, ba- you know we got over our bad blood, and now we're uh, we're we're friends on Facebook, and you know hang out maybe once a year when we're at the World Series. Still talk to my brother. Yeah, uh, talk to my brother. Joe Bartholdi, uh, we're, we're kind of on bad terms right now, but uh, I see him a lot because he plays the cash games that I was dealing at the win. Oh. And uh, that, was, that was kind of frustrating. That must have been fun. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, 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 uh, that, wouldn't, that probably wasn't a happy moment for you to see him come in and play at the, the table you're dealing with. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I won't go too much into into details. Yeah, but no, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to tell us about uh, the, whatever happened with them, and uh, you know, and people sometimes ask me about the situation with Mycom. Some of it was public, so I don't mind talking about that uh, to people. I will, but I, but I, I don't tell them. Every, you, I don't tell when them. When you everything. feel in poker like somebody owes you money, and you see them playing a game bigger than you're playing, oh, God. that's frustrating. Yeah. What's even more frustrating is when you're dealing that game. Yes. Oh, God. oh yes. Oh, God. Yes. That that is a big problem. <laughs> that, that is a big problem. I I can understand how you feel there. Okay. So uh, so moving on, I want to ask you about something that uh, 
people don't talk to you as much about it. At least I don't think so. Uh, I was very fascinated by a, a short excerpt in your book about uh, a girl who nobody knew at the time who, yeah. mess- who messaged you. And uh, who wanted? To- I'm gonna I'm gonna just stop you right there. I'd rather not talk about it. Oh, you don't want to talk if, about it? Okay, it was in your was, book. I thought you were talking about. Thing, it. Druff, that if there was one thing that I wish that I could just go back and and take erase. out of the book. Oh, okay, race. I guess that's that fair. Be, I, th- I thought if it's in the, the book, chapter. I thought if it's in the book, I could talk about it. But okay, I, I've I've talked I, about I, it before on this show. But if you won't talk about it, that's I, fine. I'm sorry. I just feel like it's unfair, and I don't want. I don't want to talk about okay. it. Okay, I can, I can understand that. I, I can understand, and uh, yeah, I guess it's uh, some incentive for people to buy Dutch's book if you want to hear the story or read the story. I was very fascinated by that story. But uh, uh, anyway, look, let's, we'll skip past that one. Uh, I've got a lot of regrets, Druff, in my life, and that, that's that's just another one of them. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, I wish I could go back and <laughs> erase that whole chapter out of the book and erase that whole chapter out of my life. So it's this. Well, it's I don't know. The story itself didn't sound bad. Maybe you don't want it in the book anymore. But the, you know, the the incident itself, I I didn't see as something all that regrettable. But okay, yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's the way that goes. So. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'll tell you something that I got to experience. I'm not going to go into the whole story, but in, in 2018, I got to experience uh, a diff- different than you did, but I got to experience for the first time in my life what uh, a form of mental illness felt like. And I had no experience, no personal experience of that before, but uh, but I did I, I, because of a uh, a physical issue, not because of anything that happened to me, but I got a very, very severe form of anxiety and depression that came all of a sudden and and it was very, very it, it really just broke my brain everything was 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 i couldn't perceive anything correctly i could outwardly act normal and i could write normally but uh i i the, my perception of everything was so off and uh um every day was hell until i i got out of that fortunately after about uh two months of it i, I finally got to improve uh but uh because of that, I got some understanding, in just in general, of what uh, mental, mental illness was like, even forms of the mental illness that I didn't experience myself. And I definitely understand now very well what uh, anxiety and depression felt like, which before I had no idea, and you can't really know until you, you have it. So I know you had some, uh, some mental illness. You said that uh, when uh, the, the first incident was when uh, the poker spot thing was, was breaking down. And uh, but but I I, got, I I met you in person in the mid two thousands. I don't remember exactly what year, maybe two thousand six or something. But I, when I met you, the first time, I I thought, uh, like I thought this this Dutch guy is like very frantic and very difficult to deal with. Like it, it was like uh, it, it seemed like kind of stressful to be around you. And then a few years later, when I saw you, it was like a different person. And and I had been told that. The difference was that you were on meds when I went later on, and uh, and then you were much more pleasant to be around. And then there was it was like it was really like a different person. So <laughs> so uh, so um, obviously that was very helpful. And here on this interview, you're acting very normal, and there's like 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 and that's what I've seen of you for a long time. Like I haven't seen like uh, like the crazy version of Dutch in, in quite some time, and I. I Maybe it's happening behind closed doors, but I, it, it might be gone. Like I haven't uh, – that's just I haven't seen that of you or heard that of you in, in a very long time. So what – do you think this was something that was part of you or, or because of your experiences that, that kind of brought it on or both? And, and then uh, um, what 
led you eventually to to get on medication and and take care of the problem? Uh, yeah, I would say sure. It, it definitely was part of me. I think you know there, there's a lot of things that tr- can trigger uh, mental illness. And, uh, in particular, my, my, my special brand of it, uh, of, of mania, there's a lot of things that can trigger it. And, um, as I've gotten older, I've definitely, uh, gotten better at, uh, managing those triggers, staying away from certain, uh, you know, certain things that lead down that path. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm. I haven't been medicated for about twelve years now. Oh, really? I, I thought. I thought. I thought that was like a permanent thing. So you. Well, that's that's it, that's more impressive that you've you've beaten this mostly without medication uh, since then. I mean, I, I always have to worry about it. You know, I always have to worry about it slipping back. And there was one time in the last twelve years where it was it was slipping back enough where uh, I actually did go out and talk to a psychiatrist and uh, got back on some meds for a short time. It's actually kind of a funny story if you want to hear. Yeah, go ahead. Was that during the Twitch time, Dutch? Yes, you probably yeah. saw me on yeah, that. Yeah, that yeah, one. yeah. We, 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 we. <laughs> Everybody in that stream knew that, that things were going wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you the story, and then I'll, I'll give your listeners some advice for how they might be able to deal with mental illness themselves. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, and then I'm going to have to c- kind of cut it because uh, it's. I'm, I'm starting to get dirty looks from, uh, from oh, okay. Michelle. So, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I know hey. there's some stuff going on recently that I want that I know you want to talk about. I didn't want to cut that off. But uh, Let me tell, tell you this Michelle story. I we'll, said hi, Dutch, by the we'll, way, when you're done. I will. I will. She, she, she'll like to hear that. So um, I, I, I started slipping into uh, mania, I guess, about I guess about four or five years ago. And it was it had been the first time when I started um, when I started dating uh, my my partner right now michelle uh i had slipped into a manic episode right away so she had kind of seen me go off the deep end and and i thought that was probably going to be the end of it everyone kind of did but she stuck with me and she has she's been kind of a godsend because i I use that word very loosely i don't believe in god but uh she's been a godsend in that she's always there as someone I can trust to help me figure out whether I actually do need to be on medication, whether I do need to, to get help. And she's always there to say, listen, you need to go to sleep. She's always there to tell me, don't do drugs. Um, and, you know, slow down. And so for me, with, with mania, the triggers were always uh, certain types of drugs, any sort of upper I would always start with racing thoughts and lack of sleep. Uh, sativa, the uh, the strain of you know the weed that the cerebral strain, would you know start getting me thinking about you know big questions and um, you know simulation theory and That's things wild. like Sleeping Beauty problem. And all of a sudden, I'm you know going on two three days of no sleep, and then uh, you know without sleep, you start going down a path of psychosis. So, you know, for me, the, the triggers have always been making sure to get plenty of sleep. If you can't sleep, you got to, you got to, you know, do something about it. Sleepy time tea or, you know, uh, melatonin. Um, staying away from any sort of uppers or street drugs. You know, a lot of times I would, I would think, okay, well, a joint's going to just chill me out. 
But uh, if you're buying from some rando dealer, you don't really know what they're putting in it. You don't know what strain it is. For me, Indica was always just going to knock me out. But uh, Sativa would just send me right into a spiral. And uh, what else? Thinking too much about uh, you know big projects or businesses, ideas or relationships or things I was going to do, making plans, all that is just like slow down. So anyway, I was actually on stream vintage uh, when I started slipping through. Michelle told me she she said you need to see somebody. You are going back into mania. I think you're probably two three days away from actually having to get admitted. So we're going to take you down. How many how many years ago was this? It was probably 2016. Okay. Somehow I didn't hear about that. If I did, well, I forgot. No, no one here well, heard no, about it. No, we didn't make a big deal of it. It was. I thought if it was on Twitch, people, I, I thought if it was on Twitch, maybe people saw it. I know you were doing the Twitch thing a lot, and I thought maybe people would. It's possible people talked about it. I, I forget things. And a, uh, a lot we of people were a pretty tight knit group and, over there. But it was also like you know, it wasn't. It, it hadn't developed to the point where I was, you know, doing that crazy of a thing. It just seemed like oh, he's wired and energetic and kind of acting loopy. So, you know, she she knows me well enough to be able to tell the difference between when I'm normal and when I'm starting to slip. And, you know, I, it doesn't happen often, but when one of the, the first pieces of advice I would tell anybody when they're dealing with mental illness is you need to find people in your life that you can trust and not trust yourself. It's impossible to assess your own mental state. Yep, that's true. When anybody, you know, myself included, and I've seen other people go through uh, the same kind of mental illness that I've gone through, everyone thinks they're not crazy. Nobody thinks while they're going through a mental illness that they are going through it. They think everybody else is either against them or they start getting paranoid. And and paranoia is is a real killer, too, because you don't feel like you can trust anybody and everyone's against you. You know, but you have to f- choose to choose, you know, to trust somebody else's judgment and stop trusting your your own judgment. Such so great advice. When Michelle said, "Look, you need to go talk to somebody. We need to get you on something." So we did. We went and talked to this uh, psychiatrist. He was awesome. He was this guy who written a bunch of sc- uh, screenplays. He had a degree in math. He was really cool. He was in Nevada, and he was like, "Yeah, we can we can get you on uh, a couple of drugs." Here you go. And uh, I was like, this is great. Can you, can you get me a, uh, can you get me, you know, Jason Mercier has a, has a letter from his daughter that says he gets to have a dog at the World Series of Poker. Do you, do you think that you can make me so that I can have my dog at the World Series of Poker? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, no problem here. You take this letter, show it to anybody, and you can say that your dog is your emotional support animal. You never have to pay for, uh, you know, an extra upcharge at a, at a uh, hotel. Don't have to pay Spirit Airlines a hundred bucks for a sixteen dollar flight to have your dog in your lap. And I was like, "This is great," and these drugs make me feel great. That's great. So fast forward, you know, three weeks, and I'm completely back to normal. You know, I didn't have to be hospitalized. I didn't have to sit thirty days in a mental institution with a lot of other people who are just batshit crazy. So that was good. The, the, and that's the other piece of advice I would give, not, not the other. The second piece of advice I would give is the earlier you can catch and curb a descent into mental illness, the better. And so fast forward a year, I'm going on a flight, and I want to take my dog. They're going to charge me $100 to 
I'm like, oh, well, you know, let's, I, I, she's an emotional support animal. Shih Tzu Poodle, you know, she's an emotional support. I don't think, I think this is bullshit. I don't care how crazy you are. You shouldn't be able to bring a dog on a plane. But uh, whatever, you know, that's a, there's a lot of detriments to being crazy. This is a benefit. And they're like, well, it has to be a current letter. And I look and it's expired. The letter's expired, Druff. <laughs> so now I have to call the psychiatrist again. And I do. I call him up. And he doesn't work there anymore. I'm like, why doesn't he work there? It's, we can't say. What do you mean you can't say? Did he die? No, no, we can't say. So I look him up. Where is he working? He's not working anymore. He's in prison. Wow. Because he had a whole bunch of child porn. Oh, And he oh was my. all into the child porn. And... uh he got caught, and he has to go to prison. Mm-mm. And so now, like, I'm looking at this letter, and I'm like, how absurd is this? This is the guy who has to assess whether I'm crazy. <laughs> He's getting, and, and I'm going to go into uh, Spirit Airlines, and they're going to oh, no, sir. I'm going to try to go to the final table of the World Series of Poker. Jack Effel's going to look at me and say, you can't bring that dog in here. I'm going to look at him straight <laughs> in the eye. And they're like, no, I have this letter from a pedophile that says it's okay. <laughs> and he's going to look at it, and he's like, oh, I, I guess so. I, guess, I mean, if it works for Jason, it works for you. Why not? So I really think that having that dog on his lap is why Jason Mercier was able to to win those three bracelets too. Maybe, maybe well, I should what try is that, that marshmallow or something. Yeah, a cute dog. So, so uh, Dutch, I know in in uh, more recent times, uh, I want to congratulate you for two things here. First of all, Drops, you, you, wait, that was the third piece of advice. Is there, a there's an important lesson there? Not, no, no, not to have a dog. It's that everybody is crazy. Everybody, every single person in the world has their own little variation of mental illness because all the brain is is this chemistry that like basically is guiding you to do things and think things and everybody's messed up in their head. You know, half, you know, half of uh, America believes in angels and I've got tons of friends who have multiple bracelets and are incredibly smart who are sure that the moon landing didn't happen. Yeah, you know, Madsen is always going off on Sandy Hook and how 9/11 was an inside job, and you know there's so many people who, you know, are functioning mentally ill. And here we have an example of this guy who was in charge of assessing and helping other people with their mental illness, and then was going home, and you know, jerking into child porn. And it, like this is this is the the world we're in is is a sick world. And everybody's crazy. Most people believe in angels and fairies and think that everything happens for a reason. Okay, but what's the advice, though? You're giving advice, though. This is an assessment. What's the third piece of advice? Third piece of advice is you should not feel damaged to uh, admit that your mental state is, you know, that that everyone's walking around with a mental illness. One of the biggest things that I lived with for years is the feeling of, there's something wrong with me. There's something broken in me. And when you go through a mental illness, there's a stigma that is, isn't there for other things. You know, no one looks at somebody who's suffering from lung cancer and say, well, oh, wow, well, what drugs did he use? You know, no one does that. No one looks at somebody with leukemia and, and is like, well, what did you do? You know, I wouldn't let that guy babysit my kids because he's got leukemia. There's not the stigma in other illnesses, but there's no reason why we should treat a mental illness any different than we should a broken bone. There's no shame in it. There's no shame in looking and seeking help. And there's no shame in, in moving forward because you're not broken. 
Well, yeah, that's, that's good advice. I agree. People should be open with what's happening to them. That's why two years ago I was open with what was going on with me while I could have suppressed it and pretended none of that was, none of that was happening. Uh, I, I wanted I wanted people to know, and I think what you're saying is, is correct there, that uh, people shouldn't be ashamed of it, and a lot of it uh, is actually about uh, brain chemistry, which uh, you can't even control, or, or uh, and even if yeah. it wasn't from, uh, it could even be from experiences you had that uh, that caused uh, permanent problems with you or, or problems that are coming back at the moment. So yeah, people shouldn't be afraid. People should get it treated. They shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. You shouldn't be ashamed. You shouldn't look down on other people who have it. And that, and I especially came to understand that uh, in 2018. Uh, so, so let's so real quick, real quick though, Dr- uh, Dutch, you said something that was really profound a while ago about you should always have someone that you know is going to tell you how it is, like Exomi was. I mean, because you can't trust your own brain. You have to agree with this person and say, look, when I say that you are going off the deep end, that you are turning manic, you have to trust me that I'm telling you the truth and and not fight me on it. And, and to establish this connection that this is how it has to be and for both people to to buy into that that's that's an amazing place to be and and it's got to ha- be so comforting to know that if she says that to you you know that okay I'm not thinking right and that's pretty magical yeah i'm i'm lucky to have m- yeah Michelle is a really <laughs> gorgeous, you know, mental check for me. It doesn't have to be someone like that. It could it could just be somebody that you're willing to, you know, make that assessment for you. A, a, exactly. a parent, a child, a brother or a sister, a neighbor. It could just be someone random that you have no, you know, you know, no real uh, relationship with. The point is that you can't make it yourself. Yeah, that's but true. you have to you have to trust that person. So some rando person saying, "Hey Dutch, I think you're you're flying off the deep end. You're not. You're gonna be like, yeah, right, bro. Okay, cool, and move on. You need someone that you trust as well. Yeah, sure. To so, make that assessment. So, so he, he's mentioned he's mentioning his, his uh, partner here, but uh, we haven't said yet. Some people who follow Dutch may have seen that. Uh, Dutch, you're, you're going to be a father very very soon. That's right. Yeah, less uh, less than uh, <laughs> well, about a month away now. That's Maybe crazy. sooner. If some, someone asked me, uh, "Hey, doesn't he have a kid?" I said, "No, no, his his, uh, his girlfriend's pregnant." He said, "The person said, no, no, I think the kid was born." I said, "No, I don't think so. I think I would have. I think I would have heard about that. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, yeah, I saw I saw on your Twitter when you announced it about the July uh, due date. So congratulations yep. for that. You're actually gonna be, you're going to be about the same age that I was when I had my kid. So, uh, it's a it's a scary time to be bringing a kid into the world, but I'm like, and you're really looking forward to it. It's it's going to be uh, a completely new chapter in life, and I'm uh, you know I feel like I'm I'm prepared to do it. Yes, it was, it was definitely not uh, it, it definitely wasn't an accident. It's definitely something we had planned and thought about and made a decision. And uh, you know I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be really cool. No, it's good. I was hoping you were going to accept a bracelet with them this year. <laughs> I was hoping too. I hope that we even have yeah. a World Series of Poker well, from here on out in October. And, and yeah, and the second the second thing that uh, is that Dutch is now an attorney because even Full though you even, even though you right, <laughs> look because, out, Eric Benzenoken. Yeah. So even even <laughs> though you, even though you finished uh, law school at such a young age, uh, you didn't pass the bar until very recently. 
Isn't that true? Well, I never, yeah, I never took the bar until recently. And, uh, you know, deciding that I was kind of wanting to move forward with a family. And uh, I, I feel like I've kind of taken poker about as far as I can. You know, I feel like I hit the, you know, hit kind of a ceiling as far as I don't think there's that big of a difference between three bracelets and four or four bracelets and five. So at, at this point, it's just all about trying to, you know, add more to the bankroll. But poker really has a low ceiling. You know, when it comes down to it, I will tell you something that I've seen uh, in my 20 years as a professional poker player is every single poker player to a man has less money than you would think they do from poker. Yeah, every single one. The, the ones that seem to be really successful, more often than not, they got their money somewhere else. And you know, I, the, 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 the superstars just aren't doing that well. And you know, I, I would look at my own life and think, you know, I've, I've got three World Series of Poker bracelets, and I should have a lot more to show for it, as far as you know, the the, the bank account, the you know, the the rooms in the house. I don't really have too much, and it's hard. It's not stable. It's really hard. You're you're constantly just facing you know ups and downs and. A, a, when it rains, it pours mentality. Tournament poker is even more so. Yes. Uh, but it, you're always at kind of the mercy of whether the games are going to be there or not. Who knows where, where poker is going to be in 30 years or 20 years or two years. You know, right now everyone's talking about how great poker is online, but that could, that could be a, like a 2006 thing. And I, I, you know, I remember when, when Black Friday happened and everything got shut down and it was like overnight people were making a living and then they weren't. And, you know, it kind of recovered a little bit and people started adjusting and playing more live. But poker is not always going to be there. There is going to be a last hand dealt. Yeah. And when you think about that, who knows when that's going to be? It's pretty important to have backup plans, not be so identified with the game. You don't want to be, you know, my, my hero's coming up. You look at him now and there was this one guy, he had two bracelets to his name. And he had millions of dollars at some point. And I saw him at the Orleans. I was playing 816 stud high low, and he came over asking if he could borrow 100 bucks. Man. And I was like, I'm not going to put you in a game, but I'll, you know what? I'll buy you a sandwich. You know, I'll give you this. Uh, I'll buy you a Subway, and here's 20. Hopefully it'll help. Well, I've known a lot of people like that over time who, who really, they, they had large sums of money at one point yeah. from poker and then it was all gone. And, and then Todd, I go into the bathroom and he's, he's like, I can see him in the reflection at the, at the Orleans. He like reaches into his crotch and pulls out this great big, this big like foil ball and oh, hands God. it to this guy. And I'm like, this guy is just like straight up, you know, dealing drugs at the Orleans. And this, <laughs> this is one of my poker heroes when I was coming oh, up. No. And you look at like a guy like Barry Johnston. This guy won the World Series of Poker main event. I think he has five bracelets. And he's just like, you know, losing and losing at the, at the, the, the smallest stud high low in mixed games in Vegas. And it's just like, this is what happens. This is the retirement plan for poker. Oh, you know, God. They, they it's burn out. It is frightening. And that is not where I want to be. And I was like, why do I make things hard for myself? Now, I have a law degree. And the, the dumbest lawyers out there are still billing out at like 150 an hour. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so, try, so to, try to make 150 an hour in a 510 no limit game. <laughs> so so here, here's a, here's a question for you. Was it difficult to, to study for the bar so many years after law school? It's, it's unusual to have such a big gap in between. 
Yeah, 20 years. Yeah, it was tough. You know, I um, spent about three months uh, just just hunkering down, not leaving the house, and spending every waking moment going through uh, old Barbary books that I found and study material and uh, getting ready for a bar exam. And then I go in, and you know, everybody's two decades younger than me, yeah. and they all look like they're super prepped and prepared. And I didn't know if I was going to make it through, but it did. And it had a real low pass rate, like 52% pass rate. So 48% wow. of people come in, take this three-day test, uh, and then get the news that they're not going to pass. Yeah, and they, see, and they see you walk in, they go, oh, who's this old guy coming here? He's got no shot. And then you end up passing. You, have, you <laughs> yeah. pass and they don't. So, uh, Is it just a pass-fail, or do you get like uh, a specific grade? It is just a pass fail. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So, so okay, and and uh, when when you study for the bar, I, I, someone actually had this question. Uh, an attorney listens to this show. He's he's wondering if your if if your experience in poker informed in any way the way you studied for the bar. Did it influence uh, the, the way that you would study? Because someone who listens to the show who plays poker and also passed the bar told me that for him it did. I don't. I don't really know. I mean, I. I. I don't know how I would have studied if I hadn't played poker. Um, but I, I. I suppose that part of being a successful poker player is first figuring out how to learn. Uh, and so, I, I before I even started studying for the bar, I, I spent three, four days trying to develop a study plan. And I think that's probably a good idea. Is like if you're gonna. If you're going to try to tackle anything, uh, you know, have like a long-term uh, plan of learning something, whether it be like guitar or coding or, you know, passing the bar. You know, the, the first thing that you want to do is come up with the how to learn plan. So, I guess maybe that's something I picked up from poker. Okay, so uh, I, I know your uh, girlfriend or uh, fiance or whatever, whatever she's defined as. I, I know she probably wants you to go soon, but I know there was something you wanted to talk about. I don't know if you have time tonight, but there's something you wanted to talk about regarding uh, some incident involving a, uh, a Vegas casino where you're you're being uh, not treated very fairly. I, I actually had my own story recently, which I told on the show of uh, something with a casino that didn't treat me fairly. But uh, uh, would you like to tell this story? <laughs> Well, I don't, now I remember what you're talking about. I was like, no, casinos have always treated me really fairly. <laughs> now you say you wanted to blow them up, and then uh, I, thought, I thought that was a big reason to come on here. So, No, you know what? I was, it was more of just a, a, um, a, a, re, a reach to try to, get, try to get advantage players to maybe count me on their, uh, on their list of, of attorneys that they could call if they ever get strong-armed out of a casino. You know, you know among advantage players – there aren't a lot of uh, there aren't a lot of like focused attorneys who who will uh, be able to understand when you explain to them uh, yeah explain to them how you got ripped off of a casino or how you got backed off of a casino unfairly or uh, and and you know with 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 poker you don't really have to worry about this but you know like a lot of poker players. Uh, yeah, I've, I've also looked at some other games, advantage play games, and uh, you know, right now there's a lot of opportunities in machine games that people don't really know. You know, I, I can't believe how many people just 
you know, don't believe me when I say, yes, there are people in Vegas making their living playing slot machines. Yeah, I, I know a lot of them. I've gotten involved in that community as well. I know a well. few of them too. Yeah, so, so and, I, and, and I've gotten involved in that community, so I, I, I know them, so he's correct. There are so many games where, you know, the, the, the smart gambler will look at it and say, well, that's unbeatable. But then the pro gambler knows that it is beat. It is beatable. And this goes, you know, there's very few games that aren't beatable in some form, um, and you would never think it, you know. You, but craps is a perfect example of this. You can't beat craps. Turns out you can. Turns out you can. Roulette. You can't beat roulette. Well, it turns out you can. And all these little games, you know, all these little games, you can always beat the marketing department of a casino. You know, that's just like always. You know, if you can't figure out a way to uh, to beat a a, a, cra- a craps game, you can figure out a way to beat the marketing department that's trying to get you to play it. Yeah. So, you know, as an advantage player, uh, you know, I've I've had a lot of adventures that I was, you know, maybe we'll, I'll have to come on wearing a different hat and we'll talk about some <laughs> of the specifics. But, uh, you know, one thing I would say is I'm sure that you have a lot of listeners, uh, Druff, that have been in the situation where you get backed off. Or you're sitting here playing a slot machine or uh, you know a video poker machine, and all of a sudden you're surrounded by four or five guys in coats demanding to see uh, <laughs> demanding to see your ID, and uh, you know it's it's pretty uncomfortable. And you know because you know one thing I would say is I, I would you know we're, we're not talking about cheating here. No, you know that's that's something that I would never do. Is I would never go into a, a, a casino and. And even you know sometimes even things that like advantage players consider just being you know, playing with an advantage like edge sorting, I think that's probably you know a, a, a little too far when it comes to you know what I would feel comfortable doing. Uh, but when a casino opens up their their doors and says come play this game and you sit down and play the game exactly how they're telling you to play it, and then they try to kick you out. Uh, you know, I think some of the advantage players who who probably know some of these, you know, some of the trade craft that we're talking about, uh, understand all too well what I'm ta- you know what I'm saying. And so, you know, there's just not a lot of gaming attorneys out there who would have the backs of advantage players or poker players, and would be able to even have an intelligent conversation with them about what what do you mean? You know, most attorneys don't really know the difference between video poker and and poker. Yeah, and when when you tell somebody at a at a at a party, oh yeah, I'm a professional poker player, and they look at you and say, well, do you count cards? Oh yeah, my brother-in-law counts cards. It's like no, he, no, he doesn't, man. Anytime, oh yeah, I count cards. So yeah, what count system do you use? You know, I just keep track of the uh, I just keep track of the aces. Like, Dude, <laughs> shut up. You know, so if, if you know if any of your listeners are advantage players and are ever in a situation where, you know, they're getting the the short end of the stick from a casino, they get back ruined or, you know, they get money held for for no reason. Uh, now I'm actually in a position where I have a little bit of power to do something about it. And that was another thing about poker is the, the money's not there, the power's not there. You know, a little bit of fame and a lot of freedom and fun. But I, I realized, you know, when I was getting you know, backed off from one of the casino, you know, one of the casinos because I had actually worked at uh, at Win and Bellagio as a poker dealer for about a year uh, at both places, and I really enjoyed it. But um, I ended up going and playing some slot machines one night over at uh, Park MGM. It was a Wheel of Fortune game that just like 
just dumps money on you if you if you know if, if you know that the know the secret you know and uh i'm I'm playing it exactly as it was intended to be played you know just walk up sit down put money in a slot machine and all of a sudden getting surrounded by these guys and treating you like you're a criminal and yeah. i thought that you know working within the whole mgm system as an employee that maybe you know that treat me a little differently no, instead they, they start threatening me telling gonna, me how they're going to get me fired i was going to say it's probably even more harsh on you being an employee turns out it was and i was like well, what exactly did i do wrong here he's like you know what you did he's like no i want you to tell me because <laughs> i don't think because i don't think you know. <laughs> you know i'm looking at this guy sitting here making 14 dollars an hour with a red coat at three in the morning i'm like <laughs> what do you think i did you know, like if, because if you if you know how I'm winning, you'd be doing it too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I found with these guys, this has happened to me a number of times in a number of ways, and I I, I found when this happens, I because you're never going to convince them that you're right. I just I, I have like the minimal contact, and I give them like the least possible excuse to escalate it. I just uh, um, I I just I don't say much, and uh, and that's it. They they kick me out, whatever it is, then I I just leave. And uh, because I, I, when this happens, I think uh, no matter what I say, it's going to make no impact. So I just want to get out of this right now as uh, easily as possible and then think what to do after that. So that's uh, that's the way I've always dealt with it. Well, Druff, if you ever get into a situation where you feel like they cross the line so much that you actually have a cause of action, you can you have somebody who can speak your language, sit down, and you can tell me what happened, and we can go from there. Yeah, okay. And any of the listeners here – Remember that. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's right. Yes, Dutch is actually he's actually an, an attorney now, a licensed attorney in in the state of Nevada, and uh, and yeah, he may have been sponsor to the poker fraud alert show. <laughs> well, he did get twenty five. He did get twenty five dollars <laughs> tonight, not to me, but but to the free roll. Because so, Dutch, we have a uh, lawyer that does a uh, commercial, the only commercial on this uh, show. He, he what, what is he a uh, probate lawyer or something? Well, no, he 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 does uh, arbitration and mediation, but oh, he also he also does he does other things as well. He does a number of uh, he practices in a number of areas and uh, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, Dutch, uh, that's it's a good offer to the listeners here, and they can definitely uh, consider this. And and he is right that you if you are going to hire an attorney to represent you in a situation like this, it is much better to have one who understands all of the. Uh, intricacies of the advantage play world or of the casino world because if you have to start explaining this to them where they barely know anything it's it's yeah. it's going to be oh, very tough and, 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 and not only yeah. that not only that you'd be talking to somebody who's very sympathetic because i've been in your shoes and right. i know how it feels so just keep that in mind i am an, i am a practicing attorney now trying to you know trying to support myself that way and keep poker as a very fun and rewarding hobby and hopefully I'll be playing the World Series of Poker soon, and we'll be uh, winning more bracelets in October. Are, are you no, at all? Are right. you worried? Are you worried at all about the coronavirus? Uh, like, if it comes back in October and it's, there's no cure or, uh, or or vaccine available, will you play? Are you are you worried at all? Uh, yeah, I, I kind of make that decision day by day, and we're just going to try to look at all the data they have. I mean, I'm less worried now when I look at the, the numbers for my age bracket, but, yeah. uh, I'm, I am, you know, I've got some, some people who are at pretty high risk that I, uh, am exposed to, you know, and I, I would really hate to go and try to win a bracelet and then come back and kill my mother. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly so, where I'm right. at. Well, and you're, well, vintage one, he's in more of a, a risk area than you are Dutch. You're, you're, since you're a little younger, you're, uh, you're 
38, right? Uh, I'm, I'm turning 40 this 30, year. 39. Okay, so 30, it's kind of a funny age for the coronavirus, 39, because it's kind of right in between the like under 35 people who tend to get it very mildly and the over 45 people who tend to get uh, – don't die that much near 45 to 55, but, uh, but tend to get severe symptoms fairly often. You're kind of in that middle range where it can kind of be either one. So, so I, I I can understand that where it's like yeah. it's kind of hard for hey, you let, to figure out. Let me ask Dutch a quick question. I heard that they were potentially going to do an invite only. They were thinking about for in October, and and I if it is that. an invite only to the World Series, do you think that you'd be on the list of invites? Well, it depends <laughs> how big it is. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, there's there's not that many people with with three bracelets. Well, I was gonna say uh, if, right. it's based, exactly. if it's based on bracelets, he gets it for sure. If you know, if it's invite only and it's based on bracelets, even I'd probably get invited. But uh, um, but yeah, I, I would I would think he, I would think I would think he probably would be. I haven't heard about the invite only though. But uh, this is oh, the yeah, first I've heard about it too. So they, I. They, I Oh, know. you've heard about it also? No, yeah. he hasn't they, heard about it. I haven't oh, heard about haven't. it. They had Maury Escandari on some podcasts, and he was talking about that was a potential thing they may do. Oh. Oh. I, I don't I don't think that's very smart. But <laughs> No, I, I don't either, but I, they're just trying to keep it alive. I, I, and, I don't understand why anybody would show up if all they were doing was playing against other bracelet winners. Oh, right. There, there actually was an event, like a bracelet winners only event recently, and I was like, why would I play that? I don't want to play against another like I all was the same way. I, I didn't crushed. play it. Yeah. I looked at it, and I was like, what? I'm, I'm not negative EV. <laughs> I actually think that it'd probably be easier to win an open event with two or three times as many players. It would be. You know? Yes, so, I know. I, th- I looked at that. I go, that's the toughest possible field you can have. Why? I, I well, they think that. it cuts down the variance of all the uh, 50,000. You know, I'll tell you, I think, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I mean, I've, I've hung with tough competition. The Epic Poker League was just like that, where it was just crushers everywhere you looked. And I, you know, final tabled that event and was able to qualify for that free roll. But at the same time, it's, that was not fun for me. It, right. And it's not a relaxing thing. It's no, not, not, I didn't think all. it was positive EV. And I do think that a lot of people, you know, we're kind of in this weird spot in poker where people are just buying bracelets. Yes. Because you know, you know, at some point it really is just about volume. And, for sure. For sure. And, and the number of events you can play and the number of entrants in those events. And there are plenty of people who I'm sure are playing you know, every 10K and, you know, every single 10K they're playing has 150 events and they've played 300 of them and finally won a bracelet. And it's like, oh, this guy's a champion. Well, right. You know, and and I, I, I criticize something further with this. Not only do people just hammer every possible event they can, but they enter late, as late as possible so they don't have to put much time into it. And uh, and, and they've they, got 10 percent of them. And, 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 and they, even if they have 100 percent, it, either way, it's buying the bracelet to where uh, they they enter as late as they can. They they don't care if they bust after two hands because they come in short stack. They come in with with sixty seventy percent of the field gone, and then and then try to luck box into it from there. And to sure. me, that's not what winning a bracelet's about. And uh, and I don't see how you can be proud of yourself. Can, for I, can I just also go and point something out? Like you you bring up a good point about having a small piece of yourself, and I think most pros who are you know putting in a lot of volume definitely piece themselves out. But I, I think that as you actually look at the uh, at, at what the data would say, players actually play better when they're playing on their own money. And a lot of this is kind of a common misconception that I think a lot of amateurs have. And they think that you know if, if I was getting backed, you know, and if I had the opportunity, I'd be playing a lot better. The truth is, you play better on your own money. Uh, and there is some data to back that up. If you actually, um, when I was uh, I was looking at 
I can't remember what the site was. There was a site called uh, I think it was I think it was Chip Me Up, and there was another one. There was another one that was doing. Uh, anyway, point is this: if you look at how people performed in tournaments that they weren't staked in, they outperformed when they were playing on their own money and weren't staked. And it's just kind of one of those inside things that not a lot of people really understand. And you know, you, you definitely start understanding it when you're running a stable because you'll start picking up all these people who have just incredible results at $30 tournaments uh, online. And so you're like, okay, well, let's go ahead and you know put you in more $30 tournaments online, and they don't perform as well. And part of it is survivorship bias, but part of it also is the... The, the, just the, the the fact that the, the common uh, you know perception that people will perform better when they have less stress and skin in the game it's actually the opposite people perform better when they when they have more skin well yeah so. and, and there's two ways this can happen there's, there's you can care too much and you can care too little so there's some people who won't perform as well because they're constantly worried about uh, disappointing the backers and and uh, yep. or if they make a play that they they kind of want to make kind of like what you did with with the king queen against moneymaker they're afraid to do things like that even if they know deep down it's the right move because they're afraid well what if my backer sees that i went out this way it's gonna you know, i'm not going to continue getting backed or i'm going to get a hard time so i'm not going to do it so there's that there's a caring too much and then there's caring too little where they say it's somebody else's money i'm just uh, i'm gonna just play super wild and irresponsibly and, and just try to run up a stack and then there's also the when people get uh, deep in makeup they start trying to only shoot for first or nothing and, and play recklessly there's a lot of different ways it can contribute to it uh when you're not playing on your own money so uh and i've experienced you know i'll i'll i only play tournaments at the world series i'm, I'm mainly a cash player so i i sell to, mainly for fun for the people at Poker Fraud Alert uh, to have a piece of it. I sell uh, about 40% of myself of, of most events. I don't sell the main, but uh, I sell 40% of myself of most events. And uh, I, I do sometimes feel while I'm playing, like, oh, I, in a way, I kind of wish nobody had a piece because I, I I feel responsible when I bust. I feel like I failed everybody when I bust. And sometimes when I'm playing, I'm thinking, well, what if I make this move and I bust here and I look like a fool to everybody or, or everybody's disappointed in me or they think that I should have done better? And like I, that can sometimes enter my head and I go, no, 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 I can't let myself think this way. So I can totally like understand what, what you're saying there. So anyway. Well, Druff, you did go deep in the main this year and none of us had a piece yeah, of that. Piece of that. <laughs> <laughs> so wait a second. Uh, Dutch, I think you may be onto something here. <laughs> so, and the big 52, which I didn't sell because exactly. that was too, sm- it was too small. I didn't want to sell a piece yeah. of, a type of a small event. So, okay. Uh, Dutch. Okay, is- and by the way, Trader Roos, you don't listen to this. You still can back me in October. <laughs> so, so, so Dutch Dutch's book is called my whole situation here, buddy. Dutch's book is called Poker Tilt. You can still uh, it's still on Amazon, right? Yeah, it's still on Amazon. Yeah. You can get it on Kindle too. I think it might be free if you have Kindle Unlimited. And Dutch Dutch, you can contact him on on Twitter. I guess what is it? Uh, Dutch uh, underscore Boyd or just Dutch Boyd with no underscore? Just, yeah, Dutch Boyd no underscore. And uh, I've got a website DutchBoyd dot com, and uh, you can. Always reach out uh, via email, dutch at dutchboyd.com. Oh, okay. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, you guys. I really appreciate well, thank it. thank you, you for coming on. Nice very, very interesting. And, you know, if you'd like to come on again and talk about some other uh, stuff we didn't get to or, or talk about some uh, more modern stuff going on in your life that uh, <laughs> that, that is of concern, you, you're always welcome to come back here, and thank you for coming on the show. And uh, I think uh, the listeners will find a lot of this very interesting. Oh, yeah. Thanks, hey, guys. Dutch, man. A really amazing interview. Great to have you here, and thanks for coming on in. I'm going to be up in uh, July 3rd and 4th 
So uh, I'll give you a call. We'll go pull a couple back. Yeah, let's go. Let's go catch Corona together. Sounds you know, good. Lady, you know, <laughs> you know. Take we'll care. Catch you later. Tell Michelle right. I said what's up. I will. Thanks, guys. All right, man. Take care. All right. Good night, Dutch. All right. Man, that is a solid interview right there. Yeah, well, you know, he, he, he's honest about, uh, like how he feels about these things and even about his own struggles. And it was funny. He mentioned at the beginning, oh, you're being kind of a doubter. And I go, you know what sucks? Like every, like just about every topic I was going to ask him about was about something that was kind of crappy in his life. And I'm like, you know what? I just, I put together a list of things to ask him that I thought would be interesting for the listener. I didn't consider for a second that I was going to be asking him like a lot of stressful stuff that he went through. Uh, no, but, but I think it's those were all like very viable things to ask, and that's what everyone wants to hear. Right, and that's why I and put them in. It's and it's so refreshing to hear how he owns it all. You know, he owns it, and and he feels bad for it, but you also feel for him because of what happened, and it would have happened to all of us trying to do that in this unforged world that he was trying to create. It's it's he's a good dude, man. He's a good dude. He's he's been through a lot of stuff, as you as you heard, and uh, and this is someone who's who's kind of a, a survivor in the poker world, and now has decided uh, after all these years that uh, now, especially now that he's having a kid, that it's time to exit it as his uh, main means of support and to do something that uh, can be lucrative without as much risk being an attorney. So, uh, uh, yeah, I. I I actually learned some. Yeah, this wasn't just for the listeners' sake. Some of it I already knew that I asked him about, as I wanted you guys to learn about it. But uh, I, I learned some new things today myself, like uh, about uh, Poker Spot being the original with uh, MTTs. I did not know that. And, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of the other stuff he told me, I, I was never aware of. And all this time, I actually thought he was on meds. I thought his story with with uh, the mental illness was that sometime in the late two thousands that he just got on meds and it improved him and he's been on ever since. I didn't know that he had been off and he's been yeah, having his girlfriend watch him to make sure he doesn't go off the deep end. And I, I thought his advice about the, the mental illness was, was very good. And, uh, and in fact, I've, I've, I'm, I'm sure most people who've listened to the show can say this. I've known people who've had, uh, mental illness where they start to descend into, uh, into madness and they don't, understand that's what's happening and you tell them and they don't believe you and they no, they... and and that's what i was talking about that he has this agreement with michelle his girlfriend that if she tells him he's falling into this he understands that and accepts it as the truth yeah. because he will not see it and i've tried to tell and... people before like i've had i know people even you know, people i'm friendly with that have gone into some of these uh episodes of mental illness and i and they'll sometimes even start saying really rude things to me and rather than just say okay fuck off i want nothing more to do with you i know it's the mental illness talking so i say to them you know why don't you take a step back and see you're having you're having some trouble again you're having the the mental illness you had before is coming back you're doing very well for a while but i see it starting to come back i can tell i've seen this before from you maybe you should get this looked into and but but i always would get the pushback no you don't know what you're talking about i'm you know i'm fine this is and and they they just don't want to accept it and then like Finally, when it gets to a really bad point, and they, and they sometimes even end up institutionalized, whatever it is, but they they come back out of it and go, "Yeah, you were right. That, that, that's uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, sorry about well, that." Well, the drop a lot of times too is you know, there's just a certain time they're going to hear you, no matter who it is, right? Even for Dutch, his girl recognizes it early. That's what. That's probably the key. 
Because if she sees it right away, there's only a period of time where he's going to hear it no matter who it is. Right, right, right. right. It's before it gets to that <clears throat> past the point right. manic. Well, it's, it, it, what's, what's very helpful is that he has this set up beforehand where he knows this might happen. He knows this might happen to him. So rather than uh, having to figure it out at the time when he's not in a good state and see if he can believe the person, he says, I know this can happen to me, so I'm going to – Someone I trust who happens to also live with him. Uh, if she says that I'm getting into this, I'm going to believe them, even if it doesn't feel like at the time it's happening that it's really happening. I'm going to just trust that she's right and, and go forward. And if you if people come into with that plan, uh, that can be very helpful. And it is true that catching it early can can help you. This way, you're you're not uh, uh, attacking it when it's at the very worst point. You have a lot longer road back. So uh, now that's something I personally never experienced. As I said, I was uh, I've never had anything where I wasn't acting normally or, or couldn't think logically, but uh, I've had it where I couldn't feel logically, if, if that makes any sense to those who know what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, anyway, that yeah, was – And you know, he met his, he met his uh, girlfriend at Starbucks on break at a World Series event. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, see, yeah. it's, it's like we're still having the interview <laughs> except we've got like a, a, a representative here <laughs> speaking for him. Yeah. How did, oh, you yeah. Get, how did you get to know him, uh, Vintage One? I got to know him uh, via tech, uh, via Twitch for a while. Right when he started his Twitch streaming, him and I started to bond over a TV show and uh, actually a show I was working on at the time. He was a, a a fan of back in the day. It was a remake, and we just became friends. Started talking. I'd start going up to the World Series, and we'd hang out. He'd give me pointers and. We'd watch each other play, just, you know, built up a friendship. And it's been, you know, probably eight years, just a good dude. Just, okay. And, you know, he told me all this whole story about – because um, the minute you, I would always have thought of Dutch back then was, oh, he ripped everyone off on that bullshit poker site because that's what everyone has been taught to think. And then once you hear the real story and, and the struggle and how much he wanted, as you've all heard – that he's just a good guy that tried to make something happen and it didn't happen and he feels horrible about the people that got hurt and there was really nothing he could do. And I just, you know, I, I saw the human side of him and I, I, I thought he was a good dude and we built a friendship from that point on. Yeah. Well, I said, look, it's, it's been, uh, it's been 20 years almost since all that happened. So, uh, it, it's been a long time and, and, and something, a point he brought up early, when this all happened, which uh, which I consider at the time, I mean, there, there were things about it that I criticized at the time when it happened and shortly after it. But uh, there, there was one thing, which was that he didn't walk away with money from it. That uh, that he came out with zero, like everybody else. So that's he came bit, out negative. Yeah, that's right. He came out with negative. So it, it's it is different than someone who. Uh, rapes a poker site for exactly. for all of the player like money like Danny Duke right like yeah, or, Annie Duke. Or, or like like right. uh, like lock right. poker that, like, like that check like Jennifer Larson of lock poker who walked away with, yeah, a, lot, exactly. with a lot of money and and screwed all the players so she, he he walked away losing money as well so that uh, that that does make it different and of course this wasn't intentional so did he make some mistakes with the whole thing for sure there's no there's no question he made some mistakes uh he was he was was 20 yeah he he was very he was very young which has to be considered too so i try to consider the 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 whole body of everything with with people and not uh particular mistakes and and look even like uh justin bonomo who uh was a multi-accounter and uh, was known as a cheater back then. I, there's, there's certain things I don't like about Justin Bottomo, uh, but that's kind of uh, personal things. But not. Uh, but as far as his integrity in poker, 
he he I believe he hasn't done anything dishonest in poker ever since the thing with uh uh with the multi accounting back when he was much younger. He he's he's gone straight with all that. He learned that he shouldn't have been doing that and he was Yeah, was, guess so, what? So Everyone he, matures. So yeah, so he, so, so he grew up like, and come on. And so even though I don't agree with uh, with some of the things he tweets and, and with some of his uh, political and social views, uh, as far as that's concerned, I, I don't think – because people go, oh, Justin Bonomo, the cheater. I go, no, you know, that's – even though I criticize him, as far as that, I don't think that's fair anymore. I, you can say Justin Bonomo, the 2006 cheater, uh, but uh, not not the present cheater or any time recently. And I think definitely he's, he's someone you don't really have to suspect about that these days. So you, you have to keep – that in mind as well, whereas some other people, it's just a, a constant angle, a constant uh, yeah, thing yeah. where you can't trust them, and they're constantly out to screw you, and uh, it's one thing after another, and those people you can you can never trust. Okay, For sure. I mean, they're not seeing whole cards. They're, they're just multi-accounting. It's a big difference. Okay, so I want to talk about uh, Vegas reopening, and I didn't even know, uh, Vintage One, that you're going to be going there in a month. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it, July 3rd and 4th. Yeah, I booked yeah, it today. I'm like, fuck it. Okay. I'm going up. So uh, that just happened. They just reopened. Uh, I was on uh, June 4th at 12.01 a.m. was the earliest, according to state law, that they were allowed to reopen. And I was wondering how that was all going to go. I had a feeling that there was going to be a, a pretty good crowd there for it based upon what had been seen at other casinos around the country that had reopened earlier. There's a lot of appetite to go back to casinos, especially at a time where people don't have that many options for entertainment at the moment. So that, that also helps them that not only do the gamblers want to come back, not only do the people who just like Vegas in general want to come back, but also th- there aren't that many options. So that's if you want to, Take a trip somewhere. A casino is one of the few options at the moment. So that's they were allowed to open at twelve oh one a.m. Some places chose to. Some places chose not to. The places that are more aimed at people who just kind of walk in but don't stay there necessarily, like downtown, they opened at twelve oh one. The strip places, I don't know if all of them were like this, but I think most of them opened later that day. Some at eight a.m. Some at twelve p.m. Kind of, uh, we're, we're not going to let you stay the night here, but uh, you can come in the morning or early afternoon was the way the strip places handled it. And it, it was a strange scene. I, I was sent pictures by a, a listener who, who actually went for the, uh, for the reopening. Actually, this listener went to downtown first to stay overnight there because they couldn't stay on the strip. It wasn't open. And, uh, and then they went over to the wind the next day. Because the person told me, like, oh, we're, we're staying at the Golden Gate. And th- this is someone who doesn't usually stay in crap hotels. I was like, why are you staying at the Golden Gate? And then I, I, then I, then <laughs> I learned why. There's a million why. deals. Yeah, then I, I, I learned better than that. I, I learned why because of uh, – it was because they uh, were going to the wind the next day when they opened. So anyway, they – keep in mind poker is only open in a few casinos. And here's the weird part. It's supposed to be four-handed by state law. That's – what we had reported here, that's what I believed. However, a different listener reported to me that a casino, the South Point, actually was allowing five-handed. And the person who went down to the South Point, this is a different person I'm talking about now, they asked, wait a minute, what's going on? How are there five people at the table? And the lady at the poker check-in desk said that based on the type of license they applied for, that they were able to have five-handed. I don't know what that means. I thought it was just poker is four-handed, period, and until they determine it's safer to do otherwise. But 
uh, I guess it was five-handed at the South Point. Maybe the South Point's breaking the law and doesn't realize it. Maybe that was an excuse, and they do realize it. It's kind of weird to me, but uh, everywhere else, to my knowledge, was, was four-handed. Maybe there were a few other five-handed players, but you're not going to have a nine-handed poker game in Vegas or anywhere in Nevada. The Indian casinos in California and elsewhere, some of them are running nine-handed poker. Uh, it appears that masks were not required of the patrons at the Nevada casinos because I saw the pictures and there's a lot of people walking around there without masks. A lot of people do have masks, but a lot of people also do not. In fact, uh, I even have a picture sitting right in front of me right now of the win. And uh, this is at a uh, poker table or sorry, this is at the Venetian picture but at the the picture the dealer has a mask uh one of the players has a mask another player has a mask another one i can't see because he's being blocked by the floor man but then there is one guy sitting next to the dealer who has no mask so you don't have to wear masks all the employees have a mask that's that's for sure but uh the patrons don't have to have one i was told they're giving free masks away at a lot of casinos so if you want one you don't have to buy it you they'll just uh, hand it to you uh, I was told that they are running over there and sanitizing everything. And uh, as soon as people stand up from a machine, that a lot of these places run over and spray it and wipe it down. That's if you're playing something like uh, a video poker machine or a uh, uh, any a slot machine, any kind of machine, that they are jumping right on that and trying to sanitize them. Now, there's there's reasons why they're really trying to do this, and that is because uh, n- not only does it make people feel more comfortable, but what they don't want is an outbreak where they reopen, and then you, a few weeks later you learn that there are a lot of cases of people who went to the casinos that caught the coronavirus, and then people die, and it's a, the whole thing looks really bad, and people start to become afraid to come there. Because right, right now people are like, okay, let's go there. I think it'll probably be okay. I think they're taking measures. Uh, they're spreading people out, so fine, we'll, we'll, we'll be okay. Like if it turns out that is not what happens and a lot of people get sick and there's big spikes in numbers and a lot of them can attribute it to their visit to the casino, then not only might the state take some action and restrict things further, but people are going to start saying, oh, well, that was a bad idea. Uh, People shouldn't be going there. I'm definitely not going there. Forget it till there's a vaccine. I'm not going back. And that'll be a disaster for Las Vegas. So they want to try as hard as they can to prevent this to where it's actually surprising to me that they're not requiring masks. I don't know if all properties, I mean, each property can make their own decision. Each property can say whether they, wa- they want a mask to be required or not. I am surprised that they don't require people to wear masks and then give them out to people who just don't have them on them so they don't turn anyone away. But that seems to be the case. Uh, I do see in these, like I have a video here of downtown and I see a lot of people walking close to each other. Is Everybody's not spread out that well. And that, that might be a concern. Like I, it seems like at the moment, what is believed about the coronavirus is that it spreads. Uh, the The vast majority of spreading comes from respiratory uh, things like uh, sneezing, coughing, uh, talking when you're close to somebody. Like this, this may sound a little bit gross, but as you talk, even if you try not to, you will spit at least a tiny bit as you talk. So it, it's very difficult to talk without any any saliva coming out of your mouth and projecting. It, it, it can be very tiny amounts to where people will not feel it or detect it. But uh, when you talk, it's it's hard to do that without uh, saliva coming out of your mouth. And, of course, you're projecting air as you talk. It's, it's impossible to talk 
without air coming out of your mouth as as you speak. So hey, Druff, that's what they said. Why the meat packing packing plants had such a bad uh, uh, exposure rate because it's so loud in there. Everyone was screaming oh, to each other. I, I never heard that, but that's a good theory. Yeah, yeah. that's a good Crazy. theory. So yeah, so that's so. Uh, with people walking close to each other, with people uh, in, in – I wouldn't say that – it wasn't like massive crowd standing all together. But I saw – it's not like area was so spaced out. Yeah, at the tables they spaced them out and, and in line they try to space them out. But I, I did see videos of crowds there and there was – it was surprising to me in some ways of how it wasn't as safe as, as I thought it would be. Uh, there were also – some casinos that had no dividers at the tables like that. Not all the tables had the dividers that you saw pictures of on social media before the opening. Uh, some tables, some places did, some places didn't. Some machines had dividers between them. Some casinos did not have machines with dividers and simply chose to leave a space between machines. I heard that's what uh, the, the wind did that they just uh, spaced them out Uh this is what uh, I was texted. Uh, I've been to every casino open now, and Ven- and Venetian and Palazzo do it right. They clean the chips after you touch them. This is referring to the table games. They put them on the side and have a girl clean. Uh, I'm so glad I came here. Can't believe I had anxiety about coming. Feels normal and good here. Lots of fun. So this person felt the trip was a success. Uh, this person also t- texted me the night before that that they were they were the night they got there at twelve oh one. They they said this is someone who loves Ultimate Texas Hold'em. They just think it's fun. this isn't the, like a positive expectation gambler. They're just a recreational gambler who thinks it's fun. They were very disappointed that they didn't open any Ultimate Texas Hold'em games downtown that night. So the, I don't know if those are on the strip now. Uh, this person also wrote they did a, they do a deep cleaning on all the chips every two hours, as referring to Venetian and Palazzo. Uh, but wipe them down every couple of minutes. I'm so impressed with Palazzo. I, I wish you could see the measures they've taken. But I can't because I'm banned there. <laughs> That's, those are measures I'm not going to see unless they rescind my ban. I, I shouldn't even well, be... Get that point on it, Jeff. <laughs> I, I wish I could. Maybe yeah, you I... could threaten them with a the slander lawsuit because well, you were you know, known as you were kicked it out. It was publicized on this poker radio show. Yeah, by me. <laughs> that's yeah, it was <laughs> well, that's a small factor yeah. left over. This, uh, this got pub- you guys, because of what you guys did, you told the details <laughs> of someone who put it out on a poker radio show. Really? Can we call them in for, uh, to ask him questions? Go, um, kind of. You're, you're going to have him there at the, at the trial, that's for sure. But yeah, I, I wish there was a, a way I could like legally force myself there. Sadly, it is it is up to them whether they want to let me back. But uh, um, uh, five players were allowed at uh, at the poker table. It looks like at Venetian too. This according to this person. So maybe maybe uh, maybe they got uh, raised from four to five. Maybe that's what happened. That that's kind of a mystery to me. How these poker rooms are running five-handed. I, I, it's hard for me to believe that they would be doing this if they weren't allowed to. That's the last thing they want to do is on day one violate the gaming requirements. That wouldn't be very smart. So I have to imagine that they are doing what is legal. And can they survive five-handed? I don't know. That's it hard. could be, too, there's different levels. If they're doing the wiping of the chips every minute, then they can have five-handed. You know, so it could be something like yeah, that. If, any, if anybody knows the answer to that, please let me know if uh, how that uh, – oh, by the way, um, 
I've just been informed that there are some issues with the phones here on Poker Fraud Alert, and I know there are. I've, I, this is my fault, actually. I can't even blame Skype this time. I actually uh, was messing with the phone earlier. Hold on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this here so we'll be able to take calls in a little bit. This was not intentional, but there was... Uh, earlier this week, I was uh, doing some stuff with the phones, and then I forgot to undo it, and that left us unable to take calls. Now, actually, it should work. So if anybody wants to call in, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Otherwise, we will move on to the topic about uh, Casino Royale and Binions, which is is kind of related to this. But uh, uh, just to finish up what we're saying here, how do I feel about the reopening? I mean, I, I understand why they did it. I understand that without a... Without an end to this whole thing that's anytime soon, they, they couldn't just let the whole city collapse. At some point, you say, well, what are we waiting for? And if there's nothing concrete that we're waiting for that's coming soon, which there isn't, then they have to reopen. And that, that's just a fact. And I've said that before about other industries. Does that mean I'm going to go? No. Uh, that's something that I don't have a desire to do for my own personal level of uh, caution with this, which is my own decision, but that doesn't mean I feel that you shouldn't be able to if you want to. So uh, that's the way I'm doing it. I'm, I am su- a little surprised, though, some of the videos I saw that they let people walk as closely to one another and even be in kind of crowds in a manner to where I thought it was a little bit unsafe, and especially make everybody wear a mask. Just make that a requirement. There may be some casinos that do it, but every casino should make everybody wear a mask. They should just get a ton of masks there that they're going to give out to people disposable masks people could just take home and make them put them on when they go in there and say that this is a requirement to wear a mask here because this keeps other people safe. That, that when you're wearing a mask, it's not to prevent yourself from catching it. It can feel like it. You put on a mask, you okay, I feel safer now. You're actually not safer wearing the mask. It's actually the other people who are going to be safer from you infecting them. So it, it's not perfect, but it, it helps. So I don't see why they don't require that. And a lot of people do it anyway, so it's not like you look like a freak there wearing a mask. But I I think that is something that should be done. And I think the crowds was – it was too much, especially from what we know now. It's it's nice that they're doing the surface sanitizing and the chip sanitizing and they're being diligent with that. And that can't hurt. And that probably will bring down some incidents of catching it. But it seems like at the moment the belief is that you're not getting it that much from surfaces. So why not attack where the real problem is, and that is respiratory, and the way you attack that is by keeping everybody away from each other and making everybody wear masks. So that's that's a little baffling to me. So I guess I'll go on to the talking about Casino Royale. Casino Royale, for those of you that don't know, is a casino with a great center strip location, but it is not very great itself. It's a crappy little casino with a crappy little hotel attached to it that happens to have a center strip location and somehow hasn't been swallowed up by another casino that like buys it and wrecks it and, and expands. So somehow Casino Royale is one that has survived all of this and still is, is freestanding and still owned by, uh, I think the, I don't know if the original owners, but the same owners for a long time. To me, Casino Royale has some personal history in that when I started to play blackjack as a card counter, 
I, I'd been playing blackjack recreationally before that, but in 2000, I learned how to card count. And I took my first card counting trip in late 2000. And one of the casinos I went to was Casino Royale because I heard that was a good place to go because they had a good game. And it's a place you wouldn't expect a good game. Usually the good games would be in the big strip casinos. But it just so happened that even though the players at the Casino Royale blackjack game were typically clueless and wouldn't know a good rule from a bad rule, for some reason they spread a good rule double deck game there. Why? I don't know. They were just costing themselves money because nobody except for like me and any other card counter that would uh, hit the place had any clue that the, the rules they were giving there were, were better than other places. So they were just costing themselves money doing this. But whatever, that was the decision they made. And there was relatively little heat, which was unusual. They just you could you could win there, you could count cards, and nobody would know. And the dealers actually controlled the penetration. Penetration meaning the amount of cards they deal before reshuffling. So if you got a dealer who took a liking to you, or if you tipped well, or if they took a liking to you because you tip well, then they would deal pretty far in the deck. And I once had a dealer there who knew exactly what I was doing. And uh, before I put my last bet out, because the the, the count was high, meaning that I, I wanted to put a large bet out because it was positive expectation, but I didn't want to slam that bet out and have them reshuffle and have the, have me awkwardly pull it back and put back my min bet. So I'm kind of like – he could see I'm kind of struggling what to put out because I'm not sure if he's reshuffling because they, they just kind of pick the time to reshuffle. There's no cut card in there. And he gives me like a f- single finger, meaning one more hand <laughs> because he knows exactly what I'm doing. He knows why I'm uh, kind of hesitating with betting. So it was things like that. I, I love that place. Now, I couldn't hit it too badly because it was a, mostly a low-limit play. So I couldn't come there and bet super high and slam them. Right there, I would get backed off. So it was kind of straddling this line between playing a, the good game with relatively little heat but also not winning too much or, or they're, they're going to kick me out and I'll never be able to come back. So uh, so I, I really liked that place. And uh, it was funny, some of the people I played with. Like I played with one person to my direct right who was dealt a 6 and a 5 for an 11. And so it, it came to them, and it seemed like the only question was going to be, do they double or hit? Of course, doubling is the right thing. The dealer was showing not an ace. I think it's like a 7 or something. Not only did the person not double, they wanted to stand on the 11. <laughs> And the dealer was trying to tell them, they're like, no, 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 you don't understand, you can't, and they're like, no, I just want to stay, and they're like, but you don't understand, 11's the best hand you could have, you, you, you've got to, as far as hitting, you, you, you can't bust here, That your hand can only get better. No, I just want to stay, and they, in fact, this player started getting mad at the dealer for trying to advise this. So, those are the type of players I was playing with. Uh, also, because everybody was like a $3 a hand player in there, I was spreading between 25 and 150 per bet, which... It's not huge, but compared to the $3 players, it looked like I was just this high roller. And people were so excited being at the table with me. And uh, like someone would, would be trying to decide whether to hit or stand. They go, well, what should I do? I go, no, just play your hand. They go, no, no, you're the one with all the money in the table. I don't want to ruin it for you. I go, no, that's fine. Just you, you play your hand. I don't care either way. And they, they had such a hard time understanding that I wasn't superstitious like that. I was. I didn't care if they hit or stand. I said, just just play whatever way you want to play. And the, I, 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 I'm not going to see it that way. And people were just so fascinated with the amount of money I was betting there. So I, I liked the place. I had an incident, though, not with any th- staff there, but uh, I, I had a good night there. 
and I, I cashed out twenty six hundred. I think I bought in like four hundred, so I did I did well. Cashed out twenty six hundred. I was a little worried that since uh, it's a lower limit place, that I would stick out like a sore thumb, and that people would follow me out and try to mug me. Fortunately, with center strips, I wasn't that worried because it's hard to do that and not be seen. But I, I went to cash out with the twenty six hundred, and I did get followed out, but not by someone looking to mug me. I was followed out by a hooker who was very, very aggressive with trying to get me to purchase her services. So she follows me out, and it's, it's, it's actually, I think, two hookers. There was, it was uh, one who was doing most of the talking. The other one was either a friend or probably a second hooker. The, the main one follows me out and says, hey, did you do well today? So I wasn't going to say, yeah, I just went over $2,000. I'm like, yeah, I, I did okay. And she says, oh, okay. Um, I, I saw I, I thought I saw you cash out a lot of money there. And I said, yeah, I, I bought in a lot. I didn't really win very much. <laughs> so I, was try, I was trying to not make it look like I just uh, won more than 2000 bucks. so I, this way they would leave me alone. I knew exactly why she's asking me these questions. And she says, oh, okay, well, uh, so are you thinking about a little uh, entertainment tonight? I go, no, that, I, I'm really not interested in that. Uh, and I'm about to walk away. She says, well, you sure? You sure you don't want someone to play with you tonight? And I go, no. No, I'm, I'm really not interested in that. I'm, I'm trying to end the conversation. And she's, so you don't want someone to play with you? Why is that? And I said, I, I'm really not looking for this. So that's that's just the way it is here. She's, so what? So you're just going to go home and play with yourself? It's like she, she was... Over and over and over, she was like, it's like she, she's trying to win a debate here. That she thinks I'm going to go, oh, okay, fine, you're right. I didn't need someone to play with me. And, and, uh, and, and then she still thinks they don't understand. Like she somehow thinks that maybe I'm not understanding what she means by play with me. So she goes, so you're saying you don't need somebody to play with your cock? So she makes it more clear to me. So that I, I again, I say no. And she's going on and on and on. She just will not give up with trying to convince me. And I'm saying, oh, how, do, how do I end this here? I, I've, I've said in every way I can, no. And this went on for a while. And I was getting really close to just uh, saying, look, leave me alone. Don't follow me. Get away from me. I told you I don't want it. You can take, I can't take it. Before I really got nasty with her, like at first it was kind of amusing. But then it, then it, started, it started getting bothersome that she just wasn't going away and giving up. And, and then these drunk guys showed up. And thought they knew me. And they go, hey, what are you doing here? And then they, they go, oh, wait a minute, you're not him. We thought you're our friend. And then they're going like, and then they go, who are these girls? And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> perfect. So they're, they're talking to the girls. <laughs> and I go, perfect. So I escaped then as the girls were distracted by these drunk guys. So that was that was my experience with the Casino Royale. Uh, one day, eventually, I found that the game had finally been degraded and it was no longer worth visiting there. I, I've been back a few times for some other reasons, but uh, I think the last time I was there, it was in, uh, I think I played a machine there in 2019, but Casino Royale, if you want to play the tables there, you're going to be disappointed because Casino Royale has permanently taken out their table games. This is according to Casino reporter John Mahaffey on his Twitter that not only were all the table games gone, and he posted a picture of the hole where the table games used to be, which is blank space now, not only are the table games gone, but they're not coming back. He asked them, when are you bringing this back? And they said, never. 
He said, well, what do you mean never? Like, like never as long as the coronavirus thing's going on? No, never. They're gone. We've decided to remove them forever. So that was a, a, a surprising thing to find out because uh, I, I figured they were making decent money at the table of games, especially the average player there is really clueless. It was like that way in the early 2000s. It, it was like that way today. But they decided they're not going to go forward with table games. This may have been the push to get them to do it. Maybe they've been mulling over this decision for a while. And now the table games having to house fewer players at the same time, the profit margin less, and they, they probably just decided they're, they're not going to make money this way. But the most surprising thing is it wasn't like we're taking them out until things can return to normal and then we'll reevaluate. It was said they were just gone. And I have to admit that made me a little bit sad, even though I don't play table games there anymore. Like, I, I thought back to that blackjack game, and it made me nostalgic, even for the hooker that wouldn't take no for an answer. Even that. I feel like a piece, a piece of my history has just been taken away. Something else has been taken away that's a piece of history, and in fact, we just talked about it tonight with Dutch Boyd. Binion's has no more poker tables. Binion's has removed, not closed, removed all of its poker tables. If you go to where the poker tables were in Binion's, you will see a blank space. And that's really the end of an era. Now, I know Binion's has a different owner now. I know it's just, it's only the same place in name. Nothing else is the same about it ever since Harris bought it, which is now Caesars, took the World Series, moved it to Rio, and then sold it to a different owner. So it's no longer owned by the Binion family. And it no longer has anything to do with the World Series. But that is where the World Series of Poker began. And now it has no more poker. They did say it is possible poker will return in the future. But they feel this future is so far away that they have cleared out the poker tables, put them away in storage, said they're not going to come out anytime soon. So that's, uh, that's an interesting development as well. And something that I wonder if it's going to remain permanent. Keep in mind, poker is a loss leader for a lot of properties. It is meant to bring people in who hopefully will play other things or spend money in other ways. They never make that much money spreading poker in Vegas casinos. The space is much better used for other things. Even if they do make money, they can make more money with a space doing something else. But the theory is if people come down to play poker, they'll lose money in blackjack. They'll lose money in craps. They'll lose money in slots. They'll, they'll spend money in our restaurants and shops. If, if it brings them here, it has value beyond what the rake brings in. But not only has Binion's decided they're not going to do this uh, four- or five-handed crap, but they have thought that they may be doing away with it permanently. But they, unlike Casino Royale, have not made a decision on that. So Vegas is already looking somewhat different, and it's unclear what future is going to be there. I got some more texts from uh, from this person. They said, uh, all the hookers are out at the win. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense because the hookers have been really struggling uh, throughout this. You may think, oh, the hookers should be doing better because everybody's at home bored. No. Number one, a lot of guys are afraid to have sex with hookers because they don't want to catch the coronavirus. So a lot of guys are like, just, no, I, I, I don't want to take the chance. Uh, second, a lot of guys are just at home and not going to Vegas. A lot of the people who buy hookers in Vegas are not Vegas locals. These are tourists who come in 
who aren't with their wives or aren't with their girlfriends, or even if they're single, and they say, okay, I want to get a hooker in Vegas. So those guys weren't there all this time. And uh, also the hookers can't just hang out in the casinos trying to reel guys in, which a lot of them do. So the hookers have been struggling big time. So finally they can grab some clients. So it's funny, they swarmed upon the wind and probably some other places. So that's uh, also this person texted me, oh my God, Vegas is fucking packed. And that was texted to me about uh, 12 minutes ago. So interesting insight here. Doesn't surprise me it's packed. Uh, Keep in mind, this is Friday night. So this is the weekend. For some people, the weekend doesn't matter right now if they're not working, but there are still many people with jobs and many people who decide to go there for the weekend or wait for the weekend to go there. And as I said, it's not surprising that people have an interest in in going to Vegas. So uh, you may think you're going to go there and hardly see anybody. That's not the case. I also saw a picture of the traffic from L.A. to Vegas, and there was uh, very real traffic that night of the reopening two nights ago. It wasn't one of these things where you could just breeze up to Vegas. And keep in mind, that was a Wednesday night. Usually driving Wednesday night to Vegas, you're going to hit very little traffic. Here you actually had... Much more traffic than a typical Wednesday night. Now, whether this translates to long-term success, I don't know. This may get old fast. People may get sick of it. It may be something that once the novelty of coming back for the to the reopening wears off, that they just have no interest to continue. So we'll have to see. We will have to watch closely as to what happens. And it could be very different than what we are seeing right now in Las Vegas. It may not be very viable long-term. There may be some casinos that have to close. It may be a contracted market where it can remain profitable, but not with the number of casinos there are. Poker Pro Vanessa Cade tweeted, If you're wondering what Vegas is like right now, imagine someone invites you to a party that starts at 9 p.m. and you show up at 8 p.m. instead of 11, like everybody else. Too loud music is playing, the host is a little flustered, and a few people are awkwardly standing in the corners. (laughs) So Vanessa Cade was not a fan of reopening Vegas. Vanessa is expressing a different point of view than the person texting me. So it's, it's different. There's some things that are the same, but it's different. Uh, I'm not sure... What's open as far as uh, restaurants and clubs? I don't think any clubs are open. The restaurants, I didn't keep track of whether they're allowed to open or not. We'll see if that person texts me back. There's also someone else who wanted to call in, but then he hasn't called. He was texting me that he couldn't get through, so I texted him, oops, that was my fault, and then they haven't called back, so it looks we won't get them. Uh, Trey Ruski, are you with us still? I am. And what about Vintage One? Are you still with us? Oh, yeah. Wow. See, usually when Vintage One goes quiet, I assume that uh, he just fell off somewhere. So, uh, so well, Vintage... as long as we talk poker, you'll never lose me. Okay. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Vintage, <laughs> Vintage One, uh, see, so you're going in about a month. Uh, Trader Risky, are you planning to go anytime soon? Actually, a friend of mine did just was talking about going on the 4th but uh which is yeah, a possibility buddy, now it. that I know vintage ones going too but I don't know if I need to rush to Vegas who knows get out of here you were just up there 
I, I was there for about 20 minutes. Whatever. <laughs> That's not the same thing. No, I, I can understand yeah. because I'm not, I'm not going yet. And uh, honestly, I, I don't want to risk this until I really feel comfortable that the coronavirus is, is not a danger for me. It's just something I really, really don't want to get. And, and that was reinforced last night. Last night, I got a sore throat and, uh, and I started to feel like some muscle and joint pain. Oh, which, boy. Which usually comes on like when I have a cold. And I go, well, how would I have a cold? Like, if I'm being so careful not to catch the coronavirus, I'm being like equally careful not to catch a cold by default. So, like, how am I possibly getting a cold here? And this is kind of disturbing because the coronavirus is actually more contagious than a cold, perhaps not on surfaces, but it's it's, it's extremely contagious. And I said, crap, maybe that's what this is. And, and I started worrying and... There were a few things I could think of, uh, like, like I, I, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but there was a, uh, a, a pipe leak here involving the sprinkler system, and I had the gardener working on it, and the gardener was not doing any attempt to socially distance, and I would try to distance from him, but he'd, he'd keep walking closer to me, and then also, like, I would be too, like, thinking about the situation going on and, and forget to distance myself, and I, I, I worried when he left that what if he has it, I could have caught it. So I, like, there were things like that that were coming through my mind, like, oh, this is just like the right amount of time to have passed. And I was getting very concerned. This was actually last night. And uh, I'm actually going to be seeing my parents soon. I was just about uh, getting ready to call them today and tell them not to come. But uh, then I was playing online poker. And this one guy on Ignition who just like never runs bad, and I know it's him, even though it's anonymous. I, I don't know who he is, but the guy just never runs bad. It's insane. And he I was getting just beat down like it, it's so funny because i i kill everybody else on that site except for him like i i'm i have a a great record against everybody there that's not him not just a good record a great record i handle everybody on that site well except for that one person and uh anyway i i had a bad night on there last night and uh while i was losing in just some insane hands that went down uh i i actually pissed myself off from feeling sick anymore, as strange as that sounds, because I started to get like like more and more frustrated as this was happening, and then in the middle of it, I go, you know what? That's weird. I don't feel as much of a sore throat anymore, and I don't hurt as much anymore. I don't feel as tired anymore. I'm starting to feel like fatigue too, and and then I go, how come I'm feeling less of this? And I go, you know what? I wonder if like some of this is psychosomatic. Like there is something going on slightly. Maybe just something not right in my body at the moment. Maybe something I ate, but whatever. Like, maybe some of this is my fear of the coronavirus, and that when my mind gets occupied by something else, in this case, losing, uh, it, it it started to to fade. And, I say that's a hundred percent right. And, and, and then and then when I went and once the session was over, it didn't come back. So I still I still felt a little bit of it, but it was greatly reduced. And I I said I have a feeling I'm going to go to sleep and wake up, and it's going to be all gone. And I went to sleep and I woke up and it was all gone. So it's like totally gone now. So it's a, there's no trace of it now. So it, it obviously wasn't the coronavirus. The coronavirus doesn't do that where you feel something and then it goes away. That's not how it works. So, so I know I don't have that here. But what that did remind me of was that uh, I really, really don't want to be. As I was feeling this, as I was just starting to feel it, I wasn't losing. I was like barely losing. I was losing like a little bit at the moment. And, and I was starting to like almost get even. And all I could think about was... I don't want the coronavirus. I don't want the coronavirus. I, I don't care what happens in this session. I just don't want the coronavirus. And then, like, once I lost there, I thought, damn it, I'm pissed about losing. 
like I couldn't even be happy about that. I probably didn't have the coronavirus because I was pissed about losing again. But for that moment, they're like, I didn't even care if I won or lost. I was like, the, whatever happens here, I just want to not have it. So I, I really just don't want to have it. And I'd really be so mad at myself if I did anything like go to Vegas because it just seems fun or if it seems like something I want to do. And then I get it. Now, that's just me personally. I know some people don't feel that way. But but I I really don't want to get this. And for that reason, I'm staying away. And each well, person. I figured I have a month to to renegotiate it as I get closer. That's true. You're not committed. If everybody right, to, but still lock into the nice the nice rates they're offering. Everybody who is within drivable distance of it, like L.A., San Diego, Phoenix, all these people can decide last minute if you really want to go through the trip because you can cancel with no penalty very close to when you come there. And if you're driving, then there's no plane ticket to worry about. So, I'll tell you though, the uh, resort fees per night is this normal? Eighty dollars uh, per night? I've never heard of an eighty dollars per sure. night. I, I paid one hundred and sixty dollars in resort fees. I've never heard of that. Uh, you'll have to tell me what what uh, I don't know if you want to say what property it is, but uh, it's the encore. Oh, it's the encore. I can't believe you did that. What are you doing? Let me apologize. You can't do that. Well, if out of principle alone, you can't do it. Well, hold on. I'm, I'm trying. Well, I, I didn't I'm, see it until it was too late. Well, I'm but... curious about this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google this right now because I've never heard of. I've, I heard like fifty five dollars was what the highest ones went to, but but eighty one sixty for two nights. Okay, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to Google this right now. Because that's insane if that's true. It's insane, right? No, there's something wrong because it's. I'm seeing. Well, maybe this is an old site. I, I saw. Let me pull up my receipt and I'll I'll, I'll send it to you. Because I'm seeing thirty nine dollars. No. Which which maybe they double charged you in some way. Maybe. Yeah, I would I would look into this. I haven't heard. Of, I think I would have heard by now if there was an eighty dollars resort fee anywhere. No, I stand by. I do want to point out, by the way, that and I would like to see this, but I. I I want to point out that resort fees aren't what you think they are, and I hate them. Keep in mind that you're going to find you're you're not going to find many people alive on this earth who who hate resort fees and think they should be illegal more than me. And we we had someone probably like that on this show where we had that attorney on who runs a yeah. kill, killresortfees.com. She probably yeah, yeah. she probably hates them more than I do, but it's close. Uh, but the reason I had her on is because we agree completely on this, and that uh, but that, that this is very uh, deceptive the resort fees. But what it's not is uh, an upcharge. What they're doing is they're cutting out part of what the normal hotel rate is and making the base rate seem cheaper and then charging the rest as a resort fee. So you're probably paying the same thing as you would if there was no resort fee, but it's the way they do it that pisses me off because it's dishonest because you they're, they're tricking you to book at a rate that you think is lower than it is and they're tricking you through internet search engines on hotel rates. So anything that's meant to deceive the consumer, I think is horrible and should be illegal. And I'm surprised it's taken this long, especially because everybody hates them. So like, uh, uh, it's not like one political party likes them and one doesn't. You have to wait for the right party in power. Like, like everybody hates them. Like very few people are going to complain if a politician, uh, gets a law passed making this illegal, but somehow it hasn't happened. I know there's the hotel lobby that influences politicians on, on both sides that is probably preventing this that's probably what's going on but it, it's it really is deception big time even though it's deception we've gotten used to 
Have, have you sent this yet, uh, Vintage One? No, I'm still looking okay. for the well, confirmation when, when you, you, you on get it. it. I, I really want to see this. It may be an error. It may be that's really what you're being charged, but I would call up about that because last I saw it was $39 per night. No. And the highest. What if they did per person draft and they changed it to that? That'd be brutal. <laughs> that would be brutal. <laughs> yeah, it's crappy. I people were saying, oh, maybe they're going to do away with resort fees. Well, they've done away with parking fees in a lot of places in the reopening. I don't know if that's going to be permanent. The resort fees they're all still hanging on to, and and there's a reason for that because the parking fees they can get rid of because that doesn't involve any kind of competitive advantage or disadvantage through the pricing search engines but no place wants to do this first and then fall behind everybody else when 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 they do the searches by price where you look more expensive than another property which in reality is more expensive than you because they're charging resort fee and you're not and that's why they all feel they have to do it and then they all keep raising the resort fees to try to one-up each other with this in the in the internet search engines and 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 it's a vicious cycle and it's just the only way it's going to end is either if the entire industry just says no more we're just all going to agree not to do it or at least in certain markets like everybody in Vegas just agree has an agreement we're not going to do it or if it's made illegal which is what i really feel needs to be done the the federal trade commission needs to step in and say no more you cannot charge any mandatory fee other than government taxes anything else is optional Anything else the guest has to be able to opt out of, and, and you have to make it very clear to them that they can. It's not something they can just figure out in the fine print. That's the way it should be. And the fact that this hasn't happened with these resort fees existing for more than 15 years is uh, is terrible. But uh, I'm still waiting. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm having issues pulling up this thing. Okay. Well, you, you, you can keep at it if you I'll want. I'll send it to you at some point. Okay. Uh I don't know which is going to come first. I don't know if uh, resort fees are going to die or if I'm going to die first. I don't know which is going to live longer. <laughs> it's, it's a close one. I don't know which one. I used to think for sure it's going to be gone soon, but it's, it's persisted 15 years, and so maybe, maybe they will outlive me. I, they will be gone at some point. They're, they're not going to be here forever, but it could be a long time. I would not have guessed 15 years ago that these would still be here in 2020, but here we are. Let's move on to the topic about Live at the Bike, then after that. We're going to have Eric Benzamokin come on, who fortunately is, is still up. Uh, we're going to have him come on and uh, discuss this the, could the get, possible thing. This could get weird after the whole Dutch thing. It, it could get weird, but hopefully <laughs> hopefully he doesn't feel like he has a, a new competition here. I, I have a feeling he'll, he'll appear on the show more than Dutch, though, so he's got the advantage wow. there. So Ryan Feldman, if you've heard that name before, it's probably because you've watched Live of the Bike or have at least followed the existence of Live of the Bike. He is someone who's been with Live at the Bike for a very long time. He's someone who was uh, really the biggest behind-the-scenes guy with Live at the Bike. And if you respect what they've done, and if you like that show, uh, you have Ryan Feldman to thank for it, largely. Not entirely. We have that Hanson kid who, who did a very good job uh, with the commentating. And there's, there's other people who've been involved with it. It's, it's not all Ryan Feldman who was responsible for its success, but, uh, but still he, uh, he contributed a lot. And when there's someone like that, who contributes a lot to a company and seems to be good at their job and is generally thought to be someone who was, uh, who was competent and, and did everything well. It, and they're there a long time. It's very sad when it ends the way it did for him. So this is what he tweeted on June 3rd, 
Thanks to the Bicycle Casino for notifying me via mail that I was laid off. Not email, mail. After everything I did for that place, all the time, energy, and passion I put into that place without ever being properly compensated. No call, no text, just a letter. And he posted a picture of the layoff notice. It says, notice to employee to change in relationship. This is like being broken up by, <laughs> broken up with by mail. But that, I, I really wish that I still had the opportunity to break up with a, like a temporary girlfriend, like not one I'm with for, for many years. Cause uh, I, I would do this. I would send notice, notice as to a change in our relationship. And I would, I would make a, a replica of this form. Now that, that I would like to do to someone, but it's too late. I have nobody to break up with. Nobody I want to break up with, shall I say. I have someone I, I technically could break up with, but I, but I wouldn't ever do that. So uh, that would hurt me a lot. Trust. It, okay. Well, I've, I know. I know you're. Uh, I know you've become very attached. But <laughs> I, 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 I'm afraid you're going to break up with me when the when Hollywood starts uh, making shows again. But never, Druff, uh, never. But Ryan Feldman it has his name there, and then it has a uh, social security number which he blacked out for obvious reasons. Then it says your employment status has changed for the reason checked below, and then it, the one checked layoff effective five eight five twenty eight twenty. And then it has three lines to explain why they laid him off. Now, it could have said, uh, thank you very much for your years of service. Unfortunately, due to the coronavirus, uh, we no longer can afford uh, to have as many employees, and we, we have to let certain people go. We appreciate very much what you've done for Life at the Bike and, and for the Bicycle Casino. Uh, thank you very much for your service. Unfortunately, we have to terminate our relationship. They, they could have written it there. would have been totally fine. Instead, what they wrote, they had three lines to write it. They wrote in all caps, staff reduction. <laughs> staff reduction. That's it. That's it. Just staff reduction in all caps. And that's it. Then they have a, a stamp on there saying the Bicycle Casino and their address and phone number, a signature, and that's it. That's the entire way that he was laid off. Now, this would make sense if they're sending this to, like, all the dealers. Like, if you have a lot of people who are working in one job and there's too many – if it's a big place and there's too many for everybody to call individually, I, I understand that. There, there's only – there's certain limitations they have. And we, we talked about this before. There was another property that laid off people in a cold fashion that uh, – a Vegas property. I think it was the Rampart. One of them, they, they actually did it through voicemail, if you remember. Uh, but this was done by mail – to someone who was a very prominent employee there, not just uh, a, a dealer or, uh, or, or or a janitor there or a food service employee. This was someone who had a unique position there that uh, was responsible for a lot of the identity that the bike currently has. So he went on to write, for those who don't know, I left Live at the Bike a while ago. Now, keep in mind, Live at the Bike and the Bicycle Club are two different things. They, they are associated, Live at the Bike takes place at the Bicycle Club, and Live at the Bike, of course, is named after the Bicycle Club, but these are two different companies. So you can be an employee of Live at the Bike and not an employee of the Bicycle Club and vice versa. So he's saying, for those of you who don't know, I left Live at the Bike a while ago, haven't been involved since the summer. I left due to disagreements with the other owners and not being happy. I stayed with the bike as a host, but got paid as a prop. Never got what I was promised, so I guess I'm done. So he's saying here that it was it was the bicycle that laid him off, that he actually voluntarily left live at the bike. So this isn't, uh, this isn't about them. 
he says, for what it's worth, I probably wasn't going to go back to the bike anyway when things got back to normal. At least, at least if my role hadn't changed. So I'm not upset about being laid off. Other props were too. It's just disrespectful finding out that way after everything I did for them. And you may stop and say, wait, what's he talking about? If he left live at the bike voluntarily, what did he do for the bicycle club? Well, as I said, the, these two are associated. That's, that's one thing. It's not, he'll go on and explain what else he did for them. But first of all, these two are associated. When, when live at the bike does well, what does this make people want to do? Well, they, they know the bicycle club. They start thinking about it more. They're probably more likely to want to play there than, than Commerce, which is nearby. It's about five miles away from Commerce. So, uh, and, and those two are constantly competing. They're both large L.A. area card rooms, which spread a lot of the same games and five miles apart. So, uh, so not only did he do a lot for Live at the Bike, but then he goes on to explain, after I left Live at the Bike in the summer, Bike asked me to stay on and host off-camera games in the private room. What he means by that is that uh, he's hosting games that are not part of Live at the Bike, but there, there is a separate room there. I've never played in it, but I've seen it, which is called the private room. And he said, I crushed it from August to December 2019, increased rake by 30K a month, was told I would get host salary plus percentage of rake, never got anything, kept getting dragged along, empty promises. So he's claiming that he... When he said he got he crushed it, he didn't mean at the table. He meant he crushed it for the table. They were making way more <laughs> rake when when uh, when he was hosting the game. He was getting these games going and staying going, which which by the way is a skill. And the way you do that is you bring players in who people are going to want to stay and play. You bring fish in. You bring action players in. You can even bring pros in who otherwise may not want to come. You can call them up and try to really encourage them to come, and that, that's what these hosts do. And so he took that position. He left live at the bike, and then the bike said, hey, wait a minute, Ryan. We have some stuff that we'd like you to do for us. You may not be with live at the bike anymore, but uh, how would you like to come work for us and, and help us in the private room? Everybody knows you. You've been part of live at the bike for so long. You've dealt with these players before with live at the bike. So we think you could use that same skill set to help us with our private room games that have nothing to do with live at the bike. So he said, okay, sure. And then he claims he brought up their rake that they were taking in that room. This is one room. This isn't like the whole huge uh, bicycle club. Just this one private room that they were making 30K more per month. Not 30K per month, but 30K more per month in rake. Now, I don't know if this is true. These, these are claims by Ryan Feldman. So I want to say to anybody who might be listening to this who works at the bike or might be ownership of the bike, I'm not stating that this is the truth. I'm stating what Ryan Feldman has publicly tweeted and if, if you have some kind of other story to this or would like to rebut this, you can do so on this show or on Twitter or get my attention. Hey, Druff, maybe we should call Ryan right now. Well, no, we, I already discussed that with him. He, he said he's not, oh. ready, he's not ready to come on yet for certain reasons I oh. won't discuss. But, no, I've, I've, I tried to cover that. Believe me, I wanted him on here. But, uh, <laughs> and and I, have a good, I have a good relationship with him. So, me too. Uh, he's a good dude. Yeah. But. So, so, uh, so, yeah, he, he just isn't ready. He said he might in the future, though. Nothing to do with me, though. He, he would right. he, the, the, Let's just say he'd, he'd like to, just can't right now. So, uh, so, I, so he says the 30K per month extra rake they made there, and that uh, since he was doing such a good job, they're saying, okay, well, uh, we're going to give you the salary we'd normally give a host, plus the percentage, uh, you're going to give a percentage to the rake since you're making so much more money for us. And then he claims they just didn't do it. They kept stalling, stalling, stalling. And never came through with it. 
So he says, I'm good now. Don't worry about me at all. I just can't believe the disrespect and empty promises. Many believe I had a huge impact on that poker room. The way I was treated was just insane to me by live at the bike and the bike. Oh, well, that's just business, I guess. Yeah, unfortunately it is. Uh, And this happens with, with companies where they will promise you something, and if you don't have it in writing, sometimes they can seem so sincere, and you think, well, I can trust them, and I've had a good relationship with them for so long, and I can't see them screwing me, and then guess what happens? You get screwed. So that's why. Oh, yeah. That's why uh, you got to have these things in writing. This happened to me. I, not in poker. Way before I played poker, but when I was young, I, I worked for a company that a very large company that had a very important piece of a software project to complete. That because they were transferring the entire project out of state, and they had to the, the California part had to be completed, or otherwise the out of state team wasn't going to be able to pick up where it was. They had to have it completed to a certain point before it was handed off to this other team. And uh, I worked very hard in making that happen, and I did a good job with that. And what I uh, the problem was I was underpaid at the time because uh, salaries were rapidly escalating during the dot-com boom that was just beginning in the mid to late 90s. And uh, that was far eclipsing my salary, and, and they were hiring new people out of college who were getting more money than me. Just because I, I was hired in at a time the economy wasn't as good. And I said, well, that's not fair. I should make more money than these people. Well, we have to do that to bring them in. I go, well, that's not fair to me. I, I, you, you can't have me making less than people who are just out of college with a lesser degree than me who have less experience. But just because that's what the market says, I'm part of the market too. I can leave too. And I can go somewhere else that will hire me for more. So they said, oh, no, no, we understand that. Okay, we'll fix it for you. We promise. Okay. And so – they said they'll fix it for me. They've got a process, and it kept dragging and dragging and dragging and dragging. And I said, "Where is what's going on with this? And they made excuses about the bureaucracy. It's hard to do. Don't worry. It's going to happen. 99% is going to happen. I should have heard the 99% and realized right there I'm going to get screwed. Yeah, you were the 1%. Yeah, I was the 1%, which is actually going to be 100%. <laughs> it was 100%. If the 1% became 100 as soon as – the important thing I was finishing was done, and then I was expendable. Why was I expendable? Because they had a million people trying to. Uh, they, they, they had a lot of people they could hire, and they they didn't they 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 didn't fire me. I could stay as long as I wanted, but I wasn't super important. They could hire any other young programmer to replace me. So I was currently working for less. Why would they pay me more? Because maybe they can just deny me and I won't and I won't leave. And the, and the, the, much the, like young Ryan who built up that brand on Live at the Bike, and they no longer need him anymore. Yeah, and the bike has their good the, the private game going well, so they were like, okay, well, uh, exactly. And, and then they, and then he was uh, he was away from there at the moment anyway because they they were closed, so they uh, right. So they uh, they must have decided they they don't need to go through with this, or maybe he's not going to come back to what it was, whatever it was. Uh, uh, they made some decision not to go through with this and that they didn't care if he, he left and quit. So so I learned after that, I'm not going to take the 99% is going to happen or don't worry, trust us, it's going to happen, that that everything has to be in writing unless it's someone that you're very, very close with. And even then, it's probably better to get it. Like if it's your mother, no, but uh, um, even if you go to a business with friends, it's good to have things in writing so you uh, you don't get screwed if it's for any uh, any sum of money you're going to care about. So So – Looks like I don't know for sure. Maybe maybe Ryan is telling uh, his version of the story, which has some holes. But if I had to guess, I would say this is probably true or mostly true that he just uh, that he probably was strung along 
that they were liking the way things were going, but didn't really want to give him this much. But they didn't want. But they but they didn't want to say no and have him leave and disrupt everything. So yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. And then bang, coronavirus. Yeah, we don't need you anymore. Goodbye. (laughs) That's that's what it looks like. It's a calculated risk for them too because if they don't come back strong, you know, Ryan's a a good personality and he played in all the games and he you know he filled the seats when they were not full and he was. a good personality to play. He was an action player for the most part. And also, he just as a host of the game, he seemed to be good at getting people into these games, and, it's, and partially because of the contacts he made from running oh, yeah. Life at the Bike, so that they could run these private room games over there. And, and oh, really, yeah, he had Randall Emmett running games in there. Yeah, he had yeah. all the Vanderpump Rules kids in there playing, the Storage Wars people. People with some good scratch that really didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, and and he's so so. If you have somebody that can make games like this happen, I mean, look, this isn't too different from the story in Molly's game. I mean, for sure, as far as smaller scale, yeah, yeah. smaller scale, or how these games get going. A lot, a lot of times, these type of games, these private room games or or private games, it's it's who can uh, who's going to be in the game as to whether the game goes and how long it goes. And Ryan was good at getting people in there that people wanted to play with, and the games would Definitely. go along. They go a long time, and they made a lot more rake. And so he really thought, okay, it's going to be win-win here. It's uh, the bike's going to do better, and I'm going to get more money because I'm going to get a piece of the rake, and I'll get a better salary. Okay, sweet. And then, and then he just gets jerked around, and then then they have to close because of the coronavirus, and then and then they lay him off. So I understand why he's pissed off. Yeah, that's messed up because he deserves it. Yeah, so that's that's too bad, and uh, you never know what's going to happen. Like who who would have guessed that? In June 2020, they were going to see Ryan Feldman bashing the bike and live at the bike. Yeah, yeah, and I'd never thought that. And in fact, I didn't even know that until you said it just now. That blew me away. Yeah, I, I thought they were locked in forever. That's that's what I thought too. So that's that's very interesting and, and unfortunate for him. And uh, so so I retweeted it, and that, that's how he and I started talking about this situation. Is I I retweeted it and said something in support that uh, this is another company that's clueless on how to properly let go of a very valuable employee. And uh, and then he sent me some private messages and explained a little bit more and said that he'd like to come on. In fact, I didn't even have to ask him to come on. He said he would like to come on, but uh, but he can't right now, but maybe in the future. Oh, he'd be great. So that's, that's unfortunate. And uh, just wanted to put that out there and you know, the bike, I played there in 2019 more than I had any other year because I started. I love the bike. I, I started going there for variety. Uh, when I started playing a little more live poker in 2019. And and uh, so I started going to both there and Commerce, or sometimes I, I don't live close to either one of them. So sometimes I'll drive to Commerce and uh, the game sucks or it's a long time to a long wait to get into the game, or sometimes they just want to change and I'll just go directly to the bike first. Uh, so I, I played to the bike more than I, I ever have. And uh, one thing that did bother me was that uh, they were making an effort for a while to try to take the 40, 80, 60, 120 type action from commerce, which I thought was great to have competition for that. And and so they started doing some more player friendly things that Commerce refused to do. Commerce then had to half of their rake in order to try to temporarily compete with with, with the bike. They were so afraid of the bike taking their, their action with the, with the lower rake and with the, the the better treatment of the players. 
But then at one point, the, the bike started to just decide, you know, screw it. We don't have to do this. And they started going back on a lot of the things they had before. And they started to get very uh, difficult with with simple things. Like the game would start to break down late at night. And uh, and people would want to convert it to a, a time charge instead of a rake. And, and, and they just they just don't want to do it. They they uh, like, like we were playing forty eighty, and the thing was sixty one twenty was a time charge, forty eighty was rake, which was the way that it is in commerce too. But we said, okay, look, it's just three of us here. It was actually three player when I was we were down to three handed, and all three of us were, were good players that were remaining there. So it wasn't even like uh, the game was going to go because there's some fish. It's going to go to no matter what. Like. The, the three of us said, hey, we're going to play. We all enjoy shorthanded, even though all of us are good. But uh, we really prefer to play, instead of this 40-80 with a kill, with a half kill, actually, uh, we'd rather play 61-20 with a time charge and no kill. And they said, well, you can do what you want with a kill. You can take it out of the game if you want. But we are not converting it to 61-20 because that's a time charge game. And we don't want the morning to come when the game fills up again. And it's weird. This is like very late at night. We, we don't want the morning to come. The game fills up again, and it's still sixty-one twenty in a time charge. We don't want that, so we're just not doing it. We're, we're not letting you convert this to sixty-one twenty. And we said, "Well, this is just okay. Can you do it for a few hours, and we'll agree to quit?" No, we're not doing that. We're just not doing it. Tough luck. No, big no. And that was it. And this is the bike. This is the bike. Yeah. So I wow. said, "I said, well, you know, that that annoyed me." I said. I started going here more in part because I heard they had a better attitude than commerce, and and. Uh, and then they didn't. Now, not the commerce has a great attitude. They, they don't either. And that's that's why I started going to the bike more. I, I didn't quit commerce, but I started going to the bike more. And, and if I had really liked it there, then I, I would have mainly gone there and, and almost quit commerce. But they kind of both became the same. And that was disappointing. So uh, it, it was funny also with, with, with the bike. This is this isn't a staffing issue. Like they have no control about this. But I found a weird phenomenon with the games there. That if the games were shorthanded, they weren't good. Like they were good players in it only, and, and no fish. But if they were full, they were very good. So like the full ring forty eighty, there's like a lot of fish in that game, way more than the typical forty eighty of commerce, which is hit and miss anyway. Sometimes that game's a lot better than others, but but like every time it was full ring at the bike forty eighty, there were like a few players who just outright sucked. And at, at commerce, you don't see that that often. It was it was a much better game at the bike when it's full. But then at Commerce, there are some players that aren't very good that will play shorthanded. Like, none of them want to play shorthanded at the bike. All the fish at the bike would quit when we go shorthanded, which, obviously, they have no control, but I just found that was an interesting difference between the two places. So, uh, I, I started to just, when it, when it would go, as much as I like shorthanded, I wouldn't, like, I started to notice that the fish were never going to come in if it once it went short. So, I, I started to just make it where I wouldn't stay that long, that much longer after it went uh, short. I would you know, I, I I wouldn't be a dick and just quit on them because people don't like that when you just quit short and uh, people feel like they uh, you're just blindsiding them with it. So when it when it's like a few people left, what you typically do, at least at this level, is you you come to an agreement. Okay, I'm going to leave soon, but uh, how about we play 20 more minutes or 30 more minutes, and then we quit at exactly this time. Whoever's on the blind, too bad. Okay, and then, like everybody agrees to that, and then they stick to it. And you're you're not bound to it, but you're a dick if you violate that and. You know, I, I don't want to be a dick to people. I want to be a man of my word. And usually everybody else is too. Usually I don't get screwed with that. So uh, that's, that's usually what I would do when it would go short is if, unless I really want to continue playing short, I just say, uh, okay, guys, I'm going to leave soon. So let's pick an amount of time we want to keep playing and then uh, and then it'll be done. So, 
Anyway, uh, good luck to Ryan for whatever he's going to do next. And uh, maybe he can start uh, a live stream somewhere else. I know Live at the Bike still exists. Uh, like it's, it, it's not like Live at the Bike is dead. But uh, you saw with Stones before they had their puzzle incident that there was room for a second live stream to rise up and become popular. It, it wasn't a monopoly for Live at the Bike. There, there definitely was uh, room for a second one to compete. And Stones, in fact, really had a decent chance to challenge Live at the Bike for poker live stream supremacy had they not decided to have cheating as part of it. <laughs> oh, well, they'll have another one. Who was the dude? Uh, uh, Lyman or something? Lyman, yeah. Yeah, he, you know, and he he was the head honcho there for a while. Well, he wasn't a head honcho. He had, he had a... I think he had a piece of it, and, and of course he did commentating. He and I don't get along, but uh, he's been on the show before. I don't think many people get along with that guy. <laughs> he has well, a lot more <laughs> fans than I'd expect, including some who listen to this show. And I, I, I couldn't ever get into him because, number one, his voice really annoys me. It's, it oh, sounds yeah. like he needs to clear his throat. Hey guys, well, I mean, like I, 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 I can't stand. That's why he had the nerve when I called into his show to talk about my voice and said, have you heard yourself? Like, how can, <laughs> how can you say anything about anyone else's voice? You're, you're, it is so, in fact, uh, when, when he was on my show one time, someone thought he was a co-host, and someone remarked to their wife or girlfriend who they were listening with, they're like, this new co-host that Druff has sucks. I can't stand this guy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for some reason, he has a fan base, and... Uh, the Still, problem, well, I mean, I haven't heard of him. Well, no, no, he, he, no, pe- like people who wish he'd come back. Oh, okay, I, I don't. He can't. He comes back to Twitter every so often and then gets banned. <laughs> he, makes he, sense. He, he did that a few a few months ago. Came back to Twitter and we briefly went back and forth, and then he's just gone. And I I didn't report him. I never report anybody unless they like post my personal info or something. But other than that, I don't. I don't report. Like if people are mean to me on Twitter, I don't report them. But. uh but but someone reported him because he was gone, not related to me. So anyway, uh, good luck to Ryan Feldman. Yes. So um, what we're going to do here is uh, we're going to do the uh, segment about Mike Postle. It's actually a good uh, transition because uh, a big story came down regarding Mike Postle and not a good story. So we're going to do that segment here, which actually – would have been the big story of this show if it wasn't for the fact that we got uh, Dutch Boyd on here. And uh, Postle almost became secondary, believe it or not. So, uh, Well, according to Bill Perkins, his news is way more important. That's right. Than that's right. You're, you're right. You're right, Vintage One. Postle did become secondary because there, <laughs> there is some multi-accounting going on. And that's the, the biggest thing to ever happen to poker. Ever. Ever. <laughs> although, although... Monetarily wise, he uh, Jungle Man probably ripped these guys off for way more than Possel. Yeah, well, that was the, that was the point that was being raised by by Perkins saying, "Well, it kind of was bigger because it was for more money." I go, well, right, I, I understand right. the point, but that's you don't say I, that because news he doesn't wise, see your cards. <laughs> yeah, like news wise, this wasn't even close. But it it was interesting still. It wasn't a non-story. It just wasn't what he. Uh, if he just didn't say this Possel thing, this would have been received differently because there there not was there sure, was reason to sure. complain that's not like, it's not like bill complained for nothing for sure right. he got screwed there and for sure like he was targeted and it looks like bill's area but was jungle too. still has to beat you fair and square yeah 
Apostle right. beats you no matter what. Yes, uh, it, and that's where I've always it's talked about different. the degrees of cheating, and, and uh, multi-accounting is one of the lower forms of cheating, but it, it is still a form of cheating, definitely unethical. So, uh, especially with multi-accounting, when you think you're playing a fish and you're not, that's worse than just like you're playing a random that you, you don't know anything about them. So, but but uh, so I, I understand why Perkins was pissed, and he had a right to be oh, pissed, and, sure. and, and he had a right to call it out. And it was an interesting story. It's not like if, like no one would have said, Perkins, why are you bringing this out? You're being a drama queen. Like if you just put it out there and said this is what's happening, people would have been very right. interested and would well, not I'm have not criticized. I'm not even them. sure Perkins is going to put it out unless uh, Belzarian blasts it out. Yeah, it, it, right. That may not have happened. He he was <laughs> he kind of like stopped short. Like like Jungle Man actually kind of tricked him. It's like, hey. Uh, I'll, I'll, don't out me. I'll tell you everything. Okay, I promise not to out you. Right. Okay, well, everything's actually nothing. I actually don't know right. anything. <laughs> and let's face it, Bill Perkins, he's a fanboy of all these guys. He loves to be included in that circle. Yeah, that's, he doesn't want to blow that. And that's he why he was tell. so. That you could tell he was so disappointed too. Like he really, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. He, he really wanted to be part of that circle that they trust yeah. him. And he, he he trusts them and they trust him. And then this oh, happens. He tried and, so hard. He's tried so hard. And then this happens. He's like, oh, do they just see me as some rich guy who's a mark? Wow, that sucks. Like I could tell he was really hurt by the whole thing. And, and it's understandable. I'm not criticizing that at all. Oh, yeah. It makes, you know? it makes I mean, sense. Just because he's got billions of dollars doesn't mean he should be fucking shorted. Okay, next topic. So as I mentioned earlier in the intro, the cases against accused live stream cheater Mike Possel and alleged accomplice to that cheating scheme, tournament director Justin Caradis, who is an employee of Stone's Gambling Hall in the Sacramento area, that case has been dismissed. This is not an entirely surprising development, but very disappointing. I think just about everybody in poker is not happy to see this. I'm sure Apostle and his buddies are. I'm sure Justin is. I'm sure their friends are. Maybe even someone like Lon McCarran is, because he's very pro-Stones, because of working with them in the past. But for most of us, this is a very disappointing development because what this shows is that you can cheat right on a live stream, get caught, have a year and a half of evidence right on video showing you did it, and you get away with it. So this was a civil case, in case you're forgetting. This is the one that was brought by attorney Mac Verstandig, who does a lot of poker cases. That seems to be most of his practice. And he's been successful in the past, but this one was an uphill battle from the start. Now, I'm not saying it's foolish to do that. In fact, uh, our own Eric Benzamokin had said that he had some interest in uh, doing a case like this, but then uh, Mac Verstanda grabbed the ball and ran with it, so that didn't happen. So, obviously, suing Postle and suing Stones and suing uh, Justin Caritas, these were a decent idea, but it was by no means a slam dunk, just because... We can watch the Chicago Joey videos where he analyzes Possel's play for hours and hours and hours and come to our own independent conclusions that he was cheating and be pretty sure of it. And, and I still feel the same way, and I bet you do too. Just because you can do that doesn't mean that you can beat him in a court of law, and of course it doesn't mean that he will be uh, criminally prosecuted. It's very clear he won't. That's been clear for a long time. But there was some hope that the civil case would uh, end up in the favor of the plaintiffs, and it did not. There were, I believe, 88 plaintiffs as part of this suit. Then there's a separate suit by uh, Marley Cordero. I don't believe it involves this one, but I have to imagine it's going to go the same way. That is also being handled by Mac Verstandig. 
And uh, this one, the, the main person, the main plaintiff, I guess, is uh, Veronica Brill, the whistleblower of this whole thing. And then all those other plaintiffs are part of it as well. I think it's like uh, Veronica Brill et al. versus uh, uh, Mike Postle versus Justin Kuretis, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, those got uh, dismissed. And uh, you may wonder how that could happen. In fact, you may wonder, based upon what evidence was this dismissed? Or uh, how did the court see all this and still dismiss it? Well, it was actually dismissed on a technicality. And it's very simple. We're going to have uh, Eric Benzamokin on here shortly. We're going to call him up and he's going to explain that technicality. But uh, from what I can tell, it has to do with California state law and just that California state law doesn't really allow for such things. And sometimes that's just the way it goes. Sometimes something is morally wrong. Sometimes something feels like it's something you can sue someone for and then you realize you can't. You realize that state law prohibits a successful lawsuit. And that's that's the way court works. You have to go by existing state law or existing federal law if it's a federal suit. And here, there's a, it looks like there is no way to succeed. Now, there could have been alternate ways to have gone about this, and uh, we'll see if Eric wants to tell us about that as well. But uh, it, it would be, it would have been an uphill battle no matter what method was being used. It's just a hard thing to get done for several reasons. Some of it is state law involving collecting gambling winnings or getting anything related to gambling back if you get victimized in some way. The state state law in California is very immature as far as that is concerned and has been pretty much since the beginning. And then also the problem is, and we didn't even get to this part, but had we gotten to this part, the second problem would be proving that cheating occurred. Just because you can watch it as someone who knows poker and say, oh, yeah, he was cheating, proving that in a court of law can be difficult. Now, proving it in a civil case is not as hard as proving it criminally. Proving it criminally would have been very difficult without some kind of smoking gun because you have to do it beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very high standard. That means where the jury cannot vote to convict if they think there's even a small chance that he's innocent. Even if they think it's like 90 percent he's guilty, they can't convict him. In civil court, it's different. Civil court, it's uh, preponderance of the evidence. So that means it's if anything is slightly above 50-50, then it goes to that side in civil court. So that's a very, very big difference. So uh, the civil case did have some chance of succeeding for that reason. But the biggest hurdle was the California state law. Mac Verstandig, he tried his best... And he tried to throw as much as he could against the wall to see what sticks, and it did not. So we're going to call up Eric Benzamokin rather than just have me guess at this. This is why we have an attorney who has generously made himself available to the show for questions like these. In the past, I used to just have to analyze this myself as an amateur and sometimes sound like a fool and then have attorneys text me afterwards and tell me how stupid I sounded. Eric Benzamokin, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. (laughs) Hey, thanks. How are you guys doing? Well, we are doing okay. A lot of stuff to cover this week, and uh, I would have actually liked for this to be the lead topic, but it's it's unfortunately not uh, because of the Dutch interview. But I'm glad you can come on here and give us your expertise once again, because uh, as I was saying, we need to have an attorney here that can correct things that I'm going to guess at that are wrong. So 
Actually, you're the one who told me about this first. I was actually sleeping when you texted me about this. <laughs> I, I I woke up to see that and I go, oh no! Like I, I even had to click on it. Like I just had to see the the heading and go, okay, my, I know what happened. And I, I I wasn't sure why I knew it was uh, some legal technicality why it was dismissed before it even got going. Uh, once I read the article, I, I mostly understood. But I will tell you that there's some questions here. From what I can tell, and then you can you can give the more detailed version. From what I can tell, this was dismissed because California state law is immature when it comes to uh, collecting damages related to gambling. Is that true? Yeah, it's it's that um, in in California under state law, it's not that it's it's not that you can't collect damages. It's that the courts are forbidden from resolving gaming or gambling disputes. And it's an old statute, um, but that's what was being relied on by Stones and then, of course, uh, Possil and Caritas uh, by extension. Now, the case against Stones, uh, that, that part wasn't dismissed. Is that correct? Right, because there's other allegations. So the as far as uh, fraud or fraudulent conduct, they, it, it, they have uh, leave to amend, which is, common in certain uh, situations. So it's because this was brought in federal court, uh, this was filed under what's called Rule 12B6. 12B6 is where you ask the court to dismiss the case because the party that filed the lawsuit failed to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. That's the technical term. So on the gaming dispute statute, the judge was correct in the manner in which he interpreted the statute. Not to say that the law is... Uh, correct for today's day and age, but the interpretation was correct. You can't state a claim for relief if the courts are forbidden to give you that relief, and so dismissing those counts was correct. So what's left is the judge will allow Mac for standing to uh, amend his complaint to conform more along the lines of what, whatever comments the court put out as far as the remaining allegations. So it's not necessarily over um, as far as stoned, and their insurance carrier may still have to cough something up to an extent, Again, the real question now is going to be damages as far as what can Stones be held liable for, damages-wise. And especially if you don't have real solid proof or evidence that Stones was either complicit in or directly involved in the scandal. Okay, so, so, uh, so, that, yeah, yeah, so I want to I'm ask you a question uh, directly about that. That's the reason I interrupted you. Sorry about that. But uh, I know there was uh, something that was dismissed regarding uh, negligent misrepresentation because uh, the plaintiffs failed to disclose the identity of who his accomplice was at uh, Stones. And I, I always was curious about that, too. Like, they're saying someone helped him, but then they can't say who. And then you say, well, if you don't know who helped him, how do you know for sure somebody helped him? That, to me, that was a whole. Uh, and and uh, the judge must have agreed, and uh, he dismissed the negligent misrepresentation. Now, do you know if that was part of the Stones, uh, the suit against Stones, or the suit against Postle and, and Caritas? Well, actually, it's probably all, all of the above, because you can't plead that there was some kind of partnership or conspiracy or accomplice uh, if you can't identify them. You can't use a Doe defendant. Uh, you, have you ever seen this caption of a lawsuit where you'll have, you know, so-and-so is suing A, B, C, and D, and then you'll see, and Doe's 1 through 50. Right, right. And, and like I know, about, I, yeah, I know about that, where you, you're, you're basically naming people to be uh, discovered later, that you you know they did something, but you don't know who they are yet, and this way, it, I think it's to get around statute of limitations problems if it takes a while to find exactly the identities of those who uh, who, who committed the uh, the offense. 
Right. So I don't, I don't have the full decision now in front of me because I, I had to travel from my office, but it's likely that there may be room to amend the complaint by identifying a potential Doe defendant from before and saying, okay, well, we've identified this person as the one involved um, in aiding and abetting or, or, or you know, in, in participating in this um, fraud or this, uh, you know, this, this tort or whatever. So it's possible that they're going to try to use uh, that and say, okay, well, this is a Doe defendant that we're now identifying. But if, unless they're able to substantially amend the complaint to really specify, and that's really the trick, at the pleading stage, which is where we are, we're in the pleading stage, uh, you have to plead your case with enough specificity so that it can withstand these types of motions, right? The idea is that the answering defendant has to know what the allegations against him really are, and they have to be sufficient enough to where he can respond uh, intelligently. And the attorney for Stones, because... I'm sure you know, Possible just got the benefit of Stone's counsel, uh, for sure. And so, to, you know, Karite is obligated to be defended by Stone's as an employee. So uh, the, the Stone's attorney did a good job. They picked, they picked the statute, and they saw it and dismissed the majority of the bigger uh, causes of action, and Possible got the benefit of that. And now uh, the amending the complaint to try to get more specificity, I don't think Max is going to be able to do it. It's going to be really hard. I think you'll have a renewed motion to dismiss, and the case might be over after that. Yeah. Uh, this law that uh, they did this based upon, uh, is it really true this is a law from 1851 that uh, did not yeah. permit litigation <laughs> related to, to litigation related to claims stemming from card games? I mean, that really is the time of the California gold rush when, when people would be in, in small uh, small towns that were mining gold and, and, and playing poker afterwards or other card games uh, so, so they couldn't sue each other. Which, that, that kind of made sense, but that was a, that was a crazy time. There was uh, almost like a lawless time in California, uh, and it was, it was 170 years ago. So uh, it, it's unbelievable that they would not have updated a law from 1851 in California, of all places. Uh, of course, California has a different history than, than the eastern part of the country, which uh, was much more civilized in 1851, which still, of course, everywhere has changed tremendously since then. But uh, in California especially, it would, when they say the wild, wild west, that's what it's referring to, is, is places like California in 1851. So that's that, that's crazy. Uh, I, I, there's something in 1999, a case that this uh, – already came up and that they were basically relying upon that case from 21 years ago that used this law. Do you know much about that case? I don't know the case, but I know the the statute is an 1850s statute, and it was when uh, things here in California, and specifically in the northern part during the gold rush, you had a lot of these, uh, what I would call like pop-up casinos or these small saloons, or you'd have the hustlers that would come through, you know, with their gaming kits, and uh, they'd stick around for two, three nights, and then they'd take off. People felt cheated. They wanted some form of redress. And at some point, the, the state basically said, look, we, we were going to stay out of this. This is, you know, everybody kind of, you know, you're on your own here. Uh, but that was before gaming in California at the state level was regulated. But the statutes haven't caught up to uh, the sophistication that the state is now in as far as its gaming. Um, and this is strictly at a state level. I'm not talking about the Indian casinos, which is, technically part of their own sovereign land. They kind of make their own rules, you know, but our, you know, commerce or the bike or players club, all these state chartered uh, locations that have gaming licenses uh, are, are still all subject to this. So if you think about the far reaching effect 
in a sense, if uh, a dealer at commerce is dealing a marked deck or off the bottom of the deck to a player that he's partners with, commerce can't be held responsible for that, which really doesn't make any sense at all. Forget that you can't even sue the dealer, right? If, if I'm a player at that table and I suffer incredibly big losses because the dealer is using a marked deck with a partner of his, even though commerce is regulated and licensed, uh, it leaves no redress under the statute. So it, it's very primitive. It's a very primitive statute. It's akin to uh, on the books, for example, I think it's still in Texas that horse theft is still punishable by death. And that it was just never, you know, the, the statutes, the state codes were just never amended. They were never updated. Yeah, I'll see things like that on, on the web. I'll see like uh, clickbait articles where you click on them and they tell you about some crazy state laws that have been on the books for a very long time that just don't make sense in today's modern society and they just never took them off. So that's, uh, this kind of sounds like that in a way. I'm not that surprised that California hasn't updated the law. But in another way, I am surprised. I'm not surprised in that... Because there's so many Indian casinos here, they may figure, well, why bother updating laws? Because we can't apply these laws anyway. They they make uh, all their own rules, and you cannot sue them over there. So that uh, that may be why they felt less urgency to do so. However, California has had legalized card rooms since, I think, the 60s. And those are not Indian properties, and those can be sued. So that's why I'm surprised that in all this time, with these legalized card rooms in California, with there being so many of them, that they have not updated a law that dates back to 1851. That's really exposing a big hole. Uh, Veronica Brill, she tweeted, just letting the poker community know that if you decide to cheat on a live stream, that you're free to do so. There will be no accountability for your actions, and you are free to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars. The casino and employees who might help you are not accountable. I kind of feel bad for her. You know, she was she really kind of took a risk, you know, being the one to sort of start this ball rolling. And I don't think there's any doubt after watching so many of the different analyses performed by so many people uh, that there was absolute cheating going on. That Mike Possel, without a doubt, was involved, uh, if not the, the conductor. He clearly was... Um, partnering with somebody that had the ability to manipulate the RFID feed into his phone or, or whatever it was. Um, and I don't think it's a big stretch to say it was Justin Caritas, but without a doubt, somebody from uh, the staff at Stone, some, one of their employees, had to have been a knowing participant, you know, a, a co-conspirator, if you will. And that's that's why I think if I, if I were to make a prediction, I think when Mac redoes the complaint and amends it, I think you might see uh, civil RICO as a potential cause of action, although it's not often pled, um, but it has more teeth sometimes. I think you're going to see more specific allegations of fraud and fraudulent conduct because those are harder to dismiss. Even though fraud has a higher pleading standard, um, once you kind of meet that standard, the courts are more interested to kind of let justice play out at that point. They're, they're not. They're, it's not easy to let a fraudster go, you know, just go uh, unpunished. So I think that I think that there's you know look Max got his work cut out for him, um, and this judge has already sort of laid the foundation as far as what he expects and what Mac can expect from the courts uh, if he doesn't really significantly amend this complaint uh, this complaint to address the what the court perceived as the shortcomings. Um, but then, and then there's a practical you know sort of side of this in that uh, look Mike Postle unless he puts on a wig and a you know fake beard. Uh, he's going to have a hard time making a living playing poker, you know, for the foreseeable future. Uh, maybe he can get to a point where he can play online. Supposedly he was really good at that at one point, or at least so he said. 
Um, but you know, that's really about it. Um, and stones, again, there's still a chance that stones will settle something. I think the mistake was that too many people were added to the lawsuit. I think if it were one or two key players that had larger recorded losses, there might've been a better chance. might've been a little bit easier to plead it out. Uh, and you know, as far as the complaint goes, and uh, that's it. We're going to have to wait and see what happens now. It's interesting you mentioned the, the number of people because uh, now this wasn't a major part of the case. This was only a small amount. Veronica had a libel complaint against uh, Apostle, and that was also dismissed. And that was dismissed supposedly, and this is according to an article I'm reading. I haven't read the decision. But uh, this is supposedly dismissed because uh, when Apostle said that her claims were completely fabricated, that uh, there were so many people involved in the suit that he could have been referring to anyone. Now, I, I didn't think that this had to do with what he responded regarding the suit. I thought that this was in response to her initial claims about him. Uh, now, I guess the same thing could be said. But uh, And besides, wouldn't, the, wouldn't any response that he gives in the lawsuit be covered under what's known as litigants privilege to where you can't uh, sue someone for what they're claiming about you as part of a court case? Yeah, that, that'd be that, that's a defense to it to that kind of lawsuit, but I don't think it really had legs to begin with. Um, you know, any kind of defamation or, or libel. There's there's just too much publicity around the case. There are too many opinions. There are too many people involved. There's no way to pinpoint any one person um, because of the number of people involved. And it, it was just kind of foolish. It, to be honest, it's just as foolish as the idea of trying to seek sanctions against Mike Postle for having somebody allegedly ghostwrite his responses. Um, yeah, that, you know, was, that was that never was, gonna, yeah that was never going to work. Yeah, that was that was dismissed as well. Uh, as, now I saw in this article it's claiming that uh, things that can go forward with possibly would be uh, against Stone's uh, fraud and negligent misrepresentation and uh, negligence by Caritas. So maybe the maybe the negligent negligent misrepresentation maybe that was only dismissed against uh, against Postle and Caritas. It wasn't totally clear in this article, but uh, uh, it was said that maybe. The best chance they have is recovering the rake that was collected during these games, which isn't all well, that we, much money. But no, I'm funny. We talked about that before because that's right. What did stones? How did stones profit out of this? Right? What are the damages as to stones? And that would be the only damages you could say that stones got, got from these players that were cheated was the rake, which you're right, it isn't going to amount to very much. And the other interesting thing too, which is which is also very important, is that even uh, negligent misrepresentation. Uh, when a claim is for negligence, regardless of the degree of negligence, if it's not intentional conduct, you lose punitive damages. So the idea that Stones may only be responsible for five or $10,000 in collected rake over the period of time, but we're going to get them for $2 million in punitive damages is out the window. Uh, you can't get punitive damages with negligence claims, only with intentional torts. Now, so, now, couldn't it said it was? Couldn't it be said it was? It was intentional because Postle had to have help from an employee there, most likely to accomplish this. Yeah, but intentional on whose part? Only on Postle's and this unnamed employee that they can't name. So they were negligent in not supervising their employee, right? You can advance that legal theory, uh, or they were negligent to allow somebody into their production trailer or not, you know, keeping it secured or things like that. But you're never going to get the uh, the kind of intentional tort against Stones. That would give rise to punitive damages. So, so you're saying? I don't think so. So you're saying here that that'd be very hard to do uh, if, if it wasn't Stones as an organization deciding to do this. If it was just a rogue employee, they can't they can't get the punitive damages. Right, because that, that's where you get down to this idea of like negligent supervision and 
And then to what extent do your employees' actions uh, fall upon the employer? And if an employee is acting outside of the scope of his employment, it's hard to impute the damage back on the employer to that full extent. So if my paralegal uh, does an intake interview with a potential client and does something wrong and we do something, you know, we file the wrong chapter of bankruptcy for that person, for example, uh, I could be responsible for her mistake and I'm supposed to supervise what she does. On the other hand, if my paralegal goes outside of the office and, uh, you know, hustles clients on the streets without me knowing about it, makes promises I'm not aware of, that's well outside the scope of what her employment is, and I may not be responsible at that point. I see. And so I think that's kind of like, you know, so you can argue that, uh, that Stones, you know, they're not responsible for if Justin Caritas went so far outside the scope of his employment as a tournament director there or as the manager of the, the live stream. Um, he, you know, none of, you know, he, it's not in his job description to, uh, partner up with a player and start thieving and, and stealing and cheating players. So I think that they're going to have a real hard time, uh, getting any kind of tortious conduct or intentional conduct, uh, in this new complaint. And I think that with, with these negligence causes of action, the only recovery, I mean, there's a, there's different ways to calculate damages, but the, all the damages have to be based on some kind of actual loss or some way of calculating. It can't be uh, uh, punitive, which is meant to punish the perpetrator. So right. there is none of that anymore. So, so without the punitive aspect to it, and since the rake could not have been that much money, it doesn't seem like the Stones would have much motivation to settle other than saving on uh, legal fees because uh, the worst-case scenario, what, they lose, uh, as you said, five ten thousand $10,000 and collected rake over a year and a half in, the, in that game only? I mean, that's uh, that's that's nothing for them. So you, you, would there be any motivation to settle, or do you think they're just going to take it to the end here? No, they would settle because at some point, uh, depending on the kind of insurance they have, uh, they may get back charge or surcharge for something like this if they have to pay the defense uh, team, unless they're not running it through their insurance, if Stones is paying their attorneys privately or directly uh so at this point they might make some kind of like what's called a nuisance settlement offer uh which would be like you know something equivalent like look we anticipate it's going to cost us another 25 or thirty thousand to defend this into summary judgment or to get you dismissed 100 percent we'll give you 20 grand to walk away and life goes on um i don't think that mac and this is a different kind of problem but because of the amount of publicity that was generated out of this case i don't think mac can take that kind of offer i think he's going to have to keep going forward Otherwise, it's going to look really bad for him and for all the people that were that signed on as as potential victims. Okay, but uh, why would there be a twenty thousand dollar offer if the rake if the rake was less than that? Uh, why would they offer more than the most they could lose? Even if uh, even for the reasons you said, like how would how would a settlement end up like that when when the whole thing well they becomes clear they, so they can't so lose so that much. Like, yeah, so it's like an actuarian. You you take into account the number of hours it's going to cost to defend up to a certain point, file renewed motions to dismiss, deal with the oppositions to those motions, any replies, appearances, research time, uh, and then you sprinkle in a little bit of risk, right? Because what if we don't win all that? We still have to keep progressing with the case. And so if it's going to cost the Stone's legal team twenty or 25000 in additional legal fees, uh, oftentimes they'll come back and say, look, it's going to cost us X to get to this next point where we think we're going to get you all dismissed. So rather than us spend twenty five thousand on our lawyers, we'll give you twenty just to end this right now, and life goes on, and that eliminates the risk for close to what they would have to spend anyway, uh, but not leave it in a judge's hand. So it's a it's a way to kind of calculate your risk in in, in, in an actuarian sort of perspective. And uh, are I, I assume if this were to happen, that they would have something that this this is. Uh 
being settled without admitting wrongdoing so that it doesn't appear to the public that they have admitted there was cheating on their live stream? Without a doubt, there, there would be a mutual release and very common boilerplate settlement template language starts off with, you know, both sides have a desire to settle. No, neither side is admitting to any wrongdoing. All claims past, present, and future are hereby released. And for valuable consideration in the same, and you know, and then you just go and kind of go step by step. But that's one of the very first things. No side admits any wrongdoing to the other. And these are often uh, when when cases go to mediation and settle in mediation. Uh, that's also one of the first things they do. Like, look, we just desire to end things and move on. And almost always, it's an economic uh, motivator at that point. And you know, nobody's going to say they're right or wrong. We're just going to end things and settle and move on. And so, yeah, there will be no admission of guilt or any kind of wrongdoing. Uh, I'd be surprised, to be honest, if they relaunched the live stream after all everything. Yeah, I would be too. Kind of I, I think that's done, and 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 uh, I, I think we both know why. I think everybody knows why. Uh, but uh, and that's the thing. That's the way they're going to hurt the most. By the, for those of you wondering, if if they get out of this with either uh, no judgments against them and no settlements or some kind of small settlement uh, like we just discussed. You may say, well, everybody got away with it. Well, not quite, because Possel did have his reputation permanently ruined. And as, as, as uh, Eric said here, it's going to be hard for him to play live poker and, and really go to any casino without uh, running into people who hate him. I mean, he's, he's known far and wide by, I, I know, recreational poker players who don't even follow news in poker who know who he is. Uh, but then the second thing is Stones, they had a really good thing going with that live stream. It was rapidly growing. They were getting big names on that stream, bigger and bigger and bigger. And they were really becoming a second live at the bike. And who knows, they could have even eclipsed live at the bike. They were really uh, well-respected for this. Everyone liked the live stream. Uh, it was rapidly gaining in popularity and notoriety. And this could have led to Stones not only having that uh, be very popular, but they could have parlayed that into the card room growing, becoming more profitable, becoming more influential, having major tournaments there. Uh, Stones, no one knew about Stones prior to these live streams, except for people in the local Sacramento area. And uh, and I'm talking before the scandal. Uh, people learned about Stones, and, and uh, Stones started to become a destination for A-list well-known poker players to play on that stream. And uh, that'll never happen. Could you ever see a, a high-profile poker player playing on that stream again? If they were to start it again, it would only be locals. Nobody would go on it because uh, it has such a bad reputation now and people would not want to support it. So it, that the prospect of that ever happening is dead, even if they do start it up. Yeah, I, I agree. Running a live stream for Stones at this point is, is negative EV. They're, they're not going to... There's no, there's no positive that can come out of that. Well, them. it's funny. They actually tried right after this, right after this blew up. They stupidly tried to keep running it, and in fact, they arrogantly put on Possel's brother and just listed him as quote Possel, which is really like a big middle <laughs> finger to everybody. So uh, what they found was that when they ran this live stream, it was just the entire chat was just trolls. It was nothing but trolls bashing them. And uh, and then they tried it the next time and they got bashed. Or they, they, they I think they ran it like three times before fi- finally shutting it down, even without Apostle's brother, because they realized that every time they started, all they get is, is, is trolls making fun of them. And and as you said, it's negative EV. It's not something that uh, gets them respect or, or, or positive marketing. All that happens is anyone who watches the live stream reads about how they cheat. So that that's not something they want. Yeah, I you know I, it, it wouldn't make sense for them to try first. I, for the foreseeable future, they're going to run four or five or six handed. 
um, which may be okay for a live stream, but I don't think you're going to have as much excitement anyway. You know, part of what makes the live at the bike such a success is because you've got your, you know, your four or five uh, regulars that are, you know, kind of characters uh, or that have developed reputations over time and people tune in to watch them. Uh, Stones would have to start all over again with a shorter handed game. Um, and there's going to be this stigma uh, and the reputation is going to follow them for a very, very long time. Uh, they'd be smart enough. I, I believe they're smart enough to just, you know, not not attempt another foray into that. Live, you know, survive off of their local business, and eventually, over a little bit of time, this will just sort of quietly go away under the rug, and that'll be it. Yeah, I think that's the plan too. I think they just, just going to return to being a, a local room and uh, and and just hope people either don't know about it or know about it but don't know that much and they just enjoy playing there and that since it's just a live game with no cameras that people aren't going to be that worried even if they do know about it and that's that and, and just hope that it all goes away and that as time passes people become less pissed and less aware of it so that's that seems to be their plan and uh so so there there are consequences that were brought upon them just from the reputation that uh like, like, who's going to hire Justin Caratus now to be a tournament director? That's another thing. Can you imagine if he tries to get another job in that capacity? There's going to be uh, uh, people hassling whatever card room hires him. So they, he may be out of that business, too. So all these people and, and, and the entities, they, they suffered some, the, the perpetrators here, the likely perpetrators. But, of course, not what they should have. The truth is, uh, if, if there's any real justice, uh, th- there would have been a criminal investigation into this. Uh, they, they would have the, the authorities would have taken different people aside to question them and try to get someone to crack on someone else uh, and and uh, and those who were perpetrating this would have been criminally charged and and been found guilty and and gone to prison for some time also with some restitution uh, requirement as well that would have been in a perfect world but of course we know especially when it comes to matters in poker and gambling where where the public is victimized uh, it's rarely a perfect world it's very far from that so uh, it's it's yeah, and it's 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 kind of too bad because that's still not necessarily out of the question. Uh, if I remember, the uh, state attorney general's office was investigating, uh, and there were also investigations with the DOJ um, because it was being streamed live and it was you know broadcast outside of California, so it could have been considered federal. Um, that investigation may or may not be over yet, and just because the civil suit may end up crashing and burning um, doesn't mean that there won't be criminal charges brought at some point. But uh, I think that the more that the state courts or the, the civil court, I should say, it's federal court, the civil courts, you know, dismiss these allegations and, and sort of let this complaint die, I think the, uh, the resources aren't going to be spent uh, in pursuing a, any kind of criminal prosecution. Yeah, and I, I kind of got the impression the whole way that they, there wasn't that much interest from a criminal standpoint on this and uh, – uh, in fact, the only indication that there was – it may have been the state DOJ. We never we never got a, uh, a clarification on that. It, it, the way we learned this was from one phone call that we made. It wasn't, it wasn't a news outlet that reported it. It was actually Poker Fraud Alert that uh, we made a, a prank call, and, and, and one of the people answering the phone there accidentally spilled it that the, quote, DOJ was there. Now, there was a state DOJ. There's a federal DOJ. We don't know which one it was, and we never got uh, further clarification. And it's possible the guy was wrong. But uh, but e- either way, uh, I, I don't expect I, – I think it's pretty much done except for, as you said, some, some kind of amended complaint that, that they're going to file uh, against Stones and maybe Caratus. And, but it looks, to me, it looks like Possel is probably out of the woods completely. It seems like it. I mean, the, if those if – those, uh, if the allegations or those 
causes of action were dismissed at this point with prejudice based on the 12B6 statute, then that's it. They can't refile them. They can't rebring them. Uh, and then Mac for standing would be what's called a stop or judicially a stop from refiling uh, similar, the same allegations, even in a lower state court and not in federal court. So, there's, there, you know, I think it's pretty much over. Yeah, it, it probably is, and that's that's too bad. And uh, do you think Apostle benefited much from having that attorney uh, ghostwriting for him, or you think he just kind of succeeded uh, under the umbrella of Stones and what they were doing? Yeah, I think it was Stones and Stones Council that really got most of this work done. And so I think Apostle just, you know, ancillary had just got the ancillary benefit of Stones having competent counsel. Uh, and it's not to say that whoever the guy was that first identified himself as Apostle's attorney wasn't a good guy or a competent attorney. I just, I, I just have a feeling that the uh, the counsel and the firm that Stones hired was probably much better, and Apostle was just, just, you know, just ultimately got the benefit of the motions that they brought to dismiss. Yeah, that's, sometimes that's just uh, that's just the way it is with with the, if the law does not support your case, even if you're morally in the right, and it seems like on the surface you should win. I, there's not much you can do, and uh, sometimes it's it's a huge uphill battle. I wasn't aware of this uh, 1851 law. Were you aware of it before this whole thing? No, I had to look it up too. I mean, it's so obscure, and it makes you know, it's you wouldn't think, especially when they started regulating and legalizing cardinals in California. There was a bunch of legislation that was written uh, to go along with that. You know, as far as the number of ta- tables and the backgrounds of the dealers, and things progressed and they matured as these card rooms got better and bigger, you know, but this is something that was just sort of neglected, like just like the, you know, the, the horse theft statutes, things like that. You know, it's just left on there. Or people stop paying attention to it. People don't remember it's even there. And before you know it, a hundred years goes by or 150 years goes by. And it's, you know, just this old law still on the book somewhere. I'm actually very disappointed in general in the, the, the situation with the regulation of California gambling. Because if you look at, there's a, a number of problems. Some, some of these exist in other states or all over the country, but, but still, there's the problem with the California Gaming Commission being very weak, and it seems like they, they really don't care about issues where players get screwed. It looks like the Gaming Commission is really not, uh, doesn't get involved much in those type of complaints. They care more about what types of games they're spreading and and things like that. They they're not they're more pr- procedural in uh, what they care about rather than uh, individual instances where the uh, aggrieved can complain to them and, and get action. Unlike in Nevada, where where you can complain and, and get action if you're in the right. So that's one big problem. The second problem. This is all over the country. The fact that uh, the Indian casinos can do what they want and screw you however they want and you have absolutely no recourse and the fact that the these states made these gaming compacts that allowed that uh, and that every time the compacts have come up for renegotiation they don't try to change that is absurd and then there's this that this exposed a big hole that this type of uh, cheating can occur and uh, and there's no civil liability because of this law dating back to 1851 uh, which was attempting to address a completely different situation going on in the country with gambling. And uh, there's very few things left in this country that are similar to the way life was in 1851, especially in California, which wasn't even that civil, uh, civilized of an area yet. Of course, you, you, I guess you can look around in the past week and say the same thing here. But uh, uh, that's it, it's just very disappointing. It seems like there's there's so many failures in California law and California regulation of gambling that ultimately screws the 
honest consumer. Yeah, it's unfortunate. You're right. And, you know, this is why um, when you have these large sort of gambling disputes that are made public, you know, it's really social media and the Internet that may be solving these disputes and problems better than anything else at this point. Like the, this whole thing with Bill Perkins now and being outed by Bill Zarian and, you know, now this guy's coming forward and that guy's coming forward. It's, it's the public shaming that's causing people to kind of step up and, and take responsibility for their bad acts because there's certainly no legal redress for them anymore. Not in California, not in Nevada, really. Um, Leon Sirkinick, you know, he's a, he's the, he's the pro at that now, right? He knows exactly what he can get away with and what he can't. Yeah. That's so, a good point. yeah. So, you know, that, so I think, you know, that's the way it is now. It's, it's social media is, I think, what will ultimately, you know, get these disputes resolved or, or these, maybe in an impartial, you know, somebody famous enough that they can step in and look at both sides and say, okay, you know, I think this is the right thing or that's the right thing. But other than that, there's no legal redress. Yeah, and it's it's pretty amazing, and it's funny because I I go back and forth with people regarding online poker, and I I've I've been a big proponent for uh, many years for legalized and regulated online poker, and then every time there's some kind of fail with uh, regulated uh, gambling, especially online, but even not online, then the people who wanted to go back to the way it was uh, mock me, and go ah, how's that legalized uh, gambling going? That's really fair, isn't it? That's 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 solving all the problems, isn't it? And and my attitude was, no. It looks like it's not. It's going to have a lot of problems either way. But I I still feel the legalized and regulated route is the way to go because at least there can be some consequence with these unregulated sites. Uh, they're, they're you see they they can do what they want and get away with it, and and absolutely nothing happens. But uh, it, it it is disappointing that the regulation is so bad because. Uh, it's it's not rocket science to put together uh, proper laws for these things and to have a strong gambling control board. It's it's not especially expensive for the state. It's not uh, it's not all that difficult to do if the people putting it together have knowledge of the industry. Uh, for, for example, if if you put me with someone who is. Uh, an expert at, at writing laws, an attorney of some sort of, you know, so, someone who can do the procedural part and put them with me who knows the gaming part, uh, I, I could write much better regulations than, than what exists right now in California. So, and, and I'm just one person who, who's never even worked directly in the industry. So it's, it's very sad, and it's, uh, whenever I hear stories like this, it's frustrating. Yeah, it's, it is unfortunate, and uh, again, I think that Veronica's right that Pasta's going to get off scot free, and she, you know, she kind of stuck her neck out. And kudos to her for doing the right thing, and you know, seeing the situation for what it was, and you know, taking a big risk. But again, at the at the end of the day, the legal system is flawed uh, in certain areas, and this is one of them. And you know, we all we all kind of live and learn. And maybe this will be a catalyst for some real change or some kind of you know future legislation. There there seems to be a enough people aware of Postle and the scandal that maybe this will work its way up somehow. Uh, we can only hope. But until then, um, it is what it is. Yeah, that would be great if at least there's some long-term gain regarding the legal situation with matters like this, that uh, may- maybe someone will be motivated to update it. That would be uh, very good if at least that came out of it and there was some silver lining here. So I, I want to let you go in a, in a second here, but... Uh, uh, I was going to ask you something, but now I forgot. Okay, well, that's that's, that's what happens with these these. Shows. I have so much to think about during these shows. I sometimes, uh, but something something's escaped me here. 
especially each year I get older and older. I may sound the same, but every year my brain ages, and uh, one day I'm going to be one of these seniors at the seniors event that uh, that all the 50-year-olds are, ta- are targeting. The new 50-year-olds are going to get in. They're going to go, ah, oh, look at this 70-year-old guy. He doesn't. He, he has no clue what's going on here. I'm going to go, you know what? I was I was once a bracelet winner, and look at this bracelet. They go, ah, oh, where did you buy that from? So, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you, Eric, for coming on. I know what I was going to say. It actually was going to be asking you anything. Um, I, I just want to make a, a statement in general about Veronica since you mentioned her. Uh, something that's really been disgusting me is has been watching social media and how certain trolls have been attacking her. And I know some of the trolls are Possel himself. It's very likely Possel himself, these accounts that are created on Twitter uh, just to harass Veronica and – tweet at her in a very nasty fashion and mock her about the Postle thing. And a lot of them really look like Postle to me. They never admit to being Postle, but I'd be surprised if he's innocent in that. Uh, but I know there are actual people like this Everett Caldwell guy. And uh, there's that, that Asian grandma who I think maybe was sharing her account with Postle. There, there's these friends of his that were also attacking her and people who are ass kissers to stones or associated with stones in some way that have been attacking her. There's been a lot of different, attacks on her in social media from the pro-Postle, pro-Stones contingent, just really nasty stuff. And I, it makes me so bad to feel so bad to see this because she did the right thing. She took a risk. She called out not only cheating and, and had to risk what would happen to her if she was wrong, but uh, also did this to someone who was part of her group of friends. So it was a very tough thing to do, and I said this when she was on here, and I have a lot of respect for the fact that she came forward to do this. I have a lot of respect for her, and this we need more of this in poker, and I hate when it's answered by just constant attacks. And I know it's not the general public doing this. I know these are people with an agenda, but there's a lot of it happening. And so whenever I see this, I just uh, I always hit back at these people because it just it just disgusts me to see. And Postle himself, I mean, he's a scumbag. He's going to do it. And of course, it's about him. So of course, he's angry. He's angry. He got caught. He's angry. He got outed. But uh, the other people, like, what are they thinking? What, the other, even your friends with Postle, why are you attacking this woman? Even if you you like Postle and you feel bad that he's gone through this, this is his fault. He did it. So, like, like if one of my friends did something what Postle did, and I chose to stay friends with him, I would not come out under a real account or a fake account and attack the person who exposed him because I would know he's guilty. He did something crappy, and if I'm willing to overlook that and still be friends with him, I'm not going to hate the person who brought the justice upon him because I will know deep down that that person was right. And these people don't. These people just – they just attack because they like Postle or they like Stones or they work for Stones or they know someone who works for Stones or they add some kind of business arrangement with Stones at one point so they want to see Stones succeed. And uh, and I, I don't even think Stones is organizing this. Don't get me wrong. I don't think Stones is sending these people to do it. I think these are people who just like Stones that are pro-Stones or pro-Postle because of some relationship with either, and just on their own attack Veronica. And I think that's disgusting, and I think you're a horrible person if you do that. And that just gets me so mad to see. So thank, thank you, Eric, for coming on here. And I appreciate your expertise and, and your generosity with the free roll. Right. And thank you for your uh, cooperation with the show. And uh, uh, sorry to take up your time in, in Vegas with this whole thing, but uh, we wanted your, your opinion. No, not at all. Anytime. Happy to be here. Okay. Talk to you later, Eric. All right, Todd. Take care, man. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. I always like to have Eric Benzamokin on here to 
give us his take. And he always brings up things I didn't think of and angles to the whole thing, especially from a legal perspective that I would have overlooked. It's a very valuable resource to have. And there's so many times I'm on here like 2 a.m. discussing some case, and I go, oh, why didn't I do this earlier and have Eric on? <laughs> that happened so often. But I'm glad we got him on this week. And uh, he's actually very busy this week. So uh, if you like this segment, you should appreciate this because this was not easy for him to come on. If this wasn't something like Possel and a major development in that case, I wouldn't have bothered him this week. I'm glad he came on. Let's go on here. I want to talk about the coronavirus and I want to lead off with the biggest coronavirus topic of the week. By the way, as I was talking with Eric Benzamokin, I saw that uh, Vintage One and Traderuski had to go. So going to be flying solo on this one. But I want to talk about some big news with the coronavirus that isn't getting that much play because everyone's too busy watching news for the riots. And that's drowned out the coronavirus news lately. But two big studies, two big studies that were respected and accepted as likely fact, though you never know these days, things are constantly changing, but two big studies that were accepted as something that you believe, something that was in a very reputable medical journal, have turned out to be bad studies and have been retracted. One of them is something that personally affects me. The other one, at the moment at least, doesn't personally affect me, but it was very much in the news. So the respected medical journal Lancet has retracted two studies. And Lancet is very, very well respected and often referenced when it comes to the coronavirus so this isn't some rag, this isn't some fringe publication that published something and then retracted it when they were shamed. This is a respected medical journal which has decided that they are taking something back because they uh, no longer have any faith in the two studies that were published. Both of these studies were by uh, the same organization and... Both of them were retracted for the same reason. It's an organization called Surgisphere. And the problem was that both of these studies were relying upon data that turns out is not reliable. And if the data is not reliable used for the study, then you might as well throw the entire study in the garbage. <laughs> that's, that's what a study does is study data. And if the data is not good, then the study cannot be good. It absolutely cannot be good unless the data is reliable and it was determined not to be reliable. So they had to throw away two studies. They made this decision within an hour for both of them. So they decided to throw away one and then an hour later, they threw away the other. The first study had to do with the controversial and mainly only controversial because of Donald Trump, experimental COVID-19 treatment, hydrochloroquine. And I'm sure you know where I'm going with this as to why it's controversial. It's because Donald Trump, for whatever reason, has been pushing it. And there's been all kinds of conspiracy theories about this, but in reality, it's just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. 
It appears that he heard at some point that this was something that could treat the coronavirus. This was one of the earlier drugs that there was some hope that it could treat the coronavirus. And Donald Trump decided to get behind it to give people hope. And that was pretty much it. Donald Trump, who was facing increasing criticism at the time, I'm talking about in March, that he wasn't handling the coronavirus situation well and it was spiraling out of control. And this is before the lockdowns even started. So people were watching it get very serious in the U.S. and around the world and were starting to panic a little bit. So Donald Trump, and I, I can't tell you for sure what's in his head, only Donald Trump knows this, but Donald Trump wanted to grasp onto something to give people hope. And given that the coronavirus had no cure and no vaccine and nothing coming down the pike soon for that, he decided to latch on to a possible hope for the moment, the existing drug hydrochloroquine. And he was basically taking the attitude, maybe it'll work, maybe it doesn't, but at least it's something. It might work. It might turn out to be a miracle. We'll see. And he's been promoting it in various ways. Again, I don't think he's personally benefiting from it. He might feel he's politically benefiting from people believing that this thing works and that they have some hope and that they're in not as much panic about the coronavirus. But I don't think he's going to make any additional money or anything like that from hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine becoming big. But because Trump has been pro-hydroxychloroquine, his opponents, those on the political left, have decided they hate it. And that, that's basically what they do with everything that Trump likes. If Trump likes something, they hate it. Even something that's Something you wouldn't usually hate, a medication. Like you can, you can say, I don't agree that this medication would be effective. You could say, I am skeptical that it's going to work or I think it may have some bad side effects. I, don't, I, I wouldn't like this treatment myself. You can say these things and that's fine. But they, they specifically wanted to discredit the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine because Trump was stating that it's great. Now, Trump shouldn't have been doing this because he's not a doctor. He has no knowledge that it will help. I understand what he was trying to do, but really you, you should leave these type of matters to be discussed by the experts. And if uh, the doctors that he had uh, working with him at these press conferences like Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, if they, if they wanted to say that they had hope in this being an effective treatment for hydrox for uh, coronavirus, but we're not sure yet, but we've got to, it, it may be worth trying. If they want to say it and they believe that, that's fine, but Trump shouldn't be the one saying it. And that was a mistake. And I, I, he does have an obsession with it, kind of a weird obsession with it, which I think is for the reasons I just stated. So I'm not defending that part of it. That part's a little bit weird, and he shouldn't be doing it. But on the other side, the left has just been itching to find something to criticize. Like I, I know there's some on the left who, if we woke up tomorrow and found out that hydroxychloroquine actually is a great treatment for coronavirus, some of them would be really disappointed. Some of them would not say, oh, great, we're gonna, we finally have a treatment. That's what we've been waiting for. Instead, we'd, we'd have them like quietly thinking, crap, this makes Trump right. He's going to win again. This is awful. I wish it turned out that this wasn't effective. I wish it was any other drug but this. In fact, I'd rather that we had no treatment than this. Like That's what some of them would privately think. They'd never publicly say it, but that's what someone would, would privately think. That's why there's been a lot of defense of China. That's why the, some of the left have become uh, more pro-China than ever before because Trump has been criticizing China. He's been blaming China, so now, they're, now they've got to uh, defend China. And, and this has been a problem with American politics is if one side comes out with something, the other side wants to hate it. 
And and uh, I see this happen more with the left than the right, but that's that's what I see. Even uh, if you look at the the terrorism issue we had in the early 2000s, the left really really was defending Islam, even though a lot of the beliefs in Islam go against a lot of the things that the left pushes. Uh, you know, Islam is not tolerant towards uh, homosexuality and is not big on women's rights. Like there's a lot of uh, Islamic regimes which are especially oppressive to to women and, and they kill gays. And the left, they they didn't want to hear that part. They just saw Islam as the victim du jour because the right was saying this is Islam's fault that 9-11 happened. So they had to, since the right seemed to be hating Islam, they had to love Islam. It's dumb, but like this is what keeps happening in America. So that's what was going on with hydrochloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. Sorry for saying this wrong sometimes, just a long word. But they've been itching to bash it. Now, I will admit that I'm skeptical too, like I am with any current treatment or possible treatment for the coronavirus. We seem to be grasping at straws because it's so urgent to find something that anything that looks a little bit hopeful gets reported upon, and then we get excited, and then we never hear about it again. Or it turns out they do testing, and they realize it's it's not what they thought it was. So there's going to be a lot of false hope that comes from coronavirus treatments and vaccines that we're going to keep seeing that happen this year, where things that really seem to be promising fall apart. And we wonder, we're like, whatever happened with such and such as it a few months ago? And then you, you Google it. Oh, okay, I seen it. It turned out it wasn't what they claimed it was. We're going to see that over and over. And that might be the case with hydroxychloroquine. And in fact, on May 22nd, it looked like that was the case with hydroxychloroquine. Because there is an influential study, which came out on May 22nd, that raised alarms about the safety of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. And it pretty much stated that these not only didn't help, they hurt. That patients who used either of these drugs ended up worse off overall than ones who had taken nothing. And that was that. And then, boy, was there a lot of bashing of Trump over that, that he had been pushing that all this time, was even claiming he was taking it himself after he was exposed to someone with coronavirus, that he was taking it uh, at small doses that he, re- he believed in it so much. And then it turns out it's harmful. Not only doesn't it help, it's actually harmful. According to this study released on May 22nd, that was in The Lancet, and everyone pretty much took that as gospel. Even I admit that I believed that was the case. After all, it was in The Lancet, there wasn't anyone really questioning it, it seemed credible, and I said, okay, well, it doesn't surprise me that something that was once seen as a possible help a possible hope turned out to not only be nothing, but be harmful. But okay, kind of sucks for Trump, but uh, that's the way it is. The facts are the facts. I never even tried to dispute it. Like I, there, I didn't have any skin in that game. I wasn't saying, oh, I hope that's the one that works so Trump looks good. No, I just want there to be something. I don't care if Trump looks good or doesn't look good. I just want there to be something. But I thought that clearly was not going to be it, which... It still may not be, but it turned out that the data in the paper was bad, and that destroyed the entire study. 
So uh, while it doesn't mean that hydroxychloroquine is wonderful and, and is a solution, it also doesn't mean that it's dangerous and you're worse off taking it than taking nothing. It turns out all the conclusions that were brought out in that paper are conclusions you can't trust. As I said, you can throw the whole thing in the garbage. So this data came from uh, Surgisphere, and uh, there were concerns that were raised pretty early on but not really publicized by experts that there were inconsistencies in the data. And uh, Surgisphere was asked how they compiled and analyzed the data and to explain it. And then scrutiny kept growing and uh, some authors of the paper itself started going, "Uh uh-oh, we relied upon data from this outside firm, Surgisphere, and maybe this was bad data we got. So some of the authors on the paper who weren't affiliated with Surgisphere but wrote the paper said, you know, uh, we actually would like an independent audit of this data. And then Surgisphere is like, nope, we're not cooperating. Nope, nope, nope. No, no audits. Nope, no reviews. We're, we're not providing it. So that was bad news. <laughs> Surgisphere probably knew that their data was crap and that ruins both of these papers. So that was that. So one of the papers was about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. The other one was about popular blood pressure medications. which We've talked about this on the show before because I take one of those medications, Losartan, and... It turns out that any medication that is Losartan or something like Losartan or an ACE inhibitor, both of these are taken for blood pressure issues, which of course uh, like a quarter of all Americans have. But if you take either an ACE inhibitor or if you take Losartan or basically any blood pressure drug which ends with the suffix artin or pril, that's either an ACE inhibitor or uh, or, or one of the class like Losartan. I forgot the name. Of, I forgot the exact name of the class of that drug. But e- either of those, those are the drugs that are suspected to worsen symptoms of the coronavirus. Not proven, but suspected. And I want to say it was never suspected that it makes it more likely you catch the coronavirus, but like once you have it, that these drugs were said to possibly worsen the symptoms. There are also some opposing theories that these drugs actually do the opposite and lessen the symptoms. And then there are some who believe right in the middle that it does nothing either way. It's still being studied, but uh, a study did come out using the same flawed data from Surgisphere that showed that it turned out that, no, the I don't know if it was shown that these drugs helped, but at least they weren't hurting. It was saying you can go back on your Lysartan, you can go back on your ACE inhibitor because these are not harmful. That theory, that theory is wrong according to the study. And then it turned out the study's crap. So we're back to not knowing. Again, this doesn't mean that your blood pressure medication is dangerous, but it also means that it could be. We can't say your blood pressure medication is not dangerous. And I'm back to my belief that you should only take either of those, either an ACE inhibitor 
or a drug like Losartan. You should only take one of those if your blood pressure is high enough to where over the short or medium term, it is going to be dangerous for you for your blood pressure to rise back up because you're not on them. My blood pressure without any medication rises to low 150s over low 90s, like 152 over 92 sort of thing. And that's not good. That's not something I want to live with for a long time because that could be dangerous for me. That could cause a heart attack or a stroke. So I, it's not something I would want to leave untreated. But is it dangerous to go, say, a week with that type of blood pressure? No. Is it dangerous to go a month with that type of blood pressure? No. It's, it's better not to have it, but it's not dangerous to go off the meds and have that type of blood pressure. It's one of these things you're going to want to get control of, but it's not urgent. And you have to make a judgment call. Am I willing to take the higher blood pressure, but not dangerous in short-term blood pressure for the for being certain that at least I'm not doing anything artificial to worsen it? So I decided I'm going to get off it. Also, since uh, there are blood pressure medications that do not have the suspicion surrounding them, such as amlodipine, such as... HCTZ, which is a water pill. Uh, I still take those. Before I was taking those two and Losartan, I just cut out the Losartan and I replaced it with a supplement called L-theanine, which some believe can lower blood pressure. I don't know if it does. It's uh, speculative whether it does or doesn't, but it's it's known to be safe. L-theanine doesn't really hurt you. It's actually in green tea anyway. If you drink green tea, you're taking L-theanine without realizing it. So it's it's nothing harmful, so I figured I might as well. And I've gotten my blood pressure to where it's like 135 over 85. And okay, good enough. When I'm on the low start, and also I'm back to a normal uh, low 120s over 70-something blood pressure, but I'll take 135 over 85 while this is all going on. And then once we're past the coronavirus danger, I'll go back to the low start. So I, I'm definitely someone who can quit the low start. Uh, there's other people who can't. There's other people that get off low start and their blood pressure rockets up to 170 something over 105, and that's you don't want that. Like that's dangerous even short term. So you you have to stay on your blood pressure meds, and that's why doctors are in general saying stay on them because they don't want to tell you to get off and you have a heart attack and then your family sues them. So they they never tell you to quit your meds if you actually need them for something that's unproven. So this is one of these things you've got to make your own risk decision. And to me, I don't want to introduce any possible other risks, so I don't want to do it. I'd rather just uh, not do it. And even if it's possible this helps rather than hurts, I'd rather lose the possibility hurts me than lose the possibility helps me. I'd rather just stay neutral. Now, had I believed that study... Like, I hadn't read that study, so I, I didn't have to make a decision. But had I read and believed that study before it was discredited, then I might have gotten back on the Losartan if I really believed that it turned out this was all for nothing. But looks like the study's crap. And this also makes you wonder about any kind of study that's coming out regarding the coronavirus, since these things are rushed out, that perhaps you shouldn't trust everything you read regarding the coronavirus, that you need to wait some time to see if something that is said gets discredited. An example, the claim currently that it doesn't really spread that much on surfaces. 
I'm not saying I don't believe it. I'm not saying I'm doubting it. I'm saying that I'm skeptical of it. I, I think that they believe it, but uh, they may end up believing something else a month from now. So you don't know. These things change all the time. And with something that's as new as the coronavirus, a lot of times things are found, and then it turns out what was initially found was incorrect. So I try not to change my behavior very much based upon the study du jour. I will change my behavior if I read that something is dangerous that I'm doing, like the possibly the Losartan. But I'm not going to ease up because they say something isn't as dangerous as we thought before. I may ease my mind a little bit. I may be a little less panicky about, oh, no, I touched that surface. And, oh, before I, uh, I went to go wash my hands, I accidentally rubbed my eye. Oh, no, I'm going to get coronavirus. Like when that happens now, I think, OK, it's probably not on surfaces anyway. Like that's that's what I think when that sort of thing happens rather than panicking. But that's about all it's good for. <laughs> Other than that, I, I can't completely trust it until a longer time passes. And then like, like if a long time passes and they're pretty certain about it, then OK, fine. But but even then, sometimes things are wrong. Like think about how long of a time passed in the 1980s. And, and I think even before then, but I know this became really big in the 80s. The belief that cholesterol, high cholesterol was a result of diet and lifestyle. And and also the belief that eggs were culpable, that if you had eggs for breakfast, that was causing a big cholesterol problem for you. It turned out that was all nonsense. And this, this wasn't back in the dark ages of medicine. This wasn't like in 1925. This was in the 1980s. I remember hearing about this, that you shouldn't have eggs because they raise your cholesterol. And there, there's all this different advice about uh, how to eat so you don't get high cholesterol. And somehow, despite the fact that they had uh, – semi-advanced 1980s medicine going on at the time. Somehow, they didn't realize, and I still am amazed that this happened, they didn't realize that cholesterol, high cholesterol, is mostly hereditary. How that got missed, I don't know. I I can see it in myself. Because I have a diet that you would expect would lead to high cholesterol, and yet my cholesterol is great. Why? Because genetically, I'm not predisposed to it. And I know other people who have high cholesterol that if you looked at their diet, you would think their cholesterol would be great. Why? Because of genetics. But for many years, you were told what food to eat and what food not to eat if you wanted to keep your cholesterol at a reasonable level. And there's still many people who believe that cholesterol is mainly from diet. And in fact, when I tell them that it's not, they get mad. And the reason they get mad is because they've been modifying their diet and they've been feeling good about how they're eating. And how they're, they're keeping their cholesterol down. And I go, uh, no, actually, the reason your cholesterol is good is because you inherited it. And they get really mad because they, they want to pat themselves on the back and, and reap rewards for their responsible behavior. And they hate hearing, well, guess what? While your healthful eating might help in other ways, it's not helping your cholesterol. And then they get – people don't like to hear it. And also people like to feel control. Like people have high cholesterol – a lot of times they want to feel like they can just start eating better and it'll return to normal. And I say, no, just take medication. Oh, I don't like taking medication. I'll just eat better. I go, no, it's not going to work that way. No, no, it will. I'll make it work that way. I go, no, you don't understand. You can't make it work that way. If you're predisposed to high cholesterol, it's going to be high even if you eat very well. And they're just in denial. Same with high blood pressure, by the way. Again, hereditary. There was also a time that was not believed to be hereditary for years. And again, not that long ago. So uh, I'm not saying doubt everything. That medical studies tell you, I'm saying to always be skeptical, especially with things that haven't been out for that long and have not been extensively studied. 
they're trying to quickly study this. They're trying to put a lot of time into studying this in a short period of time, but still there's not a lot, a lot of time passing in the time they've been studying the coronavirus because it hasn't been here that long. It's not like they have 20 years of study under the belt. They, they, this thing just showed up in the U.S. in 2020. So how much can they know about it yet? They're rapidly trying to learn, but we're still inexperienced with it. So take these with a grain of salt, but especially take studies with a grain of salt that have since been discredited and actually got retracted. The Lancet has retracted both of them and said, basically, strike it from the record, forget it ever existed. Everything you read in these two studies, put it out of your mind. It's gone. You wonder how this can happen. They're actually using bad data. It's not even like they, they got data which was good at the time, but more data that came in since has disproven what they were at first believing. This, this is a case where the data was just bad even at the time it was delivered. They got the data from a third party and it turned out the data was crap. And then the third party got very defensive when asked to provide their procedures. So that was that. And that's a, a pretty big story. Not a positive story, but uh, nevertheless a, a big story. It's positive if you're Donald Trump, then you can say, okay, see, see, hydroxychloroquine, I told you. I told you, it's great. It's great, it's wonderful. Tremendous. If you're anybody else, it's, it's not a positive story. I, I guess it's a little bit of a positive story if you quit your blood pressure meds and refuse to go back on because you just didn't trust that that study was correct and then it turned out you were right. I, I, I Honestly, I wish that this just wasn't happening with the, the blood pressure meds. I wish I didn't have to worry about that part. There's also, as I've mentioned on other episodes of this show, that having baseline high blood pressure can risk – can raise your risk for coronavirus uh, more severe symptoms. And baseline meaning before you treat it, meaning that just the fact that you're, you would have high blood pressure if it wasn't for the medication might be something that is making you more susceptible to it. Of course, there's nothing you can do about that. That would definitely be me. So that is something that you should be aware of if you have been paying attention to either of those studies or if you've been going around saying that hydroxychloroquine has been proven to be ineffective and dangerous, not so fast. They're still studying it, and hopefully we'll get a real answer about that soon. At the moment, we still do not have an effective treatment for the coronavirus. Someone asked me, what would you do if you got the coronavirus? What would you do if you knew you had it? I said, well, at first, nothing. At first, I would just wait and hope it doesn't get bad. And... If uh, if it were to get really bad, where I felt that I needed to be in the hospital, I would go. I would not want to be in a ventilator. I don't believe in those anymore. I think that they those do actually cause more harm than good. Maybe if I absolutely couldn't breathe, I'd, I'd want to take a shot with it rather than just die. But I've seen, at least in the studies they've done, which hopefully haven't also been discredited, that ventilators actually have been causing more harm than good. And the reason for that is that some people just get better on their own and the ventilators might actually not be saving people. People may just be uh, recovering on their own and then it's attributed to the ventilator and the ventilators cause all kinds of other problems. So it's just way better not to ever be on one. So uh, I wouldn't do anything 
And if I were in the hospital and if it, if it was getting worse and worse and they said, would you like such and such experimental treatment? I would ask them to run down for me at the moment what the pros and cons of the various experimental treatments are. And then I would decide which ones to take, if any. That's that's what I would do. I wouldn't just take anything that was available. I would want to know what the pros and cons are. And I'd go for the one that sounds most appealing. And I would listen to the doctors as well as what their opinion and the whole thing is, and uh, then I would hope for the best, and I would hope that I'm going to walk out of there and not uh, be wheeled out of there in uh, a body bag. All right, moving on. This is going to be a little bit of a political topic, even though it's about the coronavirus, but I'm putting this along with the coronavirus segment because I, I think it belongs there. So what did you notice over the past 10 or so days involving the coronavirus. Did you think much about the coronavirus? Probably not that much. But I bet one of the things you did think is, wow, I wonder what's going to happen to all those crowds protesting. And there's been a lot of talk about this. This is not a new subject. I mean, I guess it's new in the last week and a half, but it's not something you haven't thought of yet when I say that with those big crowds out there protesting, which, by the way, I know are different than rioters. I had a listener who was upset that I was saying rioters and that he thought I meant all protesters, which I, I made pretty clear that's not how I felt. But I'm going to say right now, again, people who are peacefully, and I mean truthfully peacefully protesting, which means not blocking roads, not destroying property, not throwing things at police, whether it's harmful things or non-harmful things, just throw nothing at police, don't block roads, don't destroy anything, don't burn anything, don't attack anybody. That's a peaceful protest. That's what I call peaceful. That's what most sensible people would call peaceful. Unfortunately, others put a lot of things under the peaceful protest definition. For, for many, they think peaceful means that uh, nobody is badly hurt, and that's it. Other than that, it's peaceful. An actual peaceful protest, great, go ahead, do it. I support it. Even if I don't support the cause, I support the protest because you should be able to. But anything that's not peaceful, I do not support no matter what the cause is. A lot of protesters out there. We have thousands of people out there. In some cases, tens of thousands out there in a crowd. What's going to happen? There's going to be a lot more coronavirus cases, especially because it turns out that according to current beliefs that it's spread in a respiratory fashion and not through surfaces very often. So when you're outdoors in a large group of people, that's very bad. You're not sharing that many surfaces, but you are sharing a lot of the same air. You're, you're very close to one another. You're breathing on one another. You're sneezing on one another. You're spitting on one another accidentally. Like there, there's a lot of things that are happening that will be inevitable in a large crowd. So there probably will be a lot of extra coronavirus cases that otherwise would not have occurred if these protests did not occur. So there's a reason I'm bringing this up as part of the coronavirus segment. I'm not looking to get political about the protests themselves. But what I am looking to get across here is that prior to this, there is a divide regarding how to handle the reopening. And in general... The Republicans were for reopening the country and lessening, or in some cases, removing restrictions, and the Democrats were mostly against it. There were exceptions on both sides, but that was generally the way you could describe both parties and the way they see the reopening. And that whenever uh, Republicans or uh, 
people in states controlled by Republicans would go out and congregate and uh, go to the beach or uh, or go hang out in the park or, or go and demonstrate about the coronavirus. And we would see so much shaming of these people. And it would be said that these people who are out are risking their lives, risking the life, the lives of everybody because they are gathering together in numbers that are too high. Some of them aren't wearing masks. They're spreading it around. They're going to go back home and, and spread it to other people. They're probably going to spread it to the elderly and those who have pre-existing conditions and those people are going to die. And that these people are horrible and selfish and irresponsible, as are the politicians in these Republican states that are allowing this to occur at all. And that was the narrative before. Well, what have we had in the past week and a half? We've had massive crowds, some that are more than 60,000 people. We have many people in those crowds not wearing masks. We have no social distancing in these crowds. We have crowds that are all together close. Some of them are distancing, but most of them are not. There's a lot of massive crowds where they're all together. And if you were to be transported from the year 2019 to look at these crowds, you would say, oh, what's different with this crowd? Everyone's spread out. It would look just like a crowd that would get together any other time if there was no coronavirus. So there were... Very, very large crowds that spent a lot of time together that didn't wear masks. A lot of people had no masks on. So what does that say? Well, that says that there's a lot of additional risk there and a lot more risk than any of the people who were going to the beach or going to much smaller protests in the past uh, related to the coronavirus or those who were just going about their daily business through uh, other things that were opened in some of these red states. These are all very small crowds and a much lower risk compared to these super large crowds of people that got together to do the protesting. So why am I saying this? Well, since the Democrats in general were very supportive of this, they said that the protesting needed to be done. We have a problem in America with racism, with abusive police, with protection of the abusive police where they get away with it, that there needs to be a change in this country and the protests are necessary to cause that change. Okay, what about the coronavirus? Do we just forget about that? Is it taking a holiday? Does, does the coronavirus have an agreement with the protesters not to infect them because it's so important? Is the coronavirus on their side? It says, hey, I'll leave you guys alone because I know this is, this is very important for you guys to go do. So, yeah, get together in, in tens of thousands of numbers and protest all you want. I won't infect any of you. No problem. I'll, I'll back off for a few weeks. Did the coronavirus tell them that? Because I, I don't understand. I, I don't understand how that is okay, if, regardless of how important you feel it is. Important or not important. I mean, there's a lot of important things that were suspended or not done since mid-March when everything locked down. Because of the coronavirus, the economy was shut down. People lost their jobs. We basically stopped everything. And we really, really, really damaged the economy and possibly brought out the, the a future of a depression or hyperinflation. And we spent more money on bailouts and aid that, came to the American public and to American companies as a result of the shutdown than any time in U.S. history, 
even inflation adjusted. So why did we do all that if it turns out that if people want to protest, they can get together in giant crowds of 60,000 or more if the protest is deemed important enough? Does that mean everything else in America was not important, that the economy is not important, that bringing on the possibility of a future depression or hyperinflation is not important? All that stuff doesn't matter, but a protest does matter. That's the exception. We can do that. Well, obviously not. It's either safe or it's not. The, the coronavirus doesn't care. The coronavirus will infect as many people as it can. It wants to infect people. That's, that's why it lives. That's literally why it lives. It wants to infect people. It's designed itself to infect people. It tries to infect people. It does not matter why the people are together. It does not matter how vulnerable the people are. It does not matter what damage it's going to cause. Its goal is to infect people. Its goal is to spread. So it's either okay to get be- to get together in very large numbers, or it's not. It's not okay if the matter is important, but uh, not okay if it's unimportant. I used to say this about going to the grocery store. That's why I stopped. I stopped going to the grocery store and started ordering groceries to my house because I realized that just because something's essential doesn't mean it's safe. So just because I can't do certain things that are deemed to be too dangerous for me to do, but I can go to the grocery store because it's quite essential, that doesn't mean the coronavirus is going to go, you know what, I'm going to stay out of this store because I know you need groceries. The coronavirus is not going to, the coronavirus will infect me there just as much as it will uh, getting a haircut or, or uh, anywhere else I'm going to go. So in fact, in some, place, in some ways it's more dangerous, especially since it's respiratory. So I said, screw that. I'm not, I'm not going to go. I'm going to get the groceries delivered and lower my risk. So, okay, what, what's the point I'm making here? The point I'm making here is, if this is okay, may, maybe everybody agrees. Maybe this means the Democrats agree now, too. Maybe this means it's just time to reopen. Maybe this means that we should do away with the restrictions. What's the difference of a crowd of 60,000 people protesting together and a crowd of 60,000 people watching a baseball game? What's the difference? Now, yeah, you can argue that a baseball game is recreational and a protest has a point to better society. I guess you could argue that uh, a protest, as long as it's for a good cause, is more important than a baseball game. And as big of a fan of baseball as I am, and I really miss it, I I can agree with that. But still, again, it's either safe to do or not safe to do. And if it's safe to do, then we should be able to do it for any reason. If it's not safe to do... We should not be able to do it for any reason. And when I say any reason, I don't mean an absolute emergency. I mean something you can not do, and in the short term, everyone will be okay. That's why you weren't able to get a haircut for all this time, because it was said, well, your hair will be a mess. You won't like how you look. You're eventually going to need one, but uh, for the next few months, can you go without a haircut? Yes. Okay, so we're closing it. That that was the general thought, whereas you can't go without groceries for months. So the grocery store was left open. That that was the thinking, that some things, what, what was deemed essential are things that you absolutely need to go about daily life versus what you just like to have. And protests are not absolutely essential. And there's other ways to protest, by the way, in 2020 that don't involve taking to the streets. You can actually protest online. There's a lot of protest that goes on online. 
So there's a lot of ways to protest that don't involve having to physically go out into the streets. Now, during normal times, you want to physically go out into the streets, great, go ahead. I'm not saying that no one should be able to do that now because you can protest online. I'm saying that if it is too dangerous for large crowds to gather, then they shouldn't gather. Then it shouldn't be taking place. People should not, no matter what the cause, you should not be going out to protest if what that's going to do is result in a lot of people dying from the coronavirus. And if it's going to infect a lot more people than just the protesters, because it spreads so easily. So it's either safe or it's not safe. And it seems to me that since Republicans want to reopen and Republicans want more and more opening and fewer and fewer things shut down and left shut down, and Democrats felt that these protests were okay, that the coronavirus is not a good enough reason to not do them, that these large crowds who are protesting were doing the right thing, and this was good and just and something that was a positive, taking away the rioting and looting. We're, we're, we're separating that here just for the moment, almost like pretending it wasn't even happening. I'm, just, I'm focusing on just the crowds for this segment. So if the crowds were okay for one, the crowds are okay for another. So I don't understand how the Democrats are going to argue after this whole protesting thing passes. We're not going to have months of protests. At least I hope we won't. I, I have a feeling this is going to be over soon enough, which it should be. Everyone's made their point, and it's time to now see what occurs from there. Even those who are protesting, who are very unhappy with the system, they need to give a chance to see the system work and, and see any kind of response to the protest they were doing. You can't just endlessly protest. You need to give uh, those you're protesting against a, a chance to take care of the problem. And by the way, everybody's been arrested who was involved in that uh, Floyd killing, so that no point to protest about that anymore because it's uh, that is being handled uh, at this point, and I think that uh, few can complain at the moment of where they're going with that. You can complain that it happened, of course, but not where it's going. So I don't know how the Democrats are going to come out and, and shame those who are going out and hanging out in crowds or going to the beach or uh, or not wearing masks because you ask them, okay, what about the protesters? You didn't shame them. How And and like, you know, I always get this call from Ken Scaler. Ken Scaler is obsessed with Coachella, as you know. And he's he was very disappointed it was canceled in April and moved to October, but... I've been telling him for a long time, as have other people he knows, that October is not by any means a sure thing and that it's very possible that it won't take place in 2020 at all and they're just going to delay it until next year's April. The normal date would be in April 2021. There would be no 2020 Coachella. And that would really disappoint him because that's that's his favorite thing in the world. That really is his very favorite thing is going to Coachella. So he, he, he loves to call me up, and the first thing he says when I answer the phone is, so what chance do you think it is that Coachella is going to go? That, that, that's the first words. He, he, he calls me a lot, and when I answer, that, that's the first thing he asks me. What chance do you think it is now? He'll even text me. What, the, what chance do you think Coachella is going to go now? He's obsessed with the what chance I think it's going to go. Not that I'm an authority in the matter, but he just wants to hear this from me. So I had degraded it down to 10% at one point, and I actually raised it to 15%, and may, maybe it'll go higher than 15%. Up till... The last week and a half, my thinking was that Coachella would be like one of the last things they allow because it's 120,000 people all together in close quarters. And that's like the worst thing you can have. 
The only thing, the only saving grace for it is it's outside, but still, you, you have 120,000 people together. Uh, you can't do much worse than that for spreading a very contagious virus, especially given how it spreads in a respiratory fashion. So I thought, how could they even hold this by October? There's not going to be a vaccine. If there is, it's going to barely be distributed yet. And I don't see a, a real effective treatment by October. So I, I just can't see how they are going to allow this to go. They're probably just going to be told, forget it and have it in April. So that's what I've been thinking. That's why I was giving the 10% number. Well, I, I raised it to 15 because of these protests, because you had about half the Coachella crowd in some of these large crowds that were protesting. You had about 60,000 people in some of these protests. And, and Ken himself, who, by the way, uh, is very much on the left and is, has a different opinion of, of these protests than I do, uh, he pointed out, well, it looks like if they're going to have a protest with 60,000 people and that's okay, shouldn't Coachella be okay? And I said, you know what? You're right. <laughs> Not that I think that's a smart thing to do right now is hold something like Coachella with 120,000 people, but if a protest of 60,000 people is going to be okay, then yes, Coachella should be okay with double the people. I mean, 60,000, 120,000, it's still a gigantic crowd. It's not that much different. So I just don't understand how the Democrats are going to be able to argue from this point forward that we shouldn't reopen everything. Because they had really very little to say about the protests and the coronavirus danger. Yeah, they were acknowledging, yeah, we may see an uptick in, in coronavirus infections, and that may be unfortunate, but that's just uh, that's just the way it is, uh, that, that these protests are important, blah, blah, blah. But uh, the point is here that Either it's okay or it's not. That there has been a huge cost to the U.S. not having things open. A huge, huge, huge cost in many ways, not just economically. And in many ways we haven't even seen yet. We haven't even really experienced the full brunt of the economic devastation from this. We're just seeing the very beginning of it. It's hard to believe that we just continue a shutdown how anyone can argue to continue to shut down that was okay with these protests going on. The only Democrats I think that could have a leg to stand on would be the ones who have been saying the whole time, people shouldn't be out here, it's unsafe because of the coronavirus. I actually don't think I heard any Democrats say that. (laughs) So I think this just made a case to reopen, perhaps unintentionally. Okay, now maybe some good news, but maybe not. An Italian doctor is claiming that the coronavirus is weakening and is far less potent than it was a few months ago. And this is, of course, something great, if true, but can we count on it? Can we believe it? So what happened was that on May 31st, Reuters published an article that was called New Coronavirus Losing Potency, Top Italian Doctor Says. Well, that sounds great. Top Italian Doctor? Losing Potency? These are These are great. What this doctor said is that uh, he's noticing that the strength of the virus is going down and that from swabs of people's noses in a particular hospital in, uh, in Italy, that they're seeing a lower viral load and that uh, also they're not seeing as many patients there with uh, 
very, very serious versions of the coronavirus. I'm talking about people with a respiratory distress, shock, multiple organ failure, and, and those, of course, that die. That he's claiming that we're just not seeing this anymore. Even though we're seeing new cases, we're just not seeing that in our emergency rooms anymore. So that sounds great because keep in mind, Italy, for whatever reason, was kind of ahead of uh, the rest of the world with flaring up and having a terrible problem with the virus. Italy actually had the tragedy occur where they didn't have enough hospital beds and people were turned away and they were actually rationing hospital space where uh, older people were told to go away. They were actually treating the younger patients saying, well, we have to decide who to give these beds to. And uh, the younger people have more life ahead of them than you do. So unfortunately, uh, go home and hope for the best. Sorry. And that was very sad. And there was fear that would happen in the U.S. And it turned out that never came to pass, partially because we didn't end up needing the capacity that we thought we would because of the social distancing measures to flatten the curve, and partially because uh, there was a quick effort to expand capacity, actually a little slower than it should have been, but uh, but it got done in time, and it turned out that ex- extra capacity, for the most part, wasn't needed, but it's good to have anyway, just in case. But Italy was ahead of all this, and not in a good way. They just had it first, and they, they were overwhelmed by it, and they had much less experience, because the rest of the country hadn't had it as severely as they did, and they, they had a huge problem with uh, death and devastation over there. Well, it's really slowed down. Even though Italy has had uh, 33,774 deaths as of 5 p.m. on June 5th, they only had 85 deaths in those previous 24 hours. And that's a much, much lower death rate than they had before. They, They seem to be uh, I wouldn't say past it, but they are, are way past the peak, and it's much, much more under control. So that doctor's probably right in that uh, certain emergency rooms, which were filled to the gills with patients who were uh, on the verge of death, uh, uh, many of whom actually died, that they're probably hardly seeing any of that anymore. And uh, in, in swabbing these patients' noses, they're finding there's a much lower viral load. And this has convinced this doctor that the coronavirus has mutated to become less deadly. And it has it, either that's lost potency or that the viral load has gone down. But either way, the, it's, it's much less dangerous than it used to be. That would be great news if true. But there's a lot of skepticism about this report. So don't put too much stock into it. Don't get too excited just yet. Uh, a panel of UK-based experts said that any claims that the virus is weakening are not supported by any evidence they've seen. And Oscar McLean, who is a UK-based expert, who is a a PhD, said, uh, I think it's not plausible at this point in time. We've seen no evidence of widespread widespread attenuation. Also, there is some fear that there's some corruption in Italy because the coronavirus has become very politicized there, just like it is in the U.S. It's not only the U.S. that is uh, having a lot of political arguments related to the coronavirus and factions that want things to open versus factions that don't want things to open. In the northern part of Italy, there is some suspicion that they are manipulated data in order to reopen faster. Because in northern Italy, there's a much greater uh, 
feeling they should stay, they should reopen than in southern Italy. So the, there are some accusations that in northern Italy they're falsifying test results, China style, to make it look like it's not that severe there anymore, so everything can reopen and the, the economy can resume. Now, it is a fact that most infectious viruses will lose potency and lose deadliness over time. People are afraid of mutations. Mutations seem like, it sounds like a bad thing, right? It doesn't sound scary that the coronavirus could mutate. And, and when you hear that at first, what you would picture is it mutates to become something even worse. It will get stronger. But you think of mutation, you, you think of it, it's mutating to become more effective. Why would something mutate to become less effective? And you would assume, well, a mutation probably means it's, it's found a way to become more deadly or more contagious. Well, that's not really how it works because these viruses don't want you to die. If you die, they die. Not right away, but they die pretty soon after you die because their host has died. And they, they, they then would, the virus inside you will die very shortly after that. So it's not to the, virus, the virus's benefit that a lot of people die when they get it. In fact, that prevents a lot of viruses from spreading. Viruses like Ebola. When uh, people catch Ebola, they become very sick, very fast. They can't walk around and spread it because they're sick so quickly and, and in such terrible shape. They can't go in society and spread it to everybody. They're just in bed and in, in horrible uh, condition. And then a very high percentage of them die, like 50% or something. So what happens? Well, it, it doesn't spread that well then. It can't. How can it? People die fast. People get uh, bad symptoms fast. The reason the coronavirus spreads so much is because it's got a long asymptomatic period. And uh, so, so it's got the long period where people spread it when they feel totally fine. They don't realize they have it. And then it, then it spreads very, very easily. And then uh, it gets deadly from there. However, it's still got a problem. If it's killing people, then whoever it kills can't spread it anymore. Furthermore, once people start getting sick and get very sick, they also can't spread it anymore. Even if there weren't uh, procedures and protocols to deal with people who have the virus to stay away from people, even absence of that, even if it was totally fine, even if nobody would object, if you were to walk around sick and spread it to everybody, and even if you didn't care, you couldn't because the coronavirus would make you too weak to do it. Uh, A lot of the people who have the coronavirus report they're so weak they can barely stand up and go to the bathroom. So those people are not going to spread it anymore. They're, they're going to barely be able to move. So that's not good for a virus that wants to spread. A virus that wants to spread wants the people spreading it to be healthy. In fact, one feature of the coronavirus that I thought was something that helped it spread a lot, but may, actually may not be true, was the fact that children barely show any symptoms at all. So that, that's the perfect vehicle to spread it because uh, this way – it infects people who are asymptomatic and then can just keep spreading it and they don't even know they have it. So uh, not only do they have the physical ability to move around, they don't even know to stay away from people. So that's a, a perfect spreading device. And, and kids especially, because kids are just not good in general about washing their hands and, and, uh, or, or doing other things to keep it from spreading, like adults are. Kids just aren't as responsible. But now there's also a theory that kids are not able to spread it to adults very easily, that for whatever reason, it doesn't jump from one to the other all that much. So that that part may not be true. Also, that theory may be wrong. We'll have to wait to see how that fleshes out. But even ignoring that, 
it, it's very possible that uh, the fact that it doesn't harm uh, young people that badly, like all the way up to 35, that probably is a feature that allows it to spread more because uh, you have a large segment of the population that uh, stays asymptomatic or mostly healthy and, again, can continue spreading it. So these are all features that allow it to spread more. So anything that doesn't harm people, doesn't kill people, lets it spread more. And anything that does, stops the spread. The swine flu, they never really came to understand how many people had it, but there's a belief that as many as uh, 20% of people in the U.S. had it and just didn't know because most people were asymptomatic. That's why they could never really tell because they couldn't really do any kind of uh, sufficient testing because people didn't know when they were infected with it for the most part. It, it was shown that it really was not very deadly at all, especially if there was this massive number of asymptomatic people. I mean, who knows? I could have had it. I, if I did, I didn't know it. But uh, that was a virus that was said to spread very easily. It just uh, apparently didn't do much to most people that got it. But as far as spreading, that's, that's very helpful for a virus. So for that reason, when viruses mutate over time, they're mutating for their own survival. They're not mutating to wreak havoc upon people. So if the coronavirus were to mutate, there would be usually uh, one of three results. One, nothing. That is, it's a mutation that uh, doesn't really change anything regarding how it affects the human body. Number two, that it's something that makes it less deadly and something that makes people have less severe symptoms so they could continue walking around spreading it. Or number three, something that can mutate to where it can dodge vaccines. So an, exist, an existing vaccine uh, is no longer effective against it because it has mutated and, and can get around that. So th those, are, those are pretty much the three types of mutations that occur. What, what you usually don't see is where it becomes much more deadly. So you don't have to fear the coronavirus mutating and, uh, and, and becoming like a Ebola and killing 50% of the people getting it. That, it's not impossible, but it's very unlikely because it's very un-virus-like to do. So why can't we believe that what this Italian doctor is saying is true? Maybe it did mutate. Maybe it did become much less potent or much less uh, deadly. The problem that a lot of people have with this is that, number one, uh, Again, a data problem. They're, they're not getting this from a lot of sources. The guy's talking about his own hospital. And, and number two, that this happened too quickly. This is something that happens uh, semi-slowly. I, I don't mean over a period of 10 years, but, but uh, like, look at the flu. The flu, uh, you have to get a different flu shot every year because of the mutations. But you're not getting a flu, different flu shot every month. It, it's taking about a year to mutate to where... Uh, the, the previous flu shot is not going to be effective anymore. Now you, you need another flu shot. So this, for it to have mutated this quickly in Italy to where it's already much less potent, there's a lot of skepticism about that. There's a lot of belief that this just happened too quickly and that the guy's just drawing too many conclusions from something that's going on at one hospital. So uh, there's a lot still unknown, and this is an unusual virus. People have asked before, 
well, why aren't we going to get another one of these? Let's say we get past this. How do we know in, in, in 2025 that we're not going to have one just as bad or worse? Well, we don't know that, but is that likely? No. This was very unusual because it has that combo of spreading but being deadly. And most viruses don't. We, that's why we've never seen one in our lifetime that's like this. And we may never see one again in our lifetime. Humanity will probably see another one again, but and I, I don't know how common these really are. I don't know if once every 100 years is what we should expect or uh, maybe once every 500 years. I, I don't know. But uh, it's not something we're going to see again in a few years in all likelihood. But uh, for that reason, because it's unusual, because it's uncharted territory, we don't know. So maybe this is an unusual virus. Maybe another weird feature of this one is that it does mutate quickly. Maybe it, maybe the virus uh, essentially has learned to mutate to stop killing people as fast so it knows it can spread more. And, and of course, the, the virus doesn't have a brain, but it, it, these mutations occur as a survival mechanism. So it's not consciously doing it, but that's the way the, these viruses will change in order to keep itself alive and to keep spreading. So we can't rule this out, but I wouldn't get too excited yet. And unfortunately, all other studies so far have not shown this. And that one doctor out of Italy is incredible. So we'll need a better and larger data set and a lot more study for us to be able to see this. Experts are saying that it is possible the coronavirus over a longer period of time will do just this, that it will... uh, lessen in its severity and then will become less and less of a big deal if you catch it. And if it is going to stick around for a long time, that would be good if that's what happens. Like if it eventually converts itself to becoming another flu, not an actual flu, but kind of similar to what the flu is, then uh, that will be acceptable. But uh, we'll have to see. There's a lot we don't know. There's a lot in the future with this we can't predict. I would find it really fascinating to be able to look forward a year from now and see where we stand with the coronavirus. And forget everything that's associated with it. Like, it would be also fascinating to see who's president a year from now. It also would be fascinating to see what our economy is. It would be fascinating to see how much life has returned to normal. But forget all that. Let's just look a year ahead and see where we are with the coronavirus. Do we have an effective vaccine? Do we have an effective treatment? Has the coronavirus just kind of died out uh, unexpectedly? Has it weakened unexpectedly? These, these are all things that could happen, but we don't know. So don't get too excited yet. When I read that at first, I was like, oh, cool. And I go, uh, never mind. Not as cool as I thought. Okay, speaking of vaccines... A company called Novavax has gotten a contract with the U.S. government to develop 10 million vaccine doses. There's, it says in the agenda 10 billion vaccine doses, and that's uh, inaccurate. We have to fix that. 10 billion vaccine doses would be more than uh, the population on Earth. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. But 10 million vaccine doses, they've gotten a contract for that. Uh, what is Novavax? Have you, have you heard of them? Probably not. I had not heard of them. And there's uh, a lot of companies competing to get to develop vaccines and get a contract to distribute them. There's a lot of money in this, as you can imagine. Uh, so uh, th- there's an operation to get vaccines to market called Operation Warp Speed. And Novavax actually was not included in 
the finalists for Operation Warp Speed. But, however, only days later, Novavax got some good news in that they got a $60 million contract to produce uh, 10 million doses of a vaccine that they're developing sometime this year. And this would be delivered to the Defense Department. And what would they do with these? Well, they would be holding these 10 million doses for kind of emergency use. And uh, they also could be used in middle or late stage testing. So the Defense Department said it wants 10 million vaccines and has said, okay, well, we're going to award this contract to Novavax. Now, obviously, 10 million vaccines is not going to do it for the U.S. We have 330 million people. Uh, Even if you just were to give those 10 million to the most vulnerable, that wouldn't be enough. I don't know the exact number of the most vulnerable, but that's a lot because basically anybody who's old is vulnerable. So that's a lot more than 10 million people. So that's that's not a vaccine solution, but it is something that uh, the U.S. government uh, desires. You may wonder... How many vaccines are currently being worked on? The answer is 10. There are 10 vaccines right now in the world that are being worked on, according to the World Health Organization. And uh, it's, uh, it's hard to tell when uh, the first vaccine will be released to the public. In this Operation Warp Speed, they picked vaccines from Pfizer, Merck, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna as finalists. Uh, and uh, Novavax was left out in the cold. Of course, it's not as well known of a, co- of a company as all these other ones that I listed. I bet you've heard of all the other ones I listed, but uh, probably not Novavax. And uh, I don't know why they picked Novavax for this. And they picked these other companies, these other better-known companies for this Operation Warp Speed possible they felt that they will be doing different things, that one's going to be developing a vaccine that's for either emergency use or, or late-stage testing, and the others will be ones that are aimed at releasing to the public. But uh, that's the way they're doing it. Uh, the vaccines have to go through a lot of trials before they are released. Of course, they have to be deemed safe. You don't want to inject anything to your body that's going to harm you. And uh, they also have to be proven to work. And that's another big challenge. That's uh, two things that have to be proven. And it's a, a much higher standard for the approval of vaccines than for medications, because medications you're taking when you already have the problem. And therefore, it, it, some side effects and some danger is acceptable, because uh, a lot of times not taking the medication is much worse than taking the medication and having some side effects or some possible danger, even danger up to death. When you're sick, you need medication, especially with something very serious like COVID-19. But vaccines, which you're taking when you're healthy, that's a lot harder to take if you know there's substantial risk to it or bad side effects that are going to harm you. So that's why vaccines really have to be harmless, and that's not easy to do. That's why it takes so long to develop these, because you're not... You're not just developing something that works. You're developing something that works and is very, very safe. Because that's the only way you're going to get public buy-in with taking vaccines. And we have these anti-vaxxers who try to prove that vaccines are not safe and that they're causing autism and all kinds of other diseases, and, and they will not take vaccinations. And there will be anti-vaxxers who will refuse to take a coronavirus vaccine. 
I will not be one of them. I've never been an anti-vaxxer. I think the whole anti-vax movement is stupid. And uh, if you believe in it, then you are believing in stupid conspiracy crap. And if there's too many anti-vaxxers, it harms humanity, as we saw in 2010, when, uh, especially in California, where this uh, really gained steam. Uh, In 2010, I think there were uh, 10 babies who died of of whooping cough, which was a dead disease. That disease had been gone for decades, and it came back because of the anti-vaxxers. So it, it started to become required that uh, parents of, of new babies had to get a DPT shot. You had to get a DPT booster, even if you had the shot before. I had to. My kid was born in 2010. I had to get that booster. Uh, by the way, I think that booster gave me shingles, but uh, I'm still not regretting taking it. I happened to be one of the unlucky ones. I think I think it can cause shingles and, and did. I mean, it's actually the the virus that you get when you get chickenpox that really causes the shingles, but I meant it caused the, the shingles to be able to occur. The, when you have chickenpox, the virus stays in your body forever. It never goes away. It just hides. But for most people, it just hides and never does anything again. It remains inactive. Uh, shingles happens when it's uh, basically allowed to punch through and then it attacks your nervous system. And something allows it to punch through, usually some kind of uh, immune system disorder. And uh, it it is my theory that the DPT shot, which I had kind of a reaction from, caused a temporary immune system disorder, which allowed this to punch through. And I got the shingles. The the timing was very perfect for it. And otherwise, I can't explain it. And there have been people who have reported that with the identical timing I had after the DPT shot, they got shingles at a relatively young age to get shingles. Because it's it's mostly an old people's uh, thing. And uh, I was one of the lucky ones to get it uh, in my 30s. So uh, that's why when you see pregnant women that have shingles, that I think it's because of the DPT booster. But there was it was never studied, just anecdotal evidence. But with all that said, uh, do I regret having gotten that shot? No, because I, I needed to keep my son safe. Uh, I couldn't risk, uh, especially in 2010 with the whooping cough coming back, thanks to the anti-vaxxers, I couldn't risk being one of the carriers of it and killing him felt it was necessary. Even if I knew there was a shingles risk, I still would have done it. Anyway, as I was saying, there will be some people who will not take the coronavirus vaccine, and uh, I recommend you do so if you get it, even if you're usually anti-vaccine. This is an important one to take, but I will definitely be taking it. Who knows when that'll be, though? Maybe longer than you think. You're hearing optimistic projections for it'll start in October, but who knows? And just because it starts in October doesn't mean you'll get it in October. I it's probably going to go to the most vulnerable people and to healthcare workers in October, if it does come in October. And then probably after that, it'll be a, some kind of priority basis. They haven't discussed it. That's just my guess. Okay, next coronavirus topic. Actually, last coronavirus topic. I, I mentioned some of this uh, last week, but I didn't spend too long on it, so I just want to update uh, Brazil and Mexico are becoming the two new hotspots. In fact, uh, it wasn't the case uh, yesterday, but the day before, both Brazil and Mexico had more coronavirus deaths than the U.S. for that day. In the last 24-hour period that ended at 5 p.m. Pacific time, June 5th, Brazil still had more than the U.S., only by a little bit, but... uh, Brazil still had more deaths than the U.S., despite a much smaller population. 
And uh, Mexico, fewer than the U.S., but not far behind. Other than Brazil, the U.S., and Mexico, every other country, and who knows with China, they might be lying. In fact, they are lying. They're not, it's not might be, they're definitely lying. But taking China out of this and taking any other country that's not being honest about this, which there's others, uh, no country is reporting more than 400 deaths on a typical day. And uh, if you take the UK out of it, most of them are reporting 300 or fewer deaths on a particular day. And if you take uh, Brazil, the US, Mexico, the UK, India, Russia, and Peru out of this, and look at all the other countries in the world, but those seven, then most of them are reporting fewer than 100 new deaths per day, including Italy, which was once the very worst spot. So that's, uh, in a way, good news here that uh, other than these few problem countries, which unfortunately the U.S. is still one of them, the number of deaths is not terrible. It's, It's in the low hundreds per day. It'll be great when that goes down to zero eventually, but uh, that's that's a lot better than thousands dying per day or, or the high hundreds. Now, you never know when it's going to flare up. Brazil was doing very well. Brazil was one of the places that was largely unaffected. And then uh, it's really flared up, and, and the reason for this is not known. It could be a seasonal thing. Remember, Brazil is in South America. South America is getting into their winter. It's not quite winter yet, but it's very close. Their winter is going to start in 15 days. So they're in very late fall right now. And when this showed up in the winter for the Northern Hemisphere, Brazil was in their summer. Mexico, well, they're not in South America. So I don't know how to explain that one. They're uh, not very North either. At least uh, part of it isn't. But uh, Mexico, they're seeing an outbreak. It, it is possible that this isn't weather-related, and it, it's just uh, certain countries are able to uh, contain it for a while, and then once uh, once certain places start to really ramp up, a, a problem starts, and it, it's, it's a vicious cycle. Look, even in the U.S., New York has greatly improved. New York was once a disaster. Even New York City has greatly improved. And, and where is the problem right now? Los Angeles, Los Angeles County. Whoop. Somehow I got, uh, don't know what happened there. Uh, somehow Los Angeles, which had very much avoided the really bad uh, effects of the coronavirus, despite the large size of Los Angeles, uh, LA County did very well, all things considered. And not anymore. Now it's not doing so well. I mentioned this last week, and and this still continues. L.A. County yesterday had almost 1,400 new cases and 34 new deaths. And that is more than half of the entire state. Way more than half. Actually, it wasn't more than half. Sorry, the the entire state was at 3,600. But still, uh, that is still a lot. And and it's not quite as bad as last week when it was like 2,400, but it's still a lot more than they had before. So even with the larger population than other counties in LA County, still, it's much worse. Like I was talking about last week, 
Santa Clara and San Francisco counties, which if you combine them are about 30% the size of L.A. County, combined they had 96 new cases versus almost 1,400 in Los Angeles County. So even if you multiply that by three and a third, what do they have, like, like 330 or so versus 1,395? So that's still a huge difference. Somehow the neighboring counties are not affected as badly Aside from uh, Riverside County, which had uh, 474 new cases, and they have a smaller population than L.A. County, so it looks like they're starting to get some problems over there, which which is to be expected. They have a, a 2.5 million. So it's about if you multiply by four, they actually have a worse problem than L.A. County. So Riverside County is starting to get bad, and uh, Orange County is starting to worsen. Orange County is, uh, of course, on the border of L.A. County to the south, and they have uh, a little more than 3 million, 3.1-something million. So they've got about a third, a little less than a third of the L.A. County population. Orange County had 253 cases, so it looks like they, uh, population adjusted, are about half as bad as L.A. County. So Northern California is doing much better. Uh, Another county that borders L.A. County, Ventura County, is still relatively well off with this, but who knows how long because it, it people come over from L.A. there, so it's, uh, it's probably going to change. Ventura County only has a population of about uh, 850,000, so it's about, uh, about one-eleventh the size of L.A. County's population, and they had uh, 59 new cases, which is up from what it used to be before. And if you multiply that up by 11, then there's, again, probably, uh, again, about half as bad as L.A. County. But it is worsening. It's, so the, the neighboring counties are starting to get affected. And who knows how bad it's going to get in L.A. County. Maybe, maybe it's going to get very bad. I will say, as I mentioned last week, that Southern California now, it may not feel like it with everything reopening, but Southern California now is actually more dangerous coronavirus-wise, even ignoring the riots, as far as catching it, than it ever was before. So it may have felt more dangerous in March and early April, but it actually is more dangerous now. Are we going to see a big spike from the riots? Probably. I don't know how much, but we're going to see a spike. We're probably already seeing some, because these began a week and a half ago. And uh, people typically go in to get tested when they feel they have it, though a lot don't. So keep in mind, these cases are, it's a lot fewer than the actual number of cases because a lot of people, many I personally know, just know they had it but never bothered to go in for a test. And people typically go in either just out of curiosity or because uh, they're really feeling lousy and they really want to know or they have to go to the hospital because it's getting so bad. But there's a lot who say, okay, I probably have it. I'm just going to stay in my room, try to isolate from everybody else and uh, wait for it to pass. And they, they don't ever get tested. And that's fine. You don't have to go get tested. Yeah, we'll probably see this uh, protest started about a week and a half ago and uh, really ramped up over the past week. And the incubation period before you see symptoms at all averages about four days. We're just probably going to start seeing it jump up. And for the next week, we should see it jump up. Next two weeks, we see it jump up. And that's if the protests were to stop tomorrow, which they may not. In fact, they won't, but hopefully they'll ramp down. 
I'm not sure why uh, Brazil and Mexico is getting so bad, but it is. We may see other countries that were doing okay before that just spike up. Maybe it's just a run its course. Maybe that's something else it does, where it runs its course through a certain population and then uh, for whatever reason that stops and it, it dies down. Maybe a semi-herd immunity is achieved where it's not that nobody's catching it and it dies out, but to where uh, it peaks and then falls way below the peak very fast once it, once it peaks. Like it, it could be like that. It could be that it's got its, its peak period and then the whole thing uh, becomes less contagious. There's just not enough people who have it to spread it around at that point. I, I don't know. It, it is kind of weird how like New York can be awful and they don't really change very much. And then it just gets magically better. Isn't that weird? I'm not even saying they're lying in New York. I'm just saying it's weird. Like, it's a weird feature of the virus that I, I don't understand. Same with Italy. Same with uh, Seattle, which had it very early. Look how they're doing much better right now. New Orleans. Like, there are a lot of these that, that got really bad early and then rapidly improved once things started to improve. They, they would stay bad for some, for some time, and then uh, they'd improve. Now, New York stayed bad for a while, but boy, they're a lot better now. I'm not sure about that. Like maybe the theory that a lot more people had it than we think is possible. Maybe there is some sort of uh, herd immunity because a lot more people had it and remained asymptomatic. That that is one big mystery that's still there. The one big mystery is how many people are catching it or asymptomatic and just never knew they had it. Is there a very large group of people who had it before? Before meaning like at any point up till now. I don't mean like back in November. I mean like any time in 2020 – is it possible that some people had it and, and like a lot of people had it and don't know, like the swine flu? And it's possible. I'm not saying I, I think that's true, but I'm saying that it is a little weird how it, it spikes up in some areas and then and then dies down. Like, like why is New York now, uh, why do they have fewer than half the cases of California where before they were blowing away California despite a smaller population? Why? How, how did that change? It's not, it's not like New York ra- did something way different. It's not like they said, oh, wait, we messed this up. Let's let's fix some things. No, it just it seems to be dying out. So I guess we'll see. A lot of times you can't predict this stuff. A lot of times things – you, you think you have it all figured out with a disease like this and it surprises you, sometimes for the worse, sometimes for the better. So honestly, at this point, nothing's going to surprise me. Like, let, let, let's say on August 15th, like the whole thing's pretty much just gone. Would that be great? Yeah. Am I expecting that? No. Would I be absolutely shocked like uh, like I never would have thought this was possible? Not really. <laughs> I kind of think anything's possible with this here. There's so much we don't understand with it. All right. Some of you just want to have me talk about anything. Some of you, I, th- I think some of you would be happy if I just like read from the phone book, if I just got out an old phone book and, and read things out there. As long, as long as there's some content to the show, you could just leave on in the background as you do things or go to sleep. I should try that. I should try to do like a, a seven-hour phone book show where I just read from the phone book. Or, or maybe to, to stick with a poker theme, I could just read poker hand histories. By the way, speaking of poker hand histories, I might as well tell this since I'm talking about a whole lot of stuff here. I had this weird succession of hands on Bovada in a really short time. The first one went the right way. It was only at a 10-20 game, unfortunately, though. The other two were 30-60. But there was a guy who was uh, short-stacked. So it was one of these things where I knew if I had like any ace or any pair, I'm going in no matter what the board is because there just weren't enough chips on his side to where it would make any sense. You know, it's like, it's like being in a tournament and some short stack 
you know you're going to go all in with any ace or, or, or pair. But it, it was one of those situations except it was a cash game. Well, I got pocket aces, so obviously that's going in no matter what. I think we put four bets in preflop, and I said, all right, uh, there's as long as this board isn't too coordinated, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to get this one. And the board came ten seven seven, which I, I never like seeing the board paired like that because there's always the chance they've got the they've got the damn card that's going to beat me. So uh, I remember the guy had thirteen dollars left. I remember it's a ten twenty game, so each bet on the flop is ten dollars. Limit hold'em, and I'm out of position. So I fire with my aces of the ten seven seven board, and the guy just calls with three dollars left. And right when he calls, I'm like, shit! I bet he's got that freaking seven. Because if he had anything but that seven. He's just putting the $13 in right there. Like, there's no reason to call there. Like, he, there's no reason to, to ever think that the extra $3 raise would scare me out. And there's also no reason to think that his hand is so bad that on a 10-7-7 board, it's not worth another 13 bucks, given what's already in the pot. He's a, He really is pot committed. No matter, even if he's got uh, do six offsuit, he's pot committed there with $13 left. So when he just called that 10, I said either he's like an incredible fish which I, I, I thought the guy wasn't that good, but he wasn't like an incredible fish. So like either he's like an incredible fish or he's flopped the seven and just is not going to raise me just in case I, I he, he doesn't want me to fold. He, he wants he wants to put that final $3 in on the turn because he's so afraid to raise me with that seven. So as soon as he calls, I'm like, crap, he's got the seven. Of course, the hand plays itself. He's got $3 left. So turn, I fire out the, the $3. He calls the $3. Sure enough, he not only turns over a seven, but he turns over a seven, which, aside from uh, pocket sevens, was the worst thing to see because uh, now I only had one out. What happens on the river? A seven. I'm oh, sorry, that's, I mean an ace. I ruined my own story. An ace hit the river. The one out got there for me. So A7 against Aces, where I've got him crushed. Like, it's like a 95%, or not 95%, like a 90% chance, something like that. Something, I think, over 90. Pre-flop. Aces against A7. And flop comes 10-7-7. So now I'm way behind, down to one out. And I see it on the turn, and I get the out, the one out on the river. So that happens. Then the game breaks because the guy busts and he must have thought the whole thing was rigged. <laughs> and, uh, so I move over to 3060 and a game actually has just started. Well, within minutes, two other crazy hands go down. One of them, the board on the turn is 9246. I've got twos. Someone else had fours. Someone else had sixes. Obviously, the sixes won. The river did not bring the one outer for either of us. I wouldn't say obviously the one. I just got a one outer, but I didn't get a second one outer. So set over set over set. Two sets on the flop, one on the turn. And the one that one was on the turn. That was not a nice hand. That was a 30-60. So I got my ass beat on that. The next hand, uh, two hands later, I got dealt pocket fours. This is a shorthanded. These are all shorthanded games, by the way. Got dealt pocket fours. A lot of action pre. Board comes ace eight eight. So it was only one bet three ways in the flop, and I was the last one to put in the action. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll call one bet just in case I spike the four. Then I can pop this ace king, get money out of him. If I don't get the four, I'll check fold the I'll, I'm gonna check fold the turn. 
So I called the one bet, and a four came on the turn. So I check-raised him, and guess what he did to me? He three-bet me. Since this was the guy who capped pre-flop, I did not four-bet him. So I just called. I check-called the river. Pocket aces, my opponent had. Beautiful. That was set over set, where I turned the under the lower set on the turn. That was lovely. All these happened within like a few minute period. So you gotta love uh, Bovada. Do I think it's rigged? No, but it's pretty crazy when that happens. Not as bad though at, at Commerce one time. At all things, a 400-800 game. I flopped four sets in my first orbit. Orbit meaning the first round from uh, the time I post my blind to the time the blind comes back. It was a nine-handed game, so in nine hands, I got four pocket pairs, flopped a set every single time, and lost every single one. And I was ahead every single time on the flop, by the way. So it's not even like I was a set against a higher set or a set against a straight. It was a, it was a set against a flush. No, it was a, a set where I was leading every time on the flop, and I lost all four of them. Flopping four sets out of four in one orbit. How much did I lose by the time the blind came back around? $16,000. People at the table could not believe it. Has to be at a 400-800, too. Like, it, this can't happen at a low-limit game, or at least at 40-80. It has to be freaking 400-800 that happens to me. The first orbit, not just one orbit, the first orbit. I sit down, and I get four sets in the first nine hands, and I lose them all. True story from Commerce from a number of years ago, I think in 07. So just in case you see things like that in online poker and you say, there's no way that's possible live. No, it is. You play fewer hands live, but I've seen some crazy stuff live. I've seen really crazy stuff live. Okay, uh, that's it. We'll be back in eight days. We'll be back on June 13th on Saturday again. Saturday is our regular day for now. And I thank you for listening. Thank you to Dutch Boyd for coming on. His book is called Poker Tilt. It's been out for a while. Also, he's an attorney now, and he says that if you are an advantage player or have any other issue in a casino, that he would like to take your case. He is at Dutch Boyd on Twitter. You can also go to his website, DutchBoyd.com, or email him, Dutch at DutchBoyd.com. I think he'll respond to you. He's kind of like the type of guy who will answer everybody. Well, I thank him for coming on doing that lengthy interview, even as his uh, very pregnant girlfriend was giving him dirty looks for talking so long on here. Thank you to Vintage One and Trey Daruski for co-hosting tonight. Thank you, Eric Benzamokin, for coming on and uh, giving your legal expertise about the puzzle situation. Provided nothing really new happens, like beyond what's already happening, I think I'm probably done with a riot and race talk on this show. It's not, it's not what this show's about. This show's about poker and gambling. I mean, you, you can't escape these things right now, but I don't want this to become like a major focus of the show. It's just, this is not a political show, and I, I don't want it to be. I'll throw it in at the end sometimes, but... 
usually I don't want to talk about politics here. And I don't want to get in the habit of that. Sorry to anybody who tried to call tonight. It wasn't until late that I fixed the phone lines. But that happens. I think just next time I'll have to commit to fix it as I'm messing with it and not just say, oh, I'll do it before radio. Doesn't slip my mind. Well, I hope it doesn't slip your mind to find the show either on Saturday of next week and the week after the week after, or at least in the archives. Remember, text me 775-372-8355. I'll respond to you. I probably will. Can't guarantee it, but I probably will. Until next week, good night and shalom.